Tu crois pas qu'il serait mieux en saccage Hai la casa col tetto dipinto di blu e un giardino fiorito che cosa vuoi più il mattino ti sveglia col gallo e il caffè ed il giorno comincia a vivere con te non crucciarti se hai qualche chilo di più a qualcuno vai bene così come sei non crearti L'amore verrà quando meno la smetti E noi che busserà non si piange con la bocca piena Non tenere sempre il cuore in pena Se sorridi sei più bella e di resto Welcome back to Catalyst and Witness, the New York Film Festival personal exploration podcast hosted by myself, Dan Malloy, with Ryan Swin. Hello. And uh, joining us this time is New York cinephile and kind of a Twitter guy, <laughs> Jason Miller. Jason, we're so happy to have you here. Thank you. I, uh, I'm glad to be back this time on a uh, full-on yes. episode. And uh, yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> I, I love what this podcast does. And so I was excited to take a little part in it. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, yeah thank you. Very yeah. happy to have you. Faithful listeners will remember Jason from our uh, New York Film Festival dispatches, <laughs> uh, reporting from the front lines over there. And uh, yeah, so today we're covering the 1974 festival, 12th edition. And do you have any more specific info about how it went down, Ryan? Well, it seems like it was a pretty normal one. And there weren't any, as far as I could tell, any snags, like the potential cancellation of the opening night, like there was for last year. And it seemed pretty normal. I did see a article from Vincent Campy saying that it was that by this point that Canon New York Film Festival were the only two f- festivals that really mattered at this point. The <laughs> can unofficially open the festival season if climax the season, no room for Berlin in, in there or anything like that. And he said the difference with, between a convention of wallboard salesmen referring to Cannes and a seminar on Etruscan art at the Metropolitan Museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's Canby's opinion, but that's, uh, that's what we have. Uh, speaking of wallboard salesman the we're recording a day after the oscars so uh, you may, might hear the remnants of the blindness that is the, the ceremony <laughs> mamma mia uh, <laughs> did you watch it huh? uh, Jason? i was i was watching stuff for this podcast about occasionally turning my head and just going i'm okay i was i was at an oscar <laughs> party and regina king won as the first award of the night and i was like it's all downhill from here i'm i'm gonna leave and i came home <laughs> yeah we we watched the whole ceremony but you know we're i i think i get watching the oscars in full on the west coast more than the east coast because by yeah. the time it's over it's like nine and oh so God, yeah. you can kind of just go home and i even watched a movie after so you know like you gotta do other things i don't i can't imagine the oscars taking over my night (laughs) the way it does on the east coast true enough but yeah and you know in keeping um i guess with the spirit of one section of the oscars that's kind of good uh is in memoriam uh just acknowledging the recent passing of bruno gans uh, who stars in some of Vim Vender's films that appear in the festival. And 
not, I don't know if he's related to the festival, but Stanley Donnan died recently. You know, mm. just a Titanic uh, figure, like the last living classic Hollywood director, probably, uh, in any true sense of the word. Right. And so, you know, that's just a big passing of mm. film history. But just wanted to yeah. make a point of that. Mm. And we would be remiss not to mention Bruno Ganz's appearances in... Lars von Trier films in the upcoming, presumably Radigund by Malik. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. And of oh. course, Hamkale Sarah's Unknown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's so good. Fantastic performance in that. Yeah. And some other films that we'll have coming up, uh, not just Fimbers. Uh, yeah. So for, for this festival, the selection committee was believed the same as last year's Richard Roud as the director, Richard Corliss, Arthur Knight, Arthur Elmer, Andrew Serres, Susan Sontag, and Henri Lenoir as a retrospective consultant. And it, was, it took place for the most part at Alstelli Hall, though both the opening night and the closing night took place at the newly christened Avery Fisher Hall. I think it was named Avery Fisher Hall. Like from, it was changed from Philharmonic Hall to Avery Fisher Hall right before the last festival began, but I think just this was by this time now had sunk in, I guess, or it was the letters went up on the wall or something. So, and both all the films except the gallus and the retrospectives were shown twice. And I don't think there were any panels as far as I could tell. So what did you two think of this festival? Very, very strong, especially in comparison to the last one, which I felt was definitely on the weaker side of things. I don't remember too many films sticking out from that one. And this is maybe just a case of like our favorite French directors <laughs> returning, but you know, you really get like some extremely, uh, you know, just exemplary work from, you know, Brisson, Rene, two films from Rivet. Um, you also have maybe one of the worst movies that <laughs> has ever played in the festival, in my opinion, but we can get to that later. But that doesn't, um, that doesn't negate the rest of the lineup. It's, it's really, really, really one of the better ones. Right. I'm, Jason? I mean, having two Rivette old-timers in your main slate yeah. will definitely mm-hmm. boost it. But I was, uh, I was at a concert a few nights ago with friend of the podcast, Forrest Cardamettis. And he was like, oh, yep. what movie? I was telling him that was going to be on this. And he was like, oh, what movies were playing that year? And I just started listing all the ones I remembered off the top of my head. And he was like, banger, banger. <laughs> so it's it is it is in a in a year uh, partially why I chose it um, that and the tribute to Buñuel which we'll get to later but it's sort of strangely encapsulating certain Titanic films uh, of the time is so fascinating how it sort of would line up that Ali Fury it's the Soul and and <laughs> Selena Julie and that one Spectre and all of these movies are playing back to back to back, you know, in, in near consecutive nights, um, which is something that is so wonderful about New York Film Festival is that element of curation. You know, there's definitely yeah. oversights in this festival in particular. Um, in terms of, you know, obviously like diversity, like the only movies directed by women, there were two, and both of them were shorts in programs with much more famous male filmmakers in the same program. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no, it, I, if I'm correct, there's no Asian cinema in this entire uh, nope. lineup, correct? Correct. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Right. So it's this interesting thing of, and obviously 
It's not like there's any African film at the time. It's the 70s and it's near a film festival. So not to be overly critical of what is like an incredibly strong year, but it is interesting the way in which, of course, it's still like as strong as it is, it does have these interesting little blind spots, uh, which, I mean, again, are completely in line with any, you know, quote unquote, respectable institution creating and curating film at this time. Um, And again, I mean, this is better than most, uh, but it is interesting the way in which certain lights have not quite turned on yet. Yeah. 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 And I mean, there is like some interesting like diversions when like I was looking up the Berlin and um, can, maybe not the can lineup, but the Berlin lineup at least. I mean, like there's a silver bear for an Iranian film in there. Like Mm -hmm. there's a bit, more going on but you know it hasn't quite yet hit the sort of new york intellectual circles yet right right, right. and i sure. even checked just because out of curiosity because i was like it's interesting that there's i was like it's interesting that there's so few women in this in this festival in particular and i looked and i was like well isn't 74 when ackerman made uh and i was like right. okay well let me see where it played and it and Hotel Monterey played in Belgium and then, from what I can tell at least, didn't play anywhere else until Berlin of 76 after mm, right. Jean Dielman made some waves. So, it, again, in keeping with the other festivals, it's they all have their blind spots and certain yes, they have not caught up on certain things. But it is that thing of it's like, I wish New York Film Festival was the one that was like, you, you know, but... <laughs> It happens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is definitely one of the strongest for me. I do, I do also really love the uh, last year's. I do also think that's one of the strongest, but I think this one is, it is stronger. And just as you both said, there is just such a strong bench of all-time great films, basically, and certainly many of the most significant films of the of certainly this era. And I also something which I felt was maybe a little bit lacking from the past couple of of festivals was any real discoveries and like films that Mm -hmm. absolutely no one has heard of really. And I found at least two, which I find really strong and very interesting. And so that was very nice to see. And that's what I especially treasured from the New York Film Festival Um, and what makes this whole endeavor so fascinating, I think. Going off of into other festivals um, in Berlin that year, the Golden Bear was awarded to a film called *The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz*, uh, directed by Ked Kochev. Sorry, uh, Wait, Ted Kochev. Yeah, Ted Kochev. Uh, so then, Breton uh, Tavernier, a clockmaker, won the Silver Bear as well as um, an Iranian film that I just mentioned, which also won the Fipresi, which is uh, Surab Shahid Salis's uh, *Still Life*. Stuart Cooper's film, Little Malcolm, also won a Silver Bear. And a Gerard Blaine film, The Pelican. Fassbender's Effie Briest, uh, mm. all both played in the lineup, too. At Cannes, uh, The Conversation, the Coppola film, won The Palm, or what was The Palm equivalent. The jury prize went to Pasolini's Arabian Nights. The screenplay prize went to uh, Steven Spielberg's The Sugarland Express. Mm. Uh, best actor for the Nicholson in The Last Detail. Uh, best actress for Marie uh, Jose Nat in Violins at the Ball. Uh, Dusan Makaveyev's film Sweet Movie played in a director's fortnight. 
the Vietnam documentary Hearts and Minds played in Critics Weeks. Uh, Amarcord played out of competition. Tati's Parade out of competition. Altman's Thieves Like Us played in competition. The Nine Lives of Fritz the Cat, the Fritz the Cat sequel also played. As well as uh, Carly Mock, the director of Love uh, from 1971, right. his film Cats Play in competition Masahiro Shinoda's Himiko Carlos Sara's Cousin Angelica and then just to roll off a few other films as mentioned before Jetuil the Ackerman film uh, Peter Watkins Edward Munch mm. uh, Female Trouble the John Waters film <laughs> Pila's The Mouth Agape Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore another Altman film California Split another John Eustache film uh, My Little Loves film by Georges Perec and uh, Bertrand Quesan, uh The Man Who Sleeps, Lena Wertmuller's Swept Away, Philippe Gorel's uh, Les Hautes Solitudes, and Yvonne Rainier's film about a woman who... Yeah, oh, Ted Kocheff directed Wake and Fright. That's, oh, and, and First Blood. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Also First Blood. The oh, the Rambo, Rambo movie? One. Yeah. Oh. So, that's oh. strange. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the, we should also note some that I saw in New York Times coverage. MGM was apparently willing to show Antonioni's The Passenger, but it was still being edited at that time. That plays much later as a retrospective. And the apparently, just in general, there, the can be, and I guess a lot of people felt at the time that the 74 festival was a, a fairly middling festival, I guess, which is strange. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. And they, they said they, they noted some, I think, they did like, or they did love Celine and Julie and some of their films, but the apparently they just felt a lot of the other ones swirling around the middle didn't really capture them. I don't, I can't, I don't know how. And yeah, can't relate. Did, can't relate. Yeah, and they did mention that both scenes from Marriage and Amarcord opened a week before the festival began. Uh, both were seventy-three films, but uh, got released in the U.S. in 74, barring our, or barring at least my own Bergman, Fellini agnostic status. Right, I was uh, going to say, that's the most 70s complaint ever of like, yeah. oh, the festival was weaker this year because the Fellini and Bergman <laughs> opened before the festival. And it's really like, it's really like, you don't know what you had, did you? Like, you had yeah. no, no idea. they really, people did yeah, not. Okay. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, should also say, strange that the, I think the most glaring absence I think for me it was the PLA just because PLA has most of his films. This is one of two theatrical mm-hmm. films I think that he doesn't have in the festival. Everything else is in. Uh, but just an- another round of this is from the new director's new films from from this year. Not necessarily admissions, but just perhaps heralds of things to come or or sort of avenues not taken. All nudity shall be punished by Arnaldo Jabor. Body tales by Sergio Citi. Black Holiday by Marco Leto, But Where is Daniel Vax by Avram Hefner, Castle of Purity by Arturo Ripstein, who does have at least one film later in the festival, Days of 36 by Theo Angelopoulos, who does have, I think, just one film later in the festival, maybe one or two, Ordinary Tenderness by Jacques Leduc, Overnight by Karen Thome, The Promised Land by Miguel Litton, The Red Train by Peter Amon, and The Sugarland Express by Mr. Steven Spielberg, who does have one film later in the festival. So those are some possible avenues uh, for further study, perhaps. Yeah. We did have quite a few films that we weren't able to see, so yeah. we do have uh, some gaps, but I feel like we have 
a ton to discuss. Yeah, yeah there's uh, yeah. lots of ground yes. to be covered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just before we truly dive in, there's one little bit of catch up. I saw um, the Zanussi film, The Illumination. Oh. I don't remember too much of it. <laughs> uh, I remember it. I I. I don't. I wouldn't say I disliked it, but it, it did have this very strange. Um, it has an almost like Godardian sort of um, formal quality or sort of uh, editing structure to it. And Zanussi is always throwing in these still images and this voiceover, but it's kind of in this sort of vague, general philosophical realm, which I don't think befits the style very much. Mm, but it is like an interesting. It's a ninety-minute movie that covers like almost a decade yeah. in you know a life, and so it's that's always interesting to see. And I don't think we have too much more Zanussi, but uh, we still have some. There's so, some, yeah. I'm you know I'm always I'm interested in him, but I, I don't think I doubt that I'm going to fully embrace a film of his just because his his choices are always so just a little too intellectual, but not <laughs> quite fully formed. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, just yeah. reporting on that one. Mm-hmm. Just from the shorts, there's one particularly interesting short that was in the festival. It was a Braverman's Condensed Cream of the Beatles, uh, Charles Braverman's sort of animated, sort of almost sort of documentary on the Beatles, which are looked up and it looked pretty interesting i oh. haven't seen it but and jabberwocky the yeah by jan Svenkmeier. yeah i've seen that film it's very much a czech animated film oh boy <laughs> called jabberwocky <laughs> yeah, like it's, everything it's you could expect from that <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and speaking of films that are very much the directors we i don't know if you saw jason but we saw john luc godard's damage book uh, oh yes oh, yes no. i yes. i saw that a couple weeks ago i like it a lot uh i will yeah. say <laughs> it was a funny experience to be watching it because i was like either godard has gotten simpler or i'm getting better at watching godard <laughs> also maybe both also maybe neither it is very much exactly what you would have sort of expected uh and but of course it's godard so it's so 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 different so radically different than you could have ever imagined um obviously as many people pointed out the audio mix is maybe the best thing uh if you do get a chance to watch it in a theater Mm -hmm. obviously it is wonderful if only for that i mean i don't know i have i don't have too much to say other than i I was surprised at how easy it was going down to some degree um after i took maybe i don't know i think i saw i think i saw goodbye to language in theaters like three times before i was like okay so i don't dislike this movie it took a a couple times for me to be like okay like i have some handle of what is happening and what is coming at my eyes so for this it was it was a little bit easier to to handle and uh but i i mean I, i like it a lot i think he's working through some really interesting things if sometimes as always with godard maybe doesn't screen his filter and in, in how he chooses to use images sometimes goes awry i mean but that's so consistent with his essay work from istuar to cinema on that there's always going to be something ill-timed or stupid or offensive or just kind of silly so I, I it's not shocking to me that there were some things that i was like mm, don't know that that should have been there but also, it's kind of dumb to second guess him on some of it. You're watching him think, and I, to some degree, at least respect the process. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I definitely agree that, you know, 
it's definitely something I'll probably want to get another chance to look at. Mm -hmm. I just kind of went to the very last showing that was available. And so, you know, it was later at night. So I was maybe paying a little less attention than I probably should have. But I, you're definitely watching a thought process and not like a fully explicated, which I think is always the case with Godard. Right. You know, uh, like a fully explicated thesis and then, you know, something like maybe went from the East, but I certainly like enjoy maybe more his own image creation than what he's, I mean, I like the, how he pulls from films and how he repurposes images, but you know, like the sort of invention of his earlier work is what I'm more familiar with. So this was actually like the first late Godard I'd seen in a theater. Or maybe just in general, too. Yeah. So on that level, like, I kind of knew what to g- expect going in, but I was, you know, taken aback by some right. elements of it, too. Yeah, it was the first 21st century Godard feature that I've seen as well. I think the latest feature I'd seen before was from 83 or something like that. And I, I did really love it. I think maybe it's just, I find just the way he visualizes and the way he, in this case, oralizes thought process to be so compelling and so riveting from moment to moment and just the the fact that he treats all this footage through this image processing through altering it in ways that aren't necessarily to my mind they don't necessarily denigrate the images so much as just cast them in a different light and I find just each instance of that so so strange always so unexpected for whatever reason I can't begin to work through the what it's trying to say, but how it says it, I find just utterly rapturous. Yeah, and and, I mean, I agree, and I I do have that prior experience with him. I've seen Goodbye to Language, I think, five times in a theater now at this point. (laughs) Welcome to New York happens. It screens somewhere every, like, six months now. Uh, (laughs) And I am a a very, very, very big fan of Histoire de Cinema. Um, I think that's up there with the very, very greatest things he's ever made. So again, it is that thing of it's like, with him, there is an uphill climb to figure out how watching his brain process images and how he relays that to you. It's a learning curve to deal with that. And it's interesting because it is like very few directors that I've ever encountered where it is this really, really intense, steep uphill climb to really understand because it's just so far out from any significant conception most of us have ever encountered of cinema. So it's exciting and it's always bracing and that's, and yeah. but it does, I will say, generally speaking, I think most people can agree, does get a little bit easier when you start to, when you start to like, oh, okay, so this is what he's going to do for a whole yeah. movie. Right. right, absolutely. We'll have at least one more, probably two more opportunities to discuss this on the podcast, so we'll, we'll put a pin in that. But always, always a treat for Godard. No Godards in this festivals, but... Um, yeah, well, kind of a quiet period for him, too. Yeah, right. or yeah. still making films, but I, th- I think at a more leisurely place than his yeah. the torrent of his 60s work. Uh, speaking of torrents, we have a lot of films, so uh, shall we dive in then? Let's go. Yeah, let's do it.
Welcome back. The opening night for the first time was a film that we were unable to see, and perhaps not coincidentally, it was really the first opening night film from uh, almost complete unknown. This film is called Don't Cry With Your Mouth Full, uh, and here's the program description. The coming of age of France's 28-year-old Pascal Thomas, whose Les Ozos was the hit of last year's new director's series. Set in the heart of provincial France, observing three generations, the film is a chronicle of life's absurdities and small tragedies as they appear to a 15-year-old girl. Reverberating with the clear-eyed humanism of Renoir and the youthful high spirits of early Truffaut, the film is a sheer delight. And Bernard Menez, the hawk-nosed prop boy of Day for Night, proves here why he has become one of the most popular young actors in France. So... It, it sounds interesting enough. I did get a file, but there were no subs, uh, as far as I could tell. So that's a film, which is weird, unable to see. It's strange to have that happen for opening night, but it sounds pleasant enough. I like the description of hawk-nosed prop boy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a descriptor not commonly used nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the next film is uh, one of the retrospective titles, which is Max Ophuls's, uh Lee Belie from 1933. Before he was making films in France, even, it was a German film. And uh, basically, a love story set in Vienna, like pre-World War One. I. I think it's even? the description is in the late imperial era. So I guess oh, okay, so. probably early, turn of the century. Yeah, it seems it seems about that. And so it follows uh, like young lieutenant sort of love affair he has with a prominent musician in the orchestra, his daughter, and it sort of crosses class lines a bit and you know the sort of honor of the military basically culminates in a duel uh you can kind of see where that's going it's a tragic story but most of the, i'd say most of the film is sort of devoted more to the love affair than yeah. to you know the machinations that result in the tragedy and it is really just this sort of beautiful charming kind of early sound artifact almost um of a certain time like it's and Ophuls's style is sort of, I would say it's pre-formed Ophuls almost. Like you, you there's no see sort of the formations there. Right. You can, a lot of the stylistic aspects. Yeah. A lot of what, he, what preoccupies him with the later films is sort of there, but it's very, it's pretty embryonic almost. There's no instance of like any fluid long takes too much that come to mind. Not extremely long takes. Like there's no, yeah. say the beginning of La Ronde. But yeah. I mean, I do, I do find quite a lot to love, even if the as it resolves on the whole, I'm not entirely over the moon with. But I think that there, I do love a lot of this, and I think that it has that same sensibility that of Ophuls that characterizes his later greater works. And I, I do, I think, especially with the opening, with how it begins, because it begins at this performance of one of Mozart's operas, the abduction from the Serlio, and it initially begins backstage before moving to the audience, and you have already this sort of formation of the balance, I guess, between the soldiers who make up the majority of the audience that are seated orchestra yeah. level. You have a sort of contrast between the regimented status of them and the Kaiser who's seated in a box by himself and the balcony of regular people. And that they connect first when Christine, the main character, either her or her friend, Mitzi, drops the binoculars and almost clonks one of the soldiers on the head. And you have that very... I love how fluid it is. I love how certainly at the beginning it feels like they're establishing these two couples at the same time, Christine and Fritz and then Mitzi and Fritz's fellow lieutenant, Theo. Uh, unfortunately, I think that the 
Christine and Fritz is foregrounded. It is definitely the foreground and, and the other couple sort of recedes into the background. But I do still think that you get that even at this early age, you have this almost La Ronde-esque interplay between mm-hmm. couples, between the sort of round way of characters that make it up. You have in this beginning 20, 30 minute section, you just have so many different relationships because Fritz is getting out of this relationship when, with one of his superiors' right. wives. And that's what leads to the duel, right. ultimately. Right. Yeah, it's not anything to do with the new love. Right, and that's yeah, kind of what the sort of brilliance of it is almost, is that, yeah, Olfels is able to sort of very quickly establish these but never, like, shortchange them, basically. Right. And even so, when, you know, something like this sort of side relationship with Mitzi and uh, the other soldier, uh, even, when, even as it's sort of pushed to the side, when it does pop up again, it's very, like, a sort of amusing side story in its own respect. Right, absolutely. Right, and, and I mean, within the first couple minutes, I was sort of unsure if this was going to be, like, one of those movies that's an exciting foray into someone's style that we already know we just haven't gone back this early or is it going to be one of those right. like hard arturist deep dives where you're really just like <laughs> show me a shot that reminds me of something else like you know where you're really you're really not in it for the movie that is actually playing thankfully it was it was more the former rather than the latter yeah, absolutely and and you talking about how like fluidly he connects those it's actually a single series of shots that leads from the two women up on the balcony passing the binoculars to one another and they drop them it falls almost hits the soldier and then the soldier then bends down to go and grab it breaking his stance while the kaiser is entering and then his superior actually sees that and gets upset at him which is accelerates the drama further later on in the film so again even in like a movie that i would definitely say like falls under the like quote unquote minor category it's still Mm. and and, i mean it's so early that again you're definitely the movie's definitely hampered by certain inabilities of the script as well as an overarching inability to actually express itself because it's weimar cinema and you can really Mm. see um fernando f croce wrote a a beautiful beautiful review of it as he does Mm. everything um, right. But but he, he wrote a beautiful review of it that it's 100% talks about certain lines that you can tell were pampered precisely by the rise of the Nazis. And supposedly the film, this is from Fernando's review, was only ever released when the Jewish writers' names were actually scrubbed from the credits. Mm. Um, So again, it is that thing of it's like the movie is working under veiled circumstances. And while it's definitely not as sharp and as pointed as say what like Lubitsch might be doing with very similar material at the exact same time, there's still so much awfuls here that is so interesting and fluid. And even on a moment by moment basis where this movie is not wowing me it does every couple of minutes move in a way that only he could and it's and it's extraordinary in that way yeah absolutely i find ophels at least from the films i've seen is definitely a filmmaker of moments for me and there's just some absolutely breathtaking moments like my favorite is this scene in a bar where christine and fritz are dancing to this waltz that that they play on a sort of a precursor to a jukebox or something or certainly a music oh, box yeah. of some sort and right after they finish dancing Theo puts in another coin and so and then they to for the same waltz and then they begin dancing again and you partly 
part of it you just see their shadow on the wall as they're as that's juxtaposed with with the other couple and i find just how graceful it is how fluid ophuls shoots mostly in Though it's not necessarily as fluid camera movement, it's still very much attuned to the long take, attuned to a longer sense. And you have also just this scene of Fritz and Theo as they're overseeing maneuvers, they're just talking about their current amorous states. And you have such a sense of liveliness to to each moment. And so yeah. of course, pop more than others. Yeah, and the, the sort of quasi jukebox dance is like sort of an exemplary Ophel's moment because it's sort of like in a letter from an unknown woman where they're having this romantic dinner and then the background changes because you know a, you know uh, the guy working at the restaurant is like bicycling like these set decorations <laughs> yeah, away yeah, yeah. Like it's it's the sort of these genuine moments of sort of grace and beauty and like just unabashed romanticism coming from sort of the tiniest kitschiest circumstances mm, yeah um, right i yeah, will say I, going I, off of that there is there is something about it as this does like very much demarcate itself as like a pre-rules of the game movie that is still yeah. taking these kind of issues seriously um yeah. and, and that, that, you know sometimes <laughs> in a trade that you know lubitsch or sternberg would work in but immediately post world war ii immediately became very quickly unfashionable right. and, and you know of critiquing honor codes of respectability and honor and these sort of things but even again even in those there are these little sharp critiques there are these little moments that isolate it that it is a little bit deeper and working a little bit smarter than anything else really happening at this time short of you know Lubitsch or Sternberg where there's yeah, even right. there's even a scene where the two women are talking to each other privately and it's supposed to be this sort of like cute little scene of them talking about how one can recognize what rank one one of the soldiers <laughs> yeah. is by by yeah. his his like shoulder the, the shoulder dressings right and she's like right. what you don't know this is wildly important so not only like what is supposed to be like cutesy girls chatting scene is really two women talking about their social status about the strata mm-hmm. they live in and their need to have somewhere level of upwards mobility but then in the very same shot Ophels pulls back and uses this sort of lattice work that's that's in the background of the booth and he foregrounds that over the two women as the two men return into frame and so you mm-hmm. literally have these moments of these women talking honestly and openly with each other and then immediately literally visually being guarded being sectioned off being pushed mm-hmm. to a periphery by these men of a higher stature so again i mean it, it it's it is not an entirely successful film in the way that everything clicks it is not a wonderful screenplay that allows Ophels to do what he does best and i I mean again that run of the last four or five films he has are all incredibly fantastic screenplays which just let him do what he does best and so Mm -hmm. this is again not quite there on that same level, but it is, especially if you like Ophuls, is very much worth seeing and, and very much, I feel like certain people at the time definitely responded to this as, as that shot I just described of the two women talking and then the two men entering and then being hit by latticework. It's actually very similar, Is there's a very similar shot in Cirque's Imitation of Life 
uh, with Lana Turner. Oh. La- la- later in the movie, when she's in the when the time the big time jump has happened, and there's a part where she gets sectioned off by lattice work in her own home as someone else is talking. And I mean, right. this is literally when Cirque was working in German film and theater, so mm-hmm. it's not it's not a ridiculous concept to say that he probably saw this, you know. And then yeah. and then again, it's like he is. Even when embryonic is certainly maybe a little bit harsher of a word than I would say, but I would definitely say it is definitely immature in the most literal sense of that word. It is an immature work from Ophels. It is still complex and and yeah. and just so fascinating in its little nooks and crannies that it decides to take in a moderately pedestrian screenplay. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, when, even when it's when it's more beholden to the very tragic parts of it, which I don't feel are as actually as well as the rest of it. And just the two minute shot that he holds on Christine, learning that that Fritz has died, has been killed in the duel, and it's just he just holds on her face as it goes through this enormous array of emotions, and that he elides both deaths. That neither of the deaths are shown on screen. Right, and uh, the very ending. I mean, it's yeah. just like one of the definitely more graceful moments of the entire film and definitely sort of shows possibly like the pinnacle of, yeah, what this period, these restrictions, these sort of limitations that are definitely present on the film and sort of come to bear on it in a number of ways when you think about them while watching the, you know, like it does lead to this moment of sort of almost pure Ophelsian cinema, Mm -hmm. which kind of bodes well for the future. (laughs) Also, Maybe not for the, the characters, but by the way, a bunch of duels in this festival for whatever reason. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's there's one in the Milky Way. There's one in Lance a Lot to Luck. There's right. one of this. Yeah. Anyway, just the... there's one that's cut out of Atlas Specter. Oh yes, oh, of course. yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, I did duel. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> the next film in this festival is The Night of the Scarecrow by Sergio Ricardo, a Brazilian film. This is one that only I saw and. Ricardo is primarily known as a composer. He wrote the score for Glaber Rocha's Black God, White Devil. And this is this was a real discovery for me. It partly is just a very strange film, uh, often very enlivening and very unexpected one, I guess. It's basically a sort of almost quasi-musical about basically this sort of... It begins as this sort of loosely connected moments that slowly become close into this plot of a village basically versus this land baron who's called a colonel i guess he might be actually a colonel but i'm not entirely certain and it was set in kajazira and was filmed in the largest outdoor theater in the world nova jerusalem which is apparently covers around a million square feet and it's yeah so they had a lot of room to to film and they stage it and a passion of the christ there though that's not shown in the film of course and it's sort of this strange, very difficult to place time period because it's set in the in very rural countryside, very almost desert-like countryside. It feels definitely like it could be a much earlier era or a much sooner era, but there's you also see typewriters, you see very prominent use of motorcycles and tractors and guns. So I couldn't really place it. And a lot of this film is really difficult to place. It's a film basically centers around this singer character who doesn't really get too involved in the plot but he acts almost as this as a storyteller and you have Zetulao this vaquero who something like 20 minutes into the film seemingly 
comes back from the dead after having been in the afterlife and you see this sort of scene of him in the afterlife and this very strange room that he slowly walks through. You have him, you have one of the village women, Maria de Gotal, you have the colonel, Fragoso, and this sentinel who works as basically his right-hand man slash enforcer, Zé Ducal. And it, the whole thing just feels so much like it should be an allegory because you have all these various fantastical touches, and yet it feels so grounded. And the film that reminded me most of, not necessarily, definitely not in style, but just in sort of outlook, was like Nicolas Jancho's Red Psalm because of the sort of communal sense, the sort of village sense you get you very even though most of the characters, besides the main characters, aren't really focused on any lengthy time, you still have such a very clear sympathy, this very clear solidarity, for lack of a better term. This is definitely a film politically concerned, and you have the sort of play out in the plot, basically. And even though the film ends with all of the village men dead, I think, you it still feels hopeful in a certain way. I it's difficult to describe there's even this character that's called the king of the underworld of the animal kingdom that looks basically like the the gorn from star trek uh and with with that has i guess from cut out from the suit visible breasts that are covered or something like that i can't it's ne- the character is never plot relevant, doesn't get in any fights or anything like that, but you see it in so many of the scenes and so many of the shots. It's a very strange film. The, the singer character wears this uh, costume that's festooned with pans that looks ex- almost exactly like the costume that Alvaro Laxe wears in Ben Rivers, The, the Sky Trembles, and the <laughs> has Two Brothers, or whatever the title of that film is, whatever long title. I mean, there's a lot in this film. I can't... It's very difficult to describe. It feels like a fever dream, but then again, as I said, it's so grounded. I can't. It's, wow. It's yeah. It's very strange. Yeah, I'm excited to discovery. catch up with it. I even just briefly was scrubbing through the file, and I was like, "This is going to be a trip." So I'm actually excited yeah. to catch up with it when I have a little bit more time. Yeah. yeah. No, it sounds fascinating. I definitely, mm-hmm. definitely look forward to seeing more of it and seeing just more Brazilian films in general. Right. Yeah. And the the music is very good. It's less. Oh, yeah. It's not really structured around musical numbers it's more like half of the dialogue is sung it's not mm. a completely is it all film. composed music for, yes or, I, or I like think, scored yeah and yeah. ricardo scored of oh, himself gotcha. and some Tight. sometimes it's povs sometimes it's very very quick cutting but in a very composed sense it's shot in academy and the often quite beautiful there because it's set mostly in the desert when it does use color which it does do fairly often it does really pop in the motorcycles that the sentinel and his comrades ride on are covered with looks like oversized dragonfly wings or something there's a lot of (laughs) strange things strange bits in it which i did find very appealing yeah it's a very strange film i I really liked it (laughs) (laughs) the next film is la comme lucienne from louis mal who we last saw in the festival with his closing night film murmur of the heart and this is a this is a, another film that only I was able to see, uh, which I didn't know until, <laughs> until Dan just mentioned it to me. Yeah, uh, well, library due date really snuck up on yeah. me. Uh, canopy. Oh, I was gonna wow. say it's on Canopy. Oh. Yeah, you got to check Canopy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't look. I got it from the library though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that is related for sure. These are actually the only two Mal films I I've seen, and I have 
haven't seen, for example, Over to the Gallows or As I See Down the Metro. Mal is a filmmaker, I think, it certainly depends on his topic, the interest, the degree of interest I have yeah. in his films. Yeah. yeah, like, because I can't really, aside from the sound bridges in Murmur of the Heart, I can't really suss out a extremely noticeable aspect of his style or anything that I can really latch onto in a more tourist sense. And the plot of this is designed to be kind of a difficult to parse one. It's centered around the main character whose name is Lucien Lacombe. In the English title, there is a comma between Lacombe and Lucien, but there's not in the French title. And <coughs> Lucien, he is, <laughs> he lives in, in the countryside of France in 1944, so, so towards the end of World War II. And Lucien is 17 years old, and he, he has, you can tell from the opening scene where he has this sort of amoral sense, and he, by design, a kind of a hollow character. And I do admire how perversely unsympathetic he is at nearly every turn. He's introduced, while he's scrubbing the floors of a hospital, he spies a bird on a tree branch, and he kills it with a slingshot. Uh, and that's about the level where he stays for the rest of the film. And so after he makes an attempt to join the resistance in his hometown, he's rebuffed because he's young, and he happens to just by chance stumble upon this hotel that is being used as the headquarters for the German police. And they manage to get the, the identity of the location person out of him by getting him drunk. It's sort of ambiguous to what extent he is cooperating with them willingly or not, but he very quickly joins their ranks and becomes a member of the French Gestapo. The film, for whatever reason, it's two hours and 15 minutes. And <laughs> It does not need to be that long, in my in my opinion. Very and, few films do need yeah. to be that long. <laughs> That's true. The film basically around the halfway point or maybe the third point, it switches to become about this strange, nearly as opaque relationship between Lucien and this character played by Or Clement, who of course is later in Paris, Texas, and a number of other films, uh, whose name is France. Christ. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> oh, I could not. I I literally just when I was watching it, I I just I probably made a noise of disgust when, when <laughs> her, her name first came on. I, it has to be a metaphor, and yet it's not really used much as a metaphor, except as just sort of a reminder of the outside things, I guess. Even though that's baked into the plot. And France, she's the daughter of, of a Jew who says he's from France, but it's, it's almost certainly from, from Germany. He speaks German to his mother, who's also with them. And France is fundamentally almost unreadable as well, simply because she doesn't really emote very much. She doesn't seem to have much of a reaction to the various goings on that happens. Uh, she doesn't really respond in a positive or a negative way to Lucien's brutishness. And I do find just... Because both characters, neither of them have much of a sense to them, it's kind of a, it's a strange film that I can't really say grabbed me all that much. Yeah, I, I have a complicated relationship with Louis Mel in that I keep trying to form one and it does never yeah. seem to stick. Um, yeah. If you want a clue into my mind, my favorite Louis Mal film is Uncle Vanya on 42nd Street. Uh, Which because I've heard it's, is really good. It's, it's excellent, but that's because yeah. it is a bunch of wonderful actors staging a fantastic play directed <laughs> by a very good theater director, and then mm. it's filmed by Louis Mal. Um, yeah, there's. 
there's a reason his best films are Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory. <laughs> right, right. And, and right. you know, I, I still have not seen, uh, what is it, Atlantic City? You know, there's... there's oh, yeah. There's, that's a weird, oh, okay. weird movie. Well, that movie makes no sense. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't bother. My but, oh, wow. Yeah. But, no, I've, you know, I've seen Al Revoir, Les Enfants, Remember the Heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it The Lovers? Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, that's him. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, it's, yeah. It, he, he's, he's a strange one, and his yeah. concerns are inconsistent and yes. strange. I mean, he married Candace Bergen, so he was not all bad. Um, <laughs> so that's cool. But no, he, he's he's an interesting figure, and it's precisely why this was one of the last ones on that list that did not get to. Um, while actually, I am interested in his take on you know the French fr- French backstabbing or the, the anti anti resistance. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it was controversial when it came out because of its depiction of collaborators and such, even though I think that it's portrayal of collaborators, rightfully so, but still doesn't necessarily make for interesting films in the wrong hands. It It is very much very unflattering towards, towards collaborators, I guess maybe just the extent of collaboration. You have many scenes of just very desultory, very limpid drinking in the hotel where all the German police are, all the German thugs are portrayed as thugs more or less and you don't have really that many scenes of torture but it is definitely just another thing for them to do basically another part of their duties and you see Lucien especially just abusing power at many turns and you see that just the casual power that they wield over those who are being occupied seems like unintentional good time but with Nazis Uh, but Good Time has a sense of propulsion to it. it right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, rhythm and, and actual characters that are difficult to call Connie sympathetic. Or, but right. You, it, yeah, you, you certainly have a sense and you have pacing. For the, right, there's, there's a magnetism. Yeah. There is some level of right. yeah. charisma or at least internal psychology that is worth parsing. Right, um, right. Which I can understand how maybe Louis Malfilm does not provide but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the the film just closes with this ten minute sort of half escape as Lucien finally chooses love over the French Gestapo, uh, and he runs off with France and her grandmother just to this farmhouse just in the middle of nowhere, and it just ends with them there. And there's this text epilogue saying that he was captured and killed for collaborating. Um, yeah, it's not really a good. It, it's it, yeah. I mean, it, it has. I do like the performances. And I think there, there's definitely some good things to it. Lucien was played by Pierre Blaise in his debut. He was a non-actor. He only did four films before he died in a car accident at 23. Damn. Uh, which is yeah. Wow. Yeah, but he he's he embodies the brutishness of Lucien well. But I, then again, I don't find his character or his performance very compelling. It's just it does what it needs to do so it's a it's a decent it's a good film but i think there could be a lot more that it just does not get into partly because of the character but then that's a mile is just hamstrung by his own script i guess (laughs) yeah (laughs) no he certainly is probably (laughs) the next film is a returning favorite uh Mm -hmm. sort of long gone but uh we've we've been waiting for him to come back uh it's alan renee's film stavisky with an ellipses at the yes. end to differentiate it from the real Stavisky, I guess. Well, uh, the the title that Rene originally wanted was the name of this place that's mentioned, uh, Bizaritz Bonheur, which is this department store that was 
the height of luxury in the 30s. Right. And he was, the distributors insisted on having it called Stavisky after the main character's name. And then he insisted on the ellipses to suggest this sort of speculation yeah. um, or mystery about this. Right. Right. I know Just it is based on a real life, um, very, 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 very public international sensation. So that makes sense yes. that they intentionally were like, no, 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 no. we need the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it basically portrays the last few months in Stavisky, who John Paul Belmondo plays, um, his life, you know, in the 1933 to 34. So he's basically laundering money from like different countries, from, you know, one country to another with different relations, just working with whoever, you know, whatever ideology is you know most present in the country at the time i think he even has like a line saying as much you know like like his viewpoint is he just works with whoever is in power because that's power is you know what he's after currently it's the leftists right so the leftists are um, in power there then there's the sort of parallel track of following (laughs) trotsky living in france (laughs) kind of randomly the two strands don't really meet each other that much. No. You only have two characters, really, that right. that are in both strands. You never see Stavisky meeting Trotsky, for instance. I mean, I can't remember exactly a plot other than Belmondo as Stavisky going around with Charles Boyer yeah. as uh, a baron who's a right-wing you know, um, aristocrat, but, you know, respects Stavisky and kind of goes around with him. His, uh, his doctor friend played by Michelle Lonsdale in his <laughs> first appearance in the festival yeah, so of, far. Of a number coming up. What is he yeah. in three or four films this year? At least three. At least three. I, three. I can't even yeah. remember. I know two for sure, but three. Uh, Cause he's in, he's in this, he's in Phantom of Liberty. Oh, right. that's right. And he's in obviously at one. This is an amazing film, I think, for yeah. me. I, uh, yeah, it's really just a fan- fascinating Renee, as they all are, but in yeah. a, a different way. I mean, it's, from the it's fascinating because it is definitely a more commercial film. It's definitely one more situated in a, for starters, I think it's his first film based on an actual person, and it's not taking place in a in a sort of limbo or phantom right yeah. and i will say it's also the first one that clearly has had like money thrown behind it to some yes. degree it's the first yeah. one that seems to have like sets you know yeah. which you know i mean that's not a good thing or a bad thing i mean again there's right. wonderful i was gonna say there's wonderful like set and art design in jetem jetem um the movie mm-hmm. he made before Absolutely. this he had a weird six seven year break right. between between jetem jetem and this um but it 100 percent is a, a film that clearly is of a different immediate kind than the one you sort of immediately imagine him making. Right. Yeah. And, yet- and it is also, I think it is maybe the first Renee film that he didn't necessarily originate. I think Belmondo wanted to place Stavisky in a movie and sort of brought it to Renee. Right. Right. The, the script is written by George Simprun, who also wrote The War is Over. This is not necessarily as great as Jatem Jatem, for instance, but you have such, there is still so much mystery involved in the film purely because of how willing Rene is, is to make Stavisky both utterly charismatic presence, compelling, and also sort of a opaque character to really get in terms of traditional motivation or traditional character. You just have Belmondo being his most, most stickly charming and it's 
absolutely <laughs> compelling in every moment. <laughs> well, that uh, was what Renee explicitly said drew him to the project. And I mean, read into that how you right. want, whether that's actually true or not. But again, this sort of artifice of Stavitsky as the hustler of the grandest scale to some degree, mm-hmm. you know, of yeah. of of a white collar criminal in, in the most charismatic way. Um, yes. And that it's clearly the the artifice of that character and then on top of it Belmondo playing him is layer I can see how this would layer up into immediately something that would attract him right it it is a more than anything just a film of immense texture for me you have so many different things all coalescing to form this very beautiful thing you have of course the set designs already mentioned you have costumes designed by Yves Saint Laurent and you do, perhaps most importantly of all, you have the score by Steven Sondheim, which is just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. It's it's so different from from anything Renee has had yet, but also it kind of felt reminiscent in certain moments of a Hiroshima Mon Amour or something like that. Just yeah. the actual score. You have this certain. It just adds to the allure of the whole thing. This sort of mystery because it is so rhythmic. Yeah, and it. it has like a obviously it's a Renee film so it doesn't have you know conventional structure I mean even right. as the film is definitely more conventional than um, some other films this is one where he really like he's sort of working through like a present moment and then filtering through the memories but it, it, even then it's not in like the sort of jetem jetem way either so it is really fascinating to see this film that has such like a visible budget behind it and you know visible backing being you know filtered still through like a renee um a renee structure right i mean you just have his examinations of identity because stavisky his original name is given name sasha stavisky but then he reinvents himself after an arrest for gambling as this international financier serge alexandre and he's called most commonly alexandre through the course of the of the film you never really get a sense of why he's doing it or exactly how he's doing it. It's not, Renee is not necessarily one for minute detail in terms of that, but because you just have Belmondo going through this parade of boardrooms, of very lavish, expensive boardrooms, or or his gambling casinos, even though he's apparently been banned from every single casino on the Riviera, <laughs> you have, it, and you, and the perhaps the most telling bit of all is his love of flowers. You have, he always wears a very specific kind of flower. And in this one scene, he because he spies this necklace that he really wants to get for his wife, so he sends this enormous, almost a complete garden of pink flowers over to this woman that's sitting at, at a table. And then he manages to persuade her to give him the necklace. And also when he goes to meet his wife for the first time in a while, he while she's sleeping, he places an enormous array of white flowers into the... And you, and the way Renee just shoots it so that is as she wakes up is this long shot of her surrounded by all these flowers. It's just absolutely beautiful. And there's just so much here. It's even though it's, and you have that extending to the structure too, is even though this is very, this is mostly linear, there are these ruptures where they, that after Stavisky's death, which is in itself a mystery and Renee, preserves the mystery of course these ruptures of this investigation and you have certain people who are in the scene 
then it's going to their perspective and they're giving a testimony which often conflicts directly conflicts with, with what we're seeing now or what we're about to see or what we just saw and you have the sense of human nature just coursing through um, and it's only heightened further by the style that's just surrounding it right and then that's yeah. it's funny because this is like a quote-unquote studio movie that he would have that like if he was a classic hollywood director this would have been like his studio movie um, right and it's and it's interesting because that is such a you know renee hallmark that that there is so much artifice and there is so much ambiguity that there is so much you know almost in a way that extremely on brand for me to bring this up but almost in the way in which you know my command treats uh <laughs> treats dillinger <laughs> oh, yeah. in, in in public enemies as yeah. as yeah. almost yeah. a complete fabrication by other people um and 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 i can right. see what would draw renee so heavily um and shot by sasha verity who also mm. shot yeah. Who also shot the war is over. Who also shot everything except Jatim Jatim. Right, exactly. Right. Um, but but uh, particularly Hiroshima Monomore makes a lot of sense because even though it is not immediately in its style what you would imagine a Renee film to be, what you would imagine him to be drawn to, it it is these. I mean, he, he even adds a ellipses in the title, but it is these little ellipses of time disambiguous actions and just strange amorphous meanings in the middle of this not particularly supremely complicated thing that just needs in his influence a little bit heavier you know right yeah and the public enemies comparison though i hadn't thought of it before is just totally spot on and like the way not just like the sort of construction of these figures and like why we're even watching a movie about them, but also like the ways in which they can't resist like the areas, the Mm -hmm. venues that will get them caught eventually, you know, like Dillinger. Yeah. Like can't stop robbing banks and, you know, Stavisky can't stop like going to these (laughs) meetings and casinos. And it's just, it's like once you attain a certain level of wealth and status and power, then you know, it's the it's the maintaining it that will you know ultimately be their downfall. Right, and he and there's a scene fairly early on where they say that he basically is just going further and further into debt because of his excessive gambling and right. investments. He's just make he's just waste. He has this compulsion to waste enormous amounts right. of money like right. on the flowers, <laughs> yeah, on his the carnation that's always in his lap. All the it's just you have and there's a scene or we should mention some of the other actors who are in this. Uh, Annie Dupree plays his wife. There's also Claude Riche from Je Tem. Mm-hmm. And there's Depardieu in a one sing appearance <laughs> as this eager salesman of some sort of pregnancy. It's to, it determines like the sex of a baby inside right, the right. womb. And and just as you were saying, Stavitsky immediately is like, I'm in, you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> he, he says, uh, like, when when Depardieu offers this to sell it or something like that for this price, he says, oh, no, no, that that's way too little. <laughs> you, have, you have to be confident with, with what you're, with your, what you're selling. And you so you have the just the sense of this world that's about to collapse. And, of course, the plot is baked around this character who causes an entire way of living to essentially collapse and bring in a new French Republic 
um, because of just how connected he was with the with the I think police commissioner and other right. individuals high up in the in power. So it's the sort of and I guess th- that's partly what the Trotsky uh, thread. Not only because Stavisky was originally Russian, but mm-hmm. you have the sense of something new or something out there that's about to bring this very genteel, very heightened world to a crashing halt. Yeah. I mean, I guess it connects them in some way. Yeah. But like the fact that they both could sort of bring down a system, even though they're on completely opposite ends of it. Right. So I guess that I, I had trouble reconciling the Trotsky, you know, thread throughout the film while I was watching it. But I guess, yeah. And thinking about it more, that's sort of what I've come to is that, that's what's connecting them, even though it's not immediately apparent as as the film plays out. Right, and we should definitely mention that that Savisky also, among his many pursuits, owns a theater, and he there's a scene where he actually performs. He he volunteers to perform at an audition. He plays the specter in Girardot's Intermezzo, and so you have the, I mean, you have him literally performing as a ghost during the middle of this film and he has a continual brooding over his father's suicide and then of course he may or may not get to commit suicide right exactly so right yeah, oh, yeah. it's def- it definitely bears all the it bears many of the hallmarks of renee wall still being conventional quote unquote and yet conventional renee is more mysterious than most other filmmakers <laughs> the most experimental yeah. yeah a total a totally wonderful film i think yeah the next film up uh, is Lancelot de Locke, the 1974 film written and directed by the god Robert Bresson. Um, the god. It is uh, interestingly sort of, it's a medieval film. It's about Lancelot and Guinevere's love after the round table disbands. Right. Um, and so it's, it's interesting because in a lot of ways it's starting where uh, <coughs> it's starting where most films about that time period just end. Um, and it's, it is both very much for Bresson as well as intertextually a, a film about transitions, about times changing, about, um, I, I mean, even on a just purely Bresson level, it is it does really reach a mark of, not saying that any of his previous work was super cheery or super optimistic, but there is <laughs> his cynicism goes into almost full tilt, um, starting around here and then each progressive nice movie. What? Full tilt. Nice fun. Oh yeah, uh, um, but, but his cynicism really moves into the next gear from here on until, of course. The end of Flower Shant, which is probably oh, the yeah. bleakest which thing is... known to man. Um, <laughs> and yet, not. Anyway, it's a really, really fascinating, stunning, and obviously transcendent work. It has, over the years, like most late Brisson films, been like lost and then refound and then reclaimed. And I think it, right. it has definitely taken its position up as one of the definitive Brisson movies um, and I think I think it makes complete sense that it has taken that yeah this is uh, granted I haven't seen man, many of the earlier Brissons but for some reason this really made Brisson click for me and I of course I adore a lot of the other Brissons I've seen but this just takes it like you said to a, a whole nother level because it's so 
distinctly set in a very hermetic, very controlled, very rigid sort of world that mm -hmm. becomes undone through the actions of its characters, and it's incredibly unsparing in that regard. Yeah, I mean, and the I, movie opens with, uh, what, two, <laughs> two hanging corpses uh, right, in full right. armor, and then only goes downhill from there uh which by the There's way a lot of uh that reminds me of like monty python and the holy grail oh, yeah. I will like say, the portrayal of this yeah. period i actually was going to say terry gilliam explicitly said they all got together and watched lancelot oh, the really? <laughs> and that was where they like they got certain ideas about set dressings actually was actually entirely That's from incredible. that makes sense yeah this and Holy Grail, I think, was released the year, a year after, after, I think. Yeah. yeah, and so that totally lines And up. I know Canby mentioned, specifically mentioned that a lot of it seems similar to, like, a poking fun at a film like Lancelot du Lac. <laughs> <laughs> so, I so, feel, I, but the way that I see it is that, like, it, the Monty Python version is, it, you know, obviously it's a much more humorous version, but it seems almost more to be like reverent of this, yes, absolutely. this oh, no, way of filming the period. Yeah. Of it and he was like, yeah. he, a, a lot of, a lot of Gilly was like, like, Oh yeah. Like that's why I just put fog in every scene. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is just such a, like you said, it is definitely, it is demythifying the, the Arthurian legend. It takes place after the holy after the quest of the for the Holy Grail has ended in utter failure and a ninety percent of the round table has been killed or <laughs> has gone or like parts of all uh, another another figure who it will be the subject of a, another French filmmaker in a few years. Nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get, I don't I'm know so if excited. you guys have seen that movie. Uh, I'm so excited. Get good it. luck trying to talk about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and it, it is the so you have it taking place after that quest, and the and just the after you after the hanging bodies you mentioned, there are just these scenes of of just unsparing, very ugly violence. You have a sort of a head being crushed by a sword. You have an actual decapitation. Uh, the and you have just piles of corpses that the all of these horses ride by and there is no real no tangible honor or glory to be found right there's no find, reference yeah. for for the deeds done there right. is no it, you, you referred to it as a demythologizing and it feels almost so much more harsh than that it yeah, is yeah, a complete true. destruction of <laughs> right. of um you know i mean i mean it, the whole movie is an ode to the futility of man's <laughs> need to conquest of, you know, of, of, I mean, masculinity on a larger scale, but imperialism of a very particular kind. And, and the movie is so unsparing in that it is so clear with that. And it's, it's interesting to see Brisson work almost in like that clear of a messaging in terms of his angle because mm -hmm. it is it is i mean usually he's a little it's i don't want to say he's he's never coded he's very clear he's very clear-eyed it's just he's never he never until this point had never chosen a material like this so right. to see him to see him be looking at this it's astonishing and and just absolutely it beats you down i mean it's 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 a movie of bodies and uh, dilapidated interiors and mm -hmm. people 
whose best days are behind them and they very well know it. Um, yeah. and, and even the very good things in the world that exist for them will not exist for long. Yeah. And it's like maybe just in terms of like a pure sort of camera action, like just on those sorts of levels, not the filmmaking itself. It's the clunkiest person. It's like the least sort of, you know, the sort of precision that maybe he's known for with his other films. This one feels a bit more like on the ground. That's true. Sort of, no, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's like a sort of boots to the ground Brisson in a way that his other films really aren't in a lot of ways. Well, I think it's maybe more that he's, there is very little room for variance yeah. in this. I mean, you have him use the exact same neigh for the horse, this exact same sound every single time a horse neighs, <laughs> and you just have the same sound of armor. It's the Wilhelm cl- neigh. <laughs> <laughs> the same clanking of the armor over and over again. And I think, but I find the way that he deploys it very telling, even because it's about the change. You still have the materials, the raw materials, the same faces over and over again. I think that's really telling. You just have a sense of how weathered everything is, how much, how far from grandeur everything is now. You have Lancelot, the most famed knights of King Arthur's. His the actor that plays him, his face is just so weathered and worn down after all the horror that he's seen and has presumably committed as well. And it's just, and even the act, the action especially is very deliberately unexciting. Yeah, really. it's it's that's what I meant by it's it's funny to watch him work in this mode because it is the violence is so clear-eyed and there's no excitement. It's funny to think of like people who try to say that inherently violence on screen will always be exciting to some degree, and it's like right, you should yeah. watch Lancelot de Locke. Like that is a movie that has. <laughs> no joy and it is just it is just (laughs) the mechanisms of time and the mechanisms of fate as in a lot of Brisson movies just bearing down on people um Mm -hmm. people who even at a certain point in the movie Lancelot is trying to do well and immediately kills his friend uh you know I mean it's 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 off screen too off screen right and and again his sorrow then like is is used as a device moving forward but again it is a it's a film of of such despair of transition but not one of hope right and and it's fascinating to 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 just watch him chronicle the sort of clearly like it's it's dumb to say end of an era because it's just death it's it's death the movie is in some ways death incarnate which it's final two shots could not perfectly more encapsulate yeah. Um, just of a riderless horse just moving away as yeah. as Lancelot staggers into a, a mount of corpses, including of King Arthur's, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and and then disappears among them. He say, he says yes. Genevieve's yeah. name, then uh, falls into them, and even by the time the shot ends, he's disappeared into that mound of bodies, and they're nothing. Right. They're nothing right. other than yeah. the little tiny crown. To denote Arthur's uh, to Arthur's dead body, there's yeah. nothing that differentiates any of them. And then, above them, a like lone crow, a buzzard. I'm not even sure what, but I think it might be even just a a, a crow or a hawk 
flying above them in this mm. hazy, moody sky. Um, and and it, it's such a it's funny because it's it is this movie a hundred percent of like okay it textually what's happening and then like again through the auteurist lens what's happening with with him he's coming off of Four Nights of a Dreamer and he's coming off of Infem Deuce um, and he's really just moving into this entire other section of his career with his last two films of The Devil Probably and L'Argent which. It, other than Lancelot the Lock, are probably the two most despairing movies he ever made. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Evan Morgan, previous guest in front of the pod, he mentioned to me that that Brisson is perhaps the easily the most teleological filmmaker that I can think of. Just moving towards an endpoint, and you definitely feel that. It's funny to just think of about the action because there are two scenes of sort of action in. Uh, in Four Nights of Dreamer and Infam Deuce, and both of them are filmed in that very restrained, very unexciting way. The Hamlet uh, stage performance in mm-hmm. Infam Deuce and the sort of quasi-action film in Four Nights of a Dreamer that is just shot in the most mm-hmm. un- unexciting way possible. And you just... And it, I, I do find it fascinating that of the Brissons that I've seen, this is actually has probably the most dialogue. Yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. it is the most talky of his movies, short of uh, another movie set in a moderately similar time period, The Trial of Joan of Arc. Um, right. That's his only other movie, which which uh, even gets sort of close in terms of just how much people are talking, and that's because in The Trial of Joan of Arc, it's a trial. Um, right. But but uh, I do think that there is actually some energy linking between those two movies because in the earlier section of his career he is with the oppressed rather than the oppressor um there is you know i mean again he's he's working in a man escaped it's not really right to call the main character pickpocket like the oppressed but he is certainly a lonely outcast Mm. in the same way that the priest is in diary of a country priest and the way in which all the main characters are in ahazard balthazar and mouchette um, right. And it's interesting to just watch him change to, okay, what if I made like the trial of Joan of Arc, but it's about the men, you know, and, and, yeah. and what, yeah, yeah. what is that dominant type of structure, societal structure lead to? Where is it that end point of that? Where is it? Where does that lead people? And, and I mean, how, how great is it to choose? I mean, even just conceptually, how incredible is it to choose be like okay so here's what happens after they search for the holy grail you know i mean it is it is it seems both like stunningly obvious uh and yet at the same time watching him work through it is so brilliant and it's funny because it's just like this movie brings me a lot of joy but it's endlessly despairing (laughs) but it's just like i love Brisson so much that it is it is shocking to just Every Brisson is a rare, wonderful beast, and this is one of the strangest. One of the rarest and most wonderful, oh, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, and you, I, I find the character of Guinevere really fascinating in this context because her romance with with Lancelot, even though it is, of course, very much dooms, and you can almost send, you can the first conversation between them is literally him choosing his vows, his convictions and his sense of honor over over their romance and you have an actual scene of them basically tumbling in the hay even though it's not if it's not a sex scene or anything like that but you have a genuine you have you know this certain carnal sort of desire present which i find i think 
it really s- sticks out in Brisson for for some reason because even say Fortnite is a dreamer. I don't think he has a hug. You just have very a very strong sense of this thing that is doomed, that is going to be wiped out, and is wiped out by the actual people involved rather than the than the outside forces. So the outside forces cause that, of course. Right, and and I think if I again I mentioned the opening scene and I mentioned the closing scene. I think this movie has due to really wonderful bookends of it is this very much a rotting flesh. It is a movie about yes. about bodies, about people being weathered, about time changing people and destroying people and beating them down. And in so many ways that's true, but again, it's it's so perfectly encapsulated in their relationship specifically of even something that seems as though it might contain something positive, it just disintegrates and and is so f- fatal uh, in, in both a literal and non-literal sense, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and of course it's just so tied to the rituals, the things that they go through and like the just the mechanical closing of visors that he just intercuts so rapidly. I find just the way he edits, especially in this film, really, really varied, very propulsive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he just holds on a shot for 30 seconds where the, the shot where um, Gavan is walking back into the castle after Lancelot has returned. He just holds as Gavan walks slowly into the doorway and sometimes he cuts so so quickly and and he reuses the same sequence of this bagpipes player at the tournament over and over again so <laughs> it you just have a sense so much and i lo- i also love just his image making his sometimes the shots can arise out of nowhere like this close up of the lance as it's going in du- dueling it's not necessarily exciting in the conventional sense of of the word but i i find it really just in fully integrated into the texture yet it b- carries its own resonance i mean this is the man who shot the insert shots for pickpocket you know i mean right. it is he he does work in such a specific register and his editing is of such a one with his whole filmography um, even as he changes his editing obviously is consistently better than anyone who ever did it so it it, it is such a it, again it's it's it is a movie of such physicality of such force of bodies of objects of metal uh yeah. and <laughs> lots of metal <laughs> lots of lots of metal you know um it makes hard to be a god look like a pillow fight you know I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's it, it is brutal through rather than uh, you know overindulging or rather than extreme adornment, just by looking at it with clear eyes, with with a directness that is so unparalleled in cinema that it it is such a portrait of despair and and the end in in every every way that you could use that capitalized phrase, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just a... (laughs) Just so utterly astonishing even if you've seen other brissons it there's no real way yeah, of preparing for it nothing yeah. really prepares you for this i think yeah. it's just it is it's just a total act of despair <laughs> <laughs> i 
welcome back. Uh, so the first is part of a sort of double bill that was in the festival. A um, feature and B feature. A, yeah, A feature, B, both. The main feature is quite a bit shorter, and then the second feature is you know, under an hour. Uh, the first one is another film from Alexander Kluga, um, who we've seen before a couple of times. This is part-time work of a domestic slave, um, a film about as subtle as its title. <laughs> uh, I, enjoy, it, I enjoy that you described uh, Alexander Kluge the way you would describe like, seeing an extra on the street. Like, yeah. oh, we've seen him. We've seen him around. <laughs> I, he started out very, you know, I enjoyed Yesterday was, Girl. Yeah, I'm or, surprised you liked Yesterday Girl as, as much as you did considering yeah, I was very to interested in that, interests. and then it really just takes a big <laughs> dive uh, into really just things I don't enjoy in cinema. So, speaking of which, <laughs> time work of a domestic slave uh, stars. Uh, his sister, uh, Alexandra Kluga. Which, uh, by the way, again. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but who does that? Alexander yeah. Kluga, Alexandra <laughs> Kluga. Like, I feel like it maybe accounts even, for a lot of I can't even be like, oh, they're too cute because they're too. German. It's not cute. It's just annoying. No. Anyway. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know. I can't even think no. of a, an equivalent now. But um, yeah, so Kluga stars as, uh, as the sort of titular domestic slave, uh, if you will. Uh, she's the the wife of a researcher yeah, a chemist a chemist yeah uh as we we're told through very very uh spot on voiceover <laughs> voiceover that clearly articulates exactly what's happening yeah. on screen um and due to i guess their sort of financial situation she has to perform abortions and we have to see them in in full detail um and eventually she sort of moves into this uh, radicalism almost yeah. um, of very, very, very ambiguous <laughs> nature. I, I honestly can't even tell you what this movie, besides a sort of maybe vague notion of, I don't know, women's liberation as like what the it would be described of as at the time, I really can't tell you what this film is trying to go for uh it's so yeah it's just completely incoherent to me basically. that's what i it, that's what was really strange to me about it was that it like first of all its first half is actually pretty clearly established it's just bad yeah, uh, yeah. dramatically oh, yeah. it's it is literally like one of those things where it's like i'm being feminist by putting a female character through a ton of shit you know yes. and you're like each scene is almost i mean like, it, comically worse than the last right and it (laughs) just you know sticks the needle even further by having the voiceover that's clearly articulates every single thing that she has to do as you watch it yeah it's 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 such this weirdly specific voiceover that is looking to like categorize and simplify everything yeah um in a way that sort of I think the movie would work a lot better without it, but whatever, that's his style. Um, and again, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, like five minutes into the movie, you get like an extremely graphic abortion scene with like yep. a, a, you literally see like clamps entering a vagina, then you see them pull a thing out and it's like a rubber, it, it's like rubber. It looks almost like if someone were to make like a novelty 
gummy <laughs> uter- like fetus as like a joke. Yeah. It's it, a Mardi it's, Gras baby. Right, right <laughs> basically, basically. Um, and it's and it's so it's so trying to be uns- it's trying to be clear and unsparing. We're just talking about how like that is exactly what Lancelot the Lock is. This is the sort of reverse side of it where where it's it's desperation almost to seem mm-hmm. real and it's desperation to see f- feel valid feels almost like a joke um yeah. of of you know she comes home after performing abortions all day and her husband is the most comically bad husband um of just like literally like they're like six they're like six kids and they're just all crawling everywhere and she's trying to handle it and like he's like i'm doing a crossword you know and it's it's like and it's like okay can we please dial it back like a little bit it's it's a little ridiculous sometimes on just a dramatic sense of it's like this hyper contrast black and white you're dealing with this really specific issue you try to deal with it very clearly and and i appreciate that on some level of course but it also is like within the context of the movie you have to realize how quickly in the first like 10 or 15 minutes this starts to turn into again it, it's so self-serious that it almost feels like it's joking to because it, it so immediately is you almost want to say facile which is weird because yeah. it's not like his camera work is stupid or silly or unintelligent even but the, the, the immediate drama of the situation is so simple that it feels silly almost yeah I mean yeah it does seem like sort of the the easiest possible option for all of these issues that you know Kluga is kind of diving headfirst into it's just you know like the first half is yeah the sort of yeah, comic representation of like you know oppression in the home i mean you know just like seen from the title and i guess the second half would then be the sort of part-time work where she you know goes into this comic representation of like the other side of that of this sort of vague undefined radicalism that is just you know inherently sort of messy and like um nobody really knows what they're doing necessarily uh but it is at the same time i guess it's exhilarating i mean i guess that's what is he's pulling out of it but it just seems like yeah just right so facile there's there's something so interesting about the movie is just complete shift because just to be a little bit yeah. more clear about it about halfway through the movie her abortion clip gets shut down and while she avoids charges her husband ends up having to go to prison for a day and so he has to get a job da, 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 da. Um, and so basically she sort of decides okay I'm quitting doing that and I'm going to be an activist as full time as possible um, and, and again from that point on it sort of turns into this weird version of like ice by Robert Kramer, where it's literally all about like discussions of labor activism. But I can't even with, with Kluga, I can't even tell whether or not he is mortified by their like constant sort of vaguely bourgeois hand wringing over about how they deal with these subjects. Or if he, if he really is taking these at face value, it's just such a, it's a, it's, it's lacking any sort of like through line and clarity 
um, right. with with how we're supposed to approach the material. It's not that it's not that the material is unclear or whatever. It's just when you right. assemble all these things in this order and are placing it around this woman who basically by the back end of the movie gets mostly neutralized. Um, she's, she sort of becomes a passive figure in this movie, which again, you can absolutely read into as part of the movie's structural effect that again, she's displaced from her, from her own home and, and made a passive figure in her own home. And so she goes to try to create that and she's turned passive again in like a political, a political way. But again, the movie is not, does not feel as though it's of a strong conviction that that is what's happening. Yeah, um, and absolutely. not and not that I need my hand held about that type of thing, but it is it's such an attempt at this like social realism that like you see one too many close ups of like a kid with a dirty face, and it's yeah. and it's and it's just like it it feels like someone making a joke of a Sajid Ray film or or you know yeah. or any any sort of movie of, of someone who who cares about the working class and I, I know Kluke is politics I know he is a I know he is a big um, disciple of Adorno and, and, and I know yeah. that there's like there's clearly so much thought put into this but I can't help if I'm just missing a lens or missing a filter to see the way in which this isn't as simple as it seems in, in at least its conception I'm a, a lot more positive on it than than you two. Though I think it is the weakest of the Klugos that we've seen thus far. I do find a lot to latch onto in Alexandra Kluga's performance, which is of this very iron-willed woman, and her presence I, I find very compelling. I do think that there is this sort. I, I I am missing some of the sort of digressions and insertions that gave, or stylistic variances that gave Fiesta Girl or artist under the big top perplexed a lot of its energy and and more theoretical insight but aside from this aside from a brief showing of paintings of the story in the bastille I, don't, I didn't really see any much of a utility to the actual insertions that being said i did find the general arc especially because of how much attention is paid to the to abortion as both profession as clandestine profession and a sort of revolutionary acts quite important to the development of the film because it my interpretation for lack of a better term was just the way that a person a woman specifically committing radical actions behind closed doors is now thrust into the real world and how that how she deals with it in that so i find the just maybe the politics of it the or the cert even though it does end on a hopeful note the just parade of difficulties that just are just thrown up in our way, maybe a little bit overbearing, and especially the domestic space. I don't think meant most of the. I think most of the domestic scenes don't really work, but I like the voiceover also. <laughs> I, I find I find it just gives the the proceedings that sort of clinicism that I think works well for for Kluga. And I and for the record, I felt the the abortion scene was a lot less graphic than I expected. Uh, for some reason, like maybe it was just how matter-of-factly he filmed it, but I, I, for some reason, it didn't really shock me. It doesn't shock me. There's, yeah. I've seen, I've seen 
more graphic abortion scenes than others. Um, yeah. I, I mean, again, it is nice to see some level of accurate representation. But then, of course, immediately after her character, the main character played by Alexandra Kluge, what's Ross Witha? Ross Witha? Yeah, Ross Witha. Yeah. Uh, she drops the forceps on the fetus, um, <laughs> like physically just like lets go of them. And then before she unstraps the the woman yeah. she literally goes and like takes a sip of her coffee and is like walking That's around true. the surgery room yeah. and so i can't tell like I'm, i can't tell if this was just his idea of naturalism or is he trying to make some comment about how passively and regularly this is for her and, and if so what are you trying to say about this character what are you trying to say about you know abortionists at large you know then then i'm sort of like it's missing it's missing some sense of I mean, again, in a festival that is so full of, and it's not his fault. He didn't know he'd be playing alongside these films. But <laughs> yeah. in a in a in a festival full of so many movies with such clear, delineated internal logic, this is a movie that's seemingly bereft of any. You know that that it's know, that it is continually making choices that feel arbitrary, which is so yeah. funny because it's mm. so clear that that's not. That's clearly not the case. He is clearly an intelligent right. person. He clearly has a particular way of processing and developing his material. It's just it, for this and what he's trying to get out of this, it either feels incoherent or the stuff that does make sense feels very facile. Like particularly there's there's an arc about halfway through the movie where it's very clear that like her actions will explicitly likely cause the loss of her husband's job and while that is like mm. interesting it's also like very facile and even by yeah, the I, 70s yeah, well-worn territory about like yeah. activism and like the you know the the repercussions of activism you know that it feels like either i'm missing something which i'm completely open to or there's just like i know he's smarter than this yeah i agree there is definitely it is definitely the case where I find the overall arc and the just the way it develops pretty strong, and a lot a lot of the details do feel a little vague, or they feel they feel half formed. Yeah. So yeah, there, it yeah. is it is frustrating, but I also liked just the just where it goes and how um, it generally goes about it. Yeah, I mean, I think he is yeah sort of smarter than a lot of what the way the film plays out lets on. He's just not a better filmmaker than that. <laughs> maybe. Maybe what I found. The B feature on this billing was a film very sadly we were unable to see. Claude Chabrol's The Bench of Desolation, which was part of a TV series of Henry James adaptations. This is of the story of the same name from 1909, so one of James's later. It, it's basically, it's 52 minutes and about a woman in the, in 1890s England and the from I haven't read the story myself but the the story is apparently marked largely by a mood of gloom that intensifies as the misery of the protagonist's life becomes more protracted which I mean (laughs) sounds exactly like Chabrol to me and apparently also has a performance of not starring certainly a performance by Michelle Piccoli so it sounds very promising. This would have actually been my first Chabrol film, and I am oh, uh, wow. I am upset Bro. that this is not it. But yeah, me and go, him go for, shall meet another day. Yeah, go for, go for Le Boucher. That's a great introduction. Uh, just a 
incredibly entertaining film. Unfortunately, there are no subtitles for this one, so we shall see Shabu again later down the line. The next film is another one we were unable to see, another uh, TV film from Italy. This is Miklos Jansko's Rome Wants Another Caesar, and uh, the copy reads... Highly ritualistic, like Red Psalm, Miklos Jansko's newest film is set at the end of the Roman Republic. The rhetoric of his style fits beautifully the rhetorical Romans, while the deserts of Tunisia are a welcome change from the great Hungarian plain. The problem that torments his young heroes, you want to be a just Caesar, I dream of a world without Caesars, is far from being a purely historical one. A choreographic essay on power in which ceremonial movement buttresses logical argument hypnotic compelling and more than a little mysterious with daniel olbrichewski and hiram killer i'm curious to see yancho in a different sort in a different setting uh, but unfortunately i don't think this, this one has this one does not have subtitles either so i will i will say this does not have subtitles i did still watch about 20 minutes of this just uh-huh. out of pure curiosity uh as i like the nicholas Jansko films i've seen um and it is it is both gorgeous and very in tune with his camera and its relationship with power with social structures but obviously the insights i could glean from it were limited by the fact that it is in a language i don't speak yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah the reviews at the time were not kind to it but they i don't think they liked red Sami there and that's fantastic so who knows the next first time in a while that we've had such a a full-on program but this is a program called roots both features and shorts or none of the features are more than 50 minutes. Medium length. Medium length, yeah. featurettes, yeah. And they're all documentaries, all American documentaries, and all about the contributions of many ethnic strands to the fabric of American life. And the copy also says they're affectionate, but never merely nostalgic. These films explore through documentary methods the preoccupation with our past that has dominated recent American filmmaking. And the first one we were unable to see uh, UD by Mirabank, which runs only, I think, 10 minutes. So um, for, I think that it actually played at Metrograph in the Tell Me Women Filmmakers series. I was going but, to say, yeah, um, personal friend and I guess friend of the podcast, Kristen Sunyu Kim, yeah. saw it and really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm, I'm frustrated that this was the one that we were unable to see. It's about Jewish heritage. And yes. it would have been very interesting. Uh, On our Jewish alas, grandmother. Yeah, 20 minutes, sorry. Definitely sounds interesting, but unable to catch it. And uh, one of the more medium-length ones uh, was directed by Martha Coolidge. It's called An Old-Fashioned Woman. Martha Coolidge also Also. directed Real Genius and Valley Girl, and also Not a Pretty Picture, uh, which played at Anthology, I think, recently. Heard good things about it. Uh, So it profiles her grandmother, was it Mabel Coolidge? Yes. Yeah. Um, And... You know, basically, it feels like a you know a visit to a grandparent's house. It's not. I wouldn't say it's much more than that. Although it is, for what that is, it is somewhat enjoyable. It's interesting to hear. Uh, so they're vaguely they're like fourth cousins of Cal, you know the president Calvin Coolidge, and her grandfather was the lieutenant governor yes. of uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Yeah. 
and then lots of Boston accents in this, yeah. or Massachusetts accents. And Not then the, the grandmother, uh, former, you know, lieutenant, first lady to the state, <laughs> something like second that. lady. They second said, lady, yeah, something, yeah like something, something equivalent. And um, basically, she kind of like Martha Coolidge is sort of asking her uh, about her opinions on the changes, uh, you know, that are going on in the seventies. And she basically very matter of factly, you know, says, yeah, life was, life was quite different when I lived, you know, she is uh, a very, very, uh, she's a white woman who's had a very lucky life. So, you know, she can, she can kind of talk about the old days very differently than many, many other people's grandparents would be able to. Um, and, but, you know, she kind of just talks about it and she gives sort of plainly approving, um, vaguely progressive, vaguely progressive. Yeah. yeah. Well, Pro- you know, progressive causes yeah. Yeah. she very plainly approves of, although she's not uh, entirely passionate about them. Right. Um, other, I mean, otherwise I can't really remember it's, too yeah, much of the film. It's just of that it's a profile basically i think truly the perfect example of white privilege is being allowed to make a movie like this and think it's interesting (laughs) (laughs) it is is, well i'm sure her grandmother was a very important person to her right um nothing of what is interesting about this person really comes through I, i mean again her her insights range from things you would read in a greeting card to uh, more somber thoughts like, uh, this is a quote, growing old is disappointing because you can't do the things you once used to. And it's yeah. presented as with yeah. as if this sort of almost like, uh, again, you I mean, you refer to it as a, a, a visit to a grandparent's house, and it very much is that, but it is, there's nothing interesting happening in the tension between her Martha Coolidge, who constantly appears on screen asking questions. There's right. nothing about her point of view of the way she's asking her questions that's interesting. She has this very, very, if you thought the Kluge had very surface level observations <laughs> oh. in its voiceover. Oh, God. This one has, there's literally a line that is, my, my gr- grandmother represents the past to me. And it's like, yeah. it's like, come on, what are we, what are we doing here? Um, it is a extended portrait of someone who I'm sure is an interesting person and I'm sure there is a movie about her that could be made that is interesting this is not that Um, and I will say I I know you guys mildly enjoyed it I found it really just it was pleasant enough I yeah. it found it deeply a waste of my time and and <laughs> I will say that if you want an example uh, and it's really it is really sad because this Mirabank the other female filmmaker in this in this New York Film Festival we can't see it so this was actually the only movie directed by a woman that we were able to watch for this festival and mm-hmm. that's deeply depressing and it's and it's frustrating <laughs> that it's like this is what made it to New York Film Festival. Um, I will say, if you want to see a movie that is similar, um, very similar in its perspective, very similar in its POV, um, but doing much more interesting things, there's a movie from 1982 by Camille Billups. Uh, It's called Suzanne Suzanne. And it's a movie about her mother, her grandmother, and herself 
and these three generation of women dealing with the men in their lives, dealing with particularly her father who was abusive, it takes on a more specific point of view, it interrogates, it actually gets experimental, it tries to figure out different ways to talk and represent about the past and about family history in ways that are not just zoom-ins of family photos. Um, and, and I don't mean to be so disparaging about this movie, but it is really like, this is, a, this is something that a high school student would make uh, mm. for, for their class of make a, make a documentary about a relative you like. You yeah. know, and, and, yeah. and the difference between that and this is, is so small. And there's right. so much great work being made that it is frustrating that this is what made it to the festival. Yeah. yeah Suzanne I Suzanne played in Tell Me also, right? I, think I believe played. I believe it played that I saw at um, the BAM series program by Nellie Killian of independent black filmmaker black women oh, gotcha. filmmakers. Um, oh, and it is extraordinary if you ever get the chance to see it. It is an astonishing, wonderful film. Exactly the type of film that I mean, it was it wasn't made when when this movie was right. out, so right. it's not like they could have replaced it or whatever. But it is exactly the type of movie that should be being made in place of this, you know, and 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 the type of film that could be propped up but isn't. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what the production circumstances for this were, because I could very easily see it, you know, coming out of like an MFA program or you know yeah. some like educational or something, or or yeah, a grant, a yeah. historical society yeah. grant or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I could even see like the state of Massachusetts, like yeah, <laughs> you know, like an endowment for the arts or something. Right. Like that that, that you know, sounds about you right. know some sort of context there, because it's it's such a it doesn't even yeah the fact that it is so surface level sort of makes it seem like it isn't even necessarily coming from like an inherent desire to right. like film uh, yeah. my grandmother it i feel seems like it's like the connections maybe yeah it's just brought it there's fruition. there are potentially interesting things but there's not really an elaboration on them yeah. like the like for instance she mentions that there a lot of her close relatives died in a like the span of three years or something like that, or that she had a strong passion for photography and you see a lot of her photographs, but it doesn't really elaborate on those or pursue them in a in- interactive way. Yeah. So it's, right. It's, there's no, it's just there's there. no interrogation. There's not even a creating of a circumstance that could lead to the type of discussion you right. might want to hear. There's even a point where she says that uh, I forget who in her life taught her this, but she was like, it's the job of us as women to go and brighten the corners you live in. And I thought that was such Mm -hmm. an interesting thought about a view of domesticity. And it is talked about not at all. She sees it as this nice, sweet little thought that might hang over a stove or something like that. Um, Maybe crochet. A lot of this is like, yeah, sort of uh, like kitchen towel sayings. Right. And, and, And it's like there's a genuine interesting thought there about... 20th century femininity about about how that changed about a, a politician a woman who has access to some level of power and there's just there's no questions about it there's no interrogation of it there's no even setting up to be anything that really yields anything other than just these anecdotes that just end eventually yeah, yeah. the next film in this roots program. It was a film from William Greaves 
Uh, he is the director of Symbiocytaxoplasm, take one. And actually, as I did not know until researching this, uh, an extensive amount of documentary and mm-hmm. educational films um, that this is feels as though it is part of a series of, um, it is about the Harlem Renaissance that happened primarily in the 20s and 30s in Harlem, New York. Um, Greaves himself, which this is not mentioned in the film, but Greaves himself was born in Harlem in 1926. So while it's never explicitly stated through the text, this is very clearly a direct lineage to the world he grew up in, the environment, the artistic uh, world and culture and neighborhood that, that he grew up in. It is an essay film told exclusively through still photos, mainly from uh, the collection of James Vanderzee, who was a photographer uh, and an, an important cultural figure in this movement. It's such an interesting film because it, it, it is an essay film closer to like Chris Marker or Night and Fog in, 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 immediate, <laughs> yeah. in an immediate stylistic way where you have these really interesting historical documents, but then you have these really extremely highly editorialized voiceover reading over it. So again, I, I said the first thing I, I noticed about it was the way in which, when talking about the black community, William Greaves, who wrote the voiceover explicitly, the voiceover explicitly says, we, 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 when talking about the, the black community and the community of Harlem. And it is so refreshing and yeah. so intelligent to hear documentaries used in this way of, of, of speaking as an authority of speaking with some level of confidence and speaking with some level of ownership. Again, it, it, it almost feels like an educational film that's like a teacher would roll in a TV and throw on, except about halfway through the movie, it just starts berating white people for cultural <laughs> appropriation, which yeah, it should right. when you're in the context of the, in the context of what the film is talking about. You know, it, it, it feels almost as though this sort of PBS level documentary but you start getting these really really interesting zooms and uh, there's a reading of the poem minstrel man by langston hughes um there's there's a there's such a attention to detail of the way he'll describe the cotton club but explicitly refer to it as one of those venues made by black people to be enjoyed by white people right and and it's and it's such a smart, incisive. What's it? Thirty minutes. Um, you know, it's such a smart, incisive collapsing of this super important time that you know had so many important people: Bill Robinson, Joseph Baker, Duke Ellington, Langston Hughes. All of these people, all of these poets, writers, all living within, you know, with two square miles of each other. Um, and and it is such a lightly poetic, furious but never uninformative document um, right. that, that is just so fascinating. And, and of this section, this was, of this, of this program, this was my favorite. It wasn't quite my favorite, but I think it's definitely one of the discoveries of this festival yeah, for me, so. uh, the way From These Roots manages to get to so many different aspects of what the Harlem Renaissance is while including all of this context that is necessary for understanding how this movement came up. It's almost seems more like uh, on on the so- socio-political issues surrounding it rather than the actual 
art itself, though the art itself is intrinsically political because yeah. of the context in which it's brought up. And it begins with the after this mention of invocation of the of the returning black soldiers from World War One. It begins with this very abbreviated yet very important portrait of the more privileged people in Harlem and the sort of upper class and how that was entirely unrepresentative of what the standard of living, the the actual black experience um, in t- in terms of the average resident um, in Harlem, how, how that was. And that it was yeah. a more, it was a, and you can sort of see how he's, the actual decade of the 70s isn't explicitly mentioned, but you get the sense of this history that is still reverberating from the 20s into yeah. uh, 50 years later. Yeah. It's, it's really it's really evocative in that way. And it's only heightened further by, it's narrated by Brock Peter, who was the the doomed man in To Kill a Mockingbird, the film adaptation, and play Jack Johnson, one of the one of the key key figures. Um, and he and he's the one who gives the the voiceover at the end of Miles Davis's Jack Johnson. So and uh, has yeah. that exact he maintains that exact Stenorian yet authoritative yet oddly poetic um, manner that he speaks in through the, throughout the entire thing. Honestly, parts of it, the way he delivered it honestly reminded me of Wells's narration in The Magnificent Ambersons. It's that <laughs> level of trying to evoke a certain time period and he really is a vital part of this of this film. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like a sort of a th- authoritative voiceover, but it's It's more, not didactic. N- yeah, 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 definitely. And more used to sort of bring out, uh, like, bring out a life to these photos that could be presented in, you know, a very different context and for a very different effect and you know the way that the film is unafraid to go into you know to show photos of lynchings and to show photos uh, you know like to acknowledge the renaissance in harlem and to acknowledge the you know artistic you know flourishings and you know the black life and community there but you know always showing that these what was happening on the other side of that was always happening and you know no matter the period and yeah so i i think it's a really, yeah, for a film that just shows what's almost like a slideshow presentation almost, it's it's really astonishing. Right, and there's definitely limitations to it. There's a part where he's yeah. talking about Marcus Garvey, and mm. clearly there's only one photo of the James Van Der Zee collection of Marcus Garvey because they zoom in on it like seven times. Uh, <laughs> and it is like, okay, obviously, inherently, there are going to be limitations to this format when you're basically using mostly one source, which is what most right. of these photos are from. And you're trying to have this long discussion about something. Obviously, there are going to be some limitations of this. That being said, again, it's, the voiceover is so evocative. The it's it's so willing to go places that it doesn't feel like there is space for in what we understand as documentary or what we understand as an educational film. There's a line that I wrote down about they were talking about black performers. This is before he transitions into um, the poem Minstrel Man by Langston Hughes, which is a, a wonderful poem. But he said a line which I wrote down, which is that they paid a good amount of money to extract our humor from us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and it is just a line that I was not prepared to hear from this film, you know, and, and, and I'm so glad I did, and it is so demonstrative of precisely the mode it's working in, and the 
the honesty and the clarity and the uh, not too heavily underline the date that this was recorded, but we are recording this the day after Green Book won Best <laughs> yeah. Picture. And, and again, to go back 45 years and hear someone talk about this this authoritatively is so refreshing and so and so wonderful and it's great to see an artist like William Graves who maybe should have had more doors open in his career still using spaces that he can to make really uncompromising and fascinating uh, and potent work yeah and I mean, just to sort of talk about it, maybe another contemporary um, and an Oscar film too uh, is you know if the photos that appear in If Beale Street Could Talk is what I thought of when I originally saw this as like a way of pairing these images that will contextualize you know in that case a, a different sort of story and a different era of Harlem, but you know at the same time it has a sort of almost a sort of lineage with this film of being sort of almost fifty years being made almost 50 years after the you know photos are coming from and really just at least it helped me reconcile like having the photos in um beale street that it helped me see i think the vision of it a bit more mm-hmm. and i think the even though it is probably largely due to just the production process the, the limitations of it and yet i feel like the image is because it is so limited to these it emerges as its own sort of iconicity and and one's own means of representing where one is coming from i i think it really gets at that core at that at exactly what you can do with what very little means that you've been given i find it very potent in that regard and the that the film ends with this reinvocation of african culture the african con- continent culture and back to Again, the the literal roots is, I think, a very telling move and a very important one for just contextualizing this whole movement, which just this whole movement, which is reflective of so much more. Right. And and a lesser filmmaker makes this movie and is saying, I was born in Harlem in 1926. (laughs) This art had, yeah, yeah, (laughs) there's me in that photo. You know, it is so, it is such a work of pride and such a work of admiration without ever saying that once uh and it is and it is the work of of a really intelligent filmmaker even if its packaging quite isn't immediately the most adorned i haven't seen symbiopsychotax pleasant and of course i've heard it's very different rips definitely this should be seen more yeah, because I've heard nothing yeah. about well, it. Well, yeah, and it is available on archive.org. Yeah, albeit yes. with the interested. sort of warped music that yeah. seems some of the films on archive.org have for yeah. copyright well, reasons or yeah, something. Yeah, they have to. Yeah, well, bless them for that. It was a real surprise. And then the final film in this program is from a you know probably the most widely known director maybe in the whole lineup <laughs> of these films. Yes. Which is uh, Martin Scorsese's 49, 40. Yeah, 49-minute documentary, Italian-American, which really, I mean, it's not terribly different from the Martha Coolidge film. It's just so much better. Yeah, well, the main difference is that it profiles his parents, who are just, you know, (laughs) two incredibly charismatic... (laughs) Raconteurs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Just, you know, watching them together is, you know... 
compelling in its own right. Watch like just imagining sort of their, I mean, not even imagining, but just seeing the dynamics of their marriage, um, watching them with their son on their own, just watching them on their own. It's pretty restrained. It's not like a vanity project. I mean, and Scorsese doesn't even, it's not a point in his career where he could make this as a sort of vanity Correct. project. He's really... This he's is really, pre his first Oscar movie, Alice right, doesn't live here exactly. anymore. Right. So, you know, I mean, he's really making it to, I think, maybe in a way sort of similar to Greaves, will profile his his neighborhood of New York through this very personal connection, although Scorsese is quite a bit more explicit about, you know, his own connection there. Right. Right. To paint a picture real quick, those of you who've seen Goodfellas, which if you have, if you are listening to this podcast, I would guess you probably have, um, (laughs) Joe Pesci's mother uh, is played by Scorsese's mother. Scorsese's mother. Right. So it's it's her and then Scorsese's father who basically talks like Roger Marks. Right. Um, And Scorsese's father is making the pasta sauce in prison in Goodfellas. Right. right, right, And this film starts with his mother making pasta sauce. It starts with the, there's a dinner with it and it ends with the actual recipe. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It ends with the actual recipe, which is a nice touch. But I mean, again, it is so, this is what I meant when I was sort of getting at the Martha Coolidge film was that it's like, it's not necessarily that the interview needs to, the interviewer needs to provoke or confront certain things it's just creating that space the only time you really hear Scorsese have any actual input is just at the beginning when the movie's sort of setting its parameters and she's just like what do you want me where do you want me to look you want me to look at the camera you want me to look at you what do you want and other than including this little bit of nice little framing for what this project is Scorsese is not a really active contributor in this at all. He's, he's more just present. He spends most of the time just sitting on the couch and maybe even like groaning. Right, and well, like groaning or laughing at the shit. Yeah. It's for a, great, right. for a great bounce board, I think. I, I do, I do really like this film, and I, for some reason, I think it's just because it feels so lively because it it knows exactly what it can do in the because I think. If I'm not mistaken, unless there is some foolery around, I think it's done. It's just one day, and it's yeah. purposely meant yeah. not to. It's not trying to be about oh, when when did you meet? When did you two meet? How is raising me? How is how are my siblings in comparison to me? It's things like that. It's just about whatever they want to talk about. And I've, in that, I think it creates this really surprisingly very fully formed portrait of what of a certain identity through these very mundane experiences and the the use of aside aside from the a little bit of footage outside it's either footage that Scorsese shot inside the apartment or the home and a lot of archive footage and which is I think very important to showing not necessarily where Scorsese himself came from but where his his family and thus uh, his culture as a whole came from in, mm-hmm. in as the title puts, Italian America. Right. And, right. and it's funny because it's not actually like those questions you said, where did you meet? Where are you from? Right. Did you move here? It's not like those questions aren't there. They kind of mm-hmm. actually are almost, yeah, but almost explicitly. But again, he knows his parents well enough that he knows that as soon as he brings up this, they're going to go somewhere else with it. Yeah, so they're going to immediately right. move the conversation over to this different space. That's and that's what's true. so interesting about them as characters is they actually do have this constant need to simplify and compartmentalize in a way that's actually really interesting. Of, again, <laughs> yeah. the, the father will be explaining, like, 
oh yeah, I remember out when the food trucks used to be outside and whatever, and you know, one kid, a group of kids would walk up, one kid would go run, try and steal a piece of fruit, and then when the vendor ran to try and grab him, all the other kids <laughs> grabbed him, and he's like, you know, kid stuff. And then he immediately goes on without in any way changing tone to describe that that's what they needed to happen because your parents couldn't provide for you because it was the Great Depression. And again, right, right. It's, this, it's this nice little thing of like, he's like, you know, kid stuff, you know. And <laughs> it's, this, it's this fascinating way of watching these people who have this culture of, of dealing with a particular type of oppression. I mean, obviously they're white in America, but they're immigrants. It's a community they talk about them them butting heads with the Jewish community when they first moved in. You know, it's about race. It's about the Great Depression, but it's about these people who naturally compartmentalize and simplify, not in a way that's reductive or leads to anything negative, but it's just a way of processing. I mean, again, there's a point where, where uh, I think uh, either Scorsese or, or Scorsese's mother asks, how did you amuse yourself to the father? And he just replies, eat and, you know, <laughs> and it's like right like yeah. this is who this is who you are and there's and there's pride in this and then there is also you know a, an intelligence to the way that it's set up you know it's yeah, he yeah. knows he knows the subjects well enough that he can pose a particular kind of question or pose a prompt and he knows that they're going to move in a direction that's worthwhile rather than just sort of tossing up a softball to a subject that's not gonna really do it. Yeah. And I just like the way it's filmed also because he just lets the camera roll for a while, frequent lawn takes and almost a Hongian sense of zooming at some points to, <laughs> to certain people in the in the frame. And I, I just find it it just zips by really, really and well. you and you really get a sense of their apartment. I mean it's yeah. not like you know, I think it's probably the same apartment. I mean I I doubt that they would have moved out basically. Like it's just so lived in and right. so such a condensed space that, you know, like Scorsese doesn't have to do a whole lot, but he knows the space incredibly well that, you know, like you really, you get not just a sense of like sense of the space, but you get a sense of how his parents live there, how they occupy it. And, you know, like what his father does, like, you know, there's like one moment I remember of his mother, like berating his father for just wanting to sit in that one chair and watch TV <laughs> when he gets home. And his father just being like, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, no, like you, you really get a sense of the dynamics throughout the entire house. Yeah, and, and on a personal note, I just want to thank you, 1974 Martin Scorsese, for keeping the sort of navel-gazing about storytelling to a, a light minimum. Um, because there is an angle of this movie that could be immensely narcissistic and uninteresting about uh, the movie opens with them arguing about like the, f the form of the, what the film is going to be and how it's going to be and whatever and there's a point where later on he's like people used to come over all the time and just tell stories that's all we had to do we didn't have television we didn't have radio we didn't have maybe, you know whatever and he's like he's like stories that's our lineage you know and rather than really hitting that point he lets his dad say it succinctly and then changes subjects. Yeah, and absolutely. it's like, thank you, thank yeah. you, because I do yeah. not need to Very hear like much, just uh, out of film school Scorsese opining about how it is his, you know, racial imperative to be a storyteller. Um, no, that's his uh, Italian cinema documentary <laughs> where yeah. he does that. That is true. It feels very much in the moment, and that's really what gives it. It's a very light touch 
Yeah. And this is just a tease for later. Uh, ironically, probably his not, not probably, this is definitely not his most important contribution to this festival, but I'll describe what that is later. Oh. Okay. The next film is A Bigger Splash, not directed by <laughs> Luca Guadagnino, but uh, rather Jack Hazan. Um, and it's named after the David Hockney painting. Um, and it's like a sort of half quasi documentary fictional hybrid of um, Hockney's career at that point, but also Hockney's breakup with Peter Schlesinger. Yeah. Um, sort of following them both Hockney and the more documentary portions and Schlesinger in these pretty highly dramatized um, segments. I couldn't really get a grip on what this film was trying to do in how it was portraying Hockney. Uh, it wasn't really, it was definitely not showing an artistic process yeah. necessarily. Yeah. One, one or two is, scenes of him painting. Yeah, I mean, he does create a painting through the um, span of the film. Yeah. Portrait of an artist, a pool with two figures. Right, and the, yeah, that's a paint, you know, also very pool, Hockney yeah. in California sort of painting. Even though uh, he didn't paint it in California. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, a man standing over a pool that a woman is swimming in a like boy. the Hollywood hills or a boy yeah oh, okay mm-hmm. that's right um but yeah basically like yeah it, cre- it's, it follows sort of the creation of one painting but i don't really see quite the connection i mean it's more like the scenes of hockney are mostly like him talking about sort of the art world and like oh it's him in the art world yeah i mean yeah. it's him navigating like the art world and talking about like where's the next show gonna be and like you know and the it's not like as you know like shameless to like be uh you know naming like figures for painting sales necessarily <laughs> but it is sort of like it's a couple steps away from that and then the sort of fictionalized sequences the sort of dream sequences almost are just very melodramatic but in a sort of incoherent way i thought the you know the yeah. music is just so there's a lot of music yeah it's, it's so the music is highly high. highly dramatic and it's the not really applying to it's not necessarily applying to what is actually being seen it, it right. seems a bit over overstepping yeah. it for what's actually being shown and then you know the two strands of the film never really connect in any meaningful way for me at least i i like the film it's i i find it much maybe much more interesting to think about and interesting in what it's doing than exactly how it's doing it i do think it's much closer for me to a fictionalized film or even a biopic than a documentary simply because the style feels very much much more like a narrative film than a documentary it feels very locked down very there's no acknowledgement of the camera and certainly not verite or anything like that maybe a lot of the limitation for me was simply besides the figure of Hockney himself I don't really know any of the people involved and the film involves a lot of the various associates and and friends that he has without necessarily differentiating them or or specific specifying what they actually do going in and so you have to yeah. f- suss it out very slowly over the course of the film and but i do find first off it's evocations of queerness very very interesting and i think yeah. very important to yeah. not only to hockey himself but a certain a certain culture there are two scenes where drag queens are interacting or are on stage with with women mm-hmm. and the and 
that acknowledgement and that open celebration of queerness, I think is very, it's lovely to see, I think. And the, and that it does focus so much on this relationship, I, I think is, is very important. It's a strange film and I actually don't really know exactly how to process it. I, I know that it's actually getting a, it just got a 4K restoration and Metrograph Pictures is releasing it this year. No. So I, I'm curious if more people will see it and ha- be mo- more coherent on it or know more about Hockney than than, than certainly see, I, I do. Don't, yeah, I, I just don't even know like how a 2019 audience would <laughs> react to this film because I just don't feel like, like that, like knowing that much about David Hockney is like something that even people, you know, who watch like as many films as we do, like right. know, or, or even people maybe who are more immersed in art, I mean, they probably do, but I feel like that audience is a bit, you know, a bit more limited. But I, right. yeah, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So uh, a surprise here for you guys probably is that I actually really like this movie. Uh, yeah, I, didn't know no, you'd seen I, it. I really, really enjoyed this movie. So, okay, A, impossible not to enjoy a movie where David Hockney looks like Bubbles from the Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> impossible to not enjoy. That's true. But... Aside from that, uh, I actually really found its sort of endless digressiveness That's, really yeah. fascinating. It is mm-hmm. a movie of, of languorous rhythms. You know, it is, it is about <laughs> uh, a scene and about a milieu. And, and mm-hmm. I definitely agree that I, I definitely, even I think we both, Ryan and I both like it more than you, Dan, but yeah. I would agree that we even also don't entirely know how to process it. It is so hazy. Um, mm-hmm. It is also sort of fascinating as a queer film because, again, the setup you basically know, if you don't know anything about these people, it is basically a hot guy broke up with David Hockney. Um, and it is, and it is, and it is basically trying to explore that and trying to explore that space. Um, even even Schlesinger within the film is treated as largely an enigma while Hockney is very verbal, is, is trying to be, trying to tell you things, even if he's not telling you the whole truth, he's definitely trying to tell you things and tell you things about him. And Schlesinger's character is not even in the film that much. Uh, Mostly in the sort of explicitly dream or or fantasy yeah. sequences right and and he's yeah. he's reduced i don't want to say reduced he's he's mainly portrayed as almost like this muse like character um in in hockney's life and again you, there's so much of the movie is dedicated to his associates his friends um it, it is a movie about a milieu and and actually speaking on a larger scale here real quick i actually do think that this is actually kind of the perfect movie for a new york film festival a new york film festival selection because this is right. a movie that is not of a national cinema it yeah. is not of an identifiable movement i mean an artistic movement obviously but not any filmic one um it is not a, a really well-known a tourist choice um so you you are left with this really strange probing intriguing film it's his feature debut i'm interested to see what else he made because i've honestly never heard of him he made uh, like a half he made like sort of this but the documentary half is like a clash concert yeah oh yeah in right, like right. the early was, 80s yeah i was interested in that i was like that sounds interesting you know I, i'm not gonna really go out and stick my neck out and be like 
this is 100% super successful. It like really works, <laughs> or or that even this movie did not have large portions of the of the movie where I'm like, don't know that I really needed that, but okay. But again, I, I accept it as of a piece of what it is. It has right. a really interesting color palette. Um, yeah. Even Lots in the even in the documentary sequences, it's these very sort of dark, dingy workspaces and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And then you get these freed up very colorful dream sequences um, without either seeming so ridiculous or, or overplayed. Um, and, and Hockney himself as a figure directly addressing the camera is fascinating. He's the, he's the type of guy that, you know, like Errol Morris has wet dreams about. He's, <laughs> he, he, he's, he's verbose, but secretive, you know, he's, right, he's, absolutely. he's uh, elusive, but never hiding in any particular way. He's such an interesting, he's such an interesting figure. I'm not even a particularly large fan of his art, but I think as, as a presence inside of this film, he is this interesting, both constantly stabilizing presence and also one that constantly is turning the film on its head a little bit. And, yeah. and, and in so when so many people in this movie are so identifiable, they present themselves, they're clear about who they are, they're clear about what they do and how they do it and why, um, particularly Schlesinger, it's interesting to see Hockney as such this sort of weird ball of, of personality. Um, mm. And the movie trying to grapple with that and the movie physically having to reach outside of normal bounds to do so of it 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 wants to be a documentary and yet by its very conception it could never actually be a documentary (laughs) yeah that's true yeah it definitely it feels very intimate feels very close to his experience but it's still he's his mystique is totally reinforced and and assured throughout and i find that sort of contrast very interesting i also really like the sort of projections of people that he knows onto these canvases and that mm-hmm. frequently they're framed and shot in the exact same pose or sometimes they're interacting with with the painting and just that sort of mixing to be very interesting and always a kind of jolts the one of the definitive images i think for me is him holding a lighter next to a painting mm-hmm. and as if he's going to light this cigarette uh, that the man painted in the painting is holding and so you, you get a lot there while also there's it's suggesting and not exactly showing. And I think that it, it's certainly an interesting film and I hope, hope more people get to see it. Um, it yeah. sounds like people will soon and I'm excited to, to actually be able to, you know, really push this in some sense and be like, guys, like this is worth your time. Right, absolutely. Yeah. I also find it funny that the actual painting of a bigger splash besides in the credits and i think a brief interstitial thing is never actually shown in person yeah i think it's yeah just like one yeah it's just it's just more indicative of where his mental space is at right Mm -hmm. at that point that's interesting speaking of interstitial photos (laughs) (laughs) here we go we have out one specter no crucially specter not the uh not the 13 hour at one Noli Metangere. Uh, this is Jacques Rivette's, or a, a version of Jacques Rivette's, one of his definitive works at one. 
uh, this one runs a mere four and a half hours. And it, the, for the for the record, for the listener, this is the all of us have elected to give as few notes as possible for this one in the spirit of the film to in order to create a more improv an even more improvisatory and even more searching sense. So apologies if this is even less coherent than usual. But this is it fits. Yes, it fits, yeah. absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah it definitely does. It, maybe less so for this particular version than for Noli Matangere, but right. still it definitely fits. So this out one so a brief backstory or for lack of a better term out um, Jacques Brevet in 1970 he shot the he shot the version that he, um, he well he shot the original version out on Noli Matangere in six weeks and managed to get 30 out 30 hours of footage from it and edited it down to 13 hours after one showing at Lavra it was um he, I think he took it back for, and he didn't know exactly how he was going to sh- show it, and he took it back and spent a year editing the, editing this version, Outland Spectre, which was released as a feature length and did actually play for at least a week in Paris, though I don't think it's ever actually opened in the States. And the basic plot of the film follows no less than four, five, more than a dozen strands, I guess you could say. The the strands are they follow Kalan, played by none other than uh, it could not be played by anyone else besides Jean Pierre Layout, who is this who starts the film masquerading, or maybe maybe not masquerading. You, you can never really tell as a as a deaf mute who plays who claims to offer a. a truth or something of that sort which is just consists of of random pages torn torn and stuffed into an envelope and just yeah blowing into his harmonica yeah, and to annoy and people to get faces yeah to to get them to pay the, the franc for the for this envelope by and the he, way this movie is so shot gorilla style that i can nearly guarantee that none of those people in the cafe yes, have yeah, any absolutely. idea what is happening yeah the, they are this film is truly of, being attacked by jean-pierre leon with a harmonica yeah, <laughs> you see like Japanese, I think Japanese tourists at one point, <laughs> Japanese businessmen, sorry. Uh, so you have him and you have Frederic played by the great Juliette Berthaud in one of several appearances in this festival uh, as this, as, as another sort of scam artist who cons men into giving her money. It's kind of vague on, on that part. And you have two theater troops led by, uh, who are both enacting different versions of, or enacting two plays by uh, Aeschylus? Aeschylus. Aeschylus. Uh, enacted by Aeschylus. You have one group which is rehearsing Seven Against Thebes, which is run by. Actually, one of the people that I don't... Oh, uh, which is led by Lily, played by Michelle Moretti. You have that group, um, which is a more more focused on a rhythmic version, a rhythmic interpretation of the Aeschylus play. And you have another one, which is mounting 
Prometheus, which is led by Tomas, who is um, played by Michael Lonsdale, and a, a very, a very wonderful performance. <laughs> and and theirs is much more. It's the there's a deliberate split between their discussions of how they're going to do it, which is very philosophical, very much focused on the actual acts and and their actual rehearsals, which is very physical, very almost random seeming at times, very much focused on theatrical exercises. And gradually these all, the well, we'll get to the differences between Lillian Tendre and Spectre, but the, gradually it emerges into this story of the, this mysterious group that may or may not exist called the 13, which Kalan begins a sort of quest to discover exactly what the 13 is and if it exists and it's based off of the Henri de Balzac 13 um, detailed in the his, histories of the 13 book that he that he wrote or the, the series and it's gradually becomes about the sort of it's very difficult to describe exactly what it's about because so much of what out one both versions do is about the observing the process of acting observing these characters as they operate the film was besides the besides the general scenario written by Rivette and Suzanne Schiffman who was the assistant director basically the all the dialogue was improvised by the various actors who are of very various strands of acting varying styles and just the way it collides is what gives the real driving force of out one and for and the out one for me and I assume for for YouTube for both of you for the for the full version is one of the definitive films. It's it's kind of hard for it not to be in a certain sense because both it, both of its thirteen hours status and because it's been such a holy grail for lack of a better term for for cinephiles until its recent restoration and its recent release by Hollywood Films and their own other and other places. And it's but just the way it manages to evoke so much about exactly what film can do and what cinema pushed to its limits, both in terms of runtime and in terms of just pure expression, is just nearly unrivaled. And for me, maybe it's because I hold out one in such stature, it's conceivably, it's certainly a top 10 sound contender, but the ways in which Spectre intertwines with it, I find it very nearly as great, very nearly as all-encompassing because of how different it is because um, well we can get to that but what are your thoughts on out one as out one and out one spectral uh, okay um, yeah uh, not to give like a whole personal history but I saw out one when it first played BAM when the restoration premiered uh, spent a whole weekend I got a button I got a button that says I watched out one yeah. um, I got one too it is. Uh, I mean, it's it's so of course with a movie like this, it's so hard to know where to start. 
Um, but out one is one of the more important experiences with cinema I have ever had, and I know that's Absolutely. true of many people, not all, and I won't even say most, <laughs> but but many people who encounter it. It is unlike anything else, and it, and yet it is yet the purest distillation of exactly what is incredible about Chakravet, about mm-hmm. what a specific precise artist he was and what he is capable of um that only he is capable of um as far as specter goes this was my first time watching specter um i have the blu-ray set shout outs this lovely blu-ray set uh with obviously a wonderful uh essay booklet by jonathan rosenbaum yeah great the, the 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 experience of watching specter at least for me, the first time is a little bit jarring just because it is so different in many ways from uh, Nolly Mae Tangere. It's, it's so radically reshapes everything, which, of course, you cut out two-thirds of the movie. It's, yeah. it's going to do that. <laughs> you know, but, it, but it's not as though... It's not as though... Not that Rivette would ever be capable of this, but it's not as though it's out one cliff notes. No, um, no, I, no. I was. I, it is an entirely reshaped and reformed film. It is structurally different, um, and it is. And again, out one is such a rare and interesting document that um, my long-suffering girlfriend Ileana um, <laughs> saw actually out one. Nola Metangere in theaters with me uh, about three months into us dating, which is a real test. Uh, and she actually loves it. Um, that's another thing for another time. Shut but up. yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, it's very much. Uh, she is of the opinion that there is no one hotter in the 70s than Jean Pierre Uh, uh which, I, Sure, yeah, I agree. Can't, as I say, can't disagree really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but. We were. She was doing something else in the room, and I was finishing uh, Spectre, and I was like, I literally said, I turned to her, and I was like, how's this going to end? <laughs> and, and I know for a fact that there's no footage in Spectre that wasn't already in Nolim et Tangier. And so I'm like, anything that is about to come, I've already seen. <laughs> and yet, I, when it when the final shot happens and it cut to black, both of us actually exclaimed out loud, what the fuck? That's, <laughs> that's how it ends? And not, and not in a way of disgust or frustration, but in a just pure fact of the way in which something that has made such an impression in your mind, which, by the way, I have not rewatched that one um, since I first saw it uh, three years ago. Um, it, it, it leaves such an impression in your mind that to watch a radically reshaped version of it is can't help but be jarring. And and I almost yeah. wish that I had seen them in the reverse order. Right. I'm happy. I, I I wouldn't change anything about how I saw them, but going forward, I would recommend people see Spectre first and then see, um, and then see No Limit because it is, it, it it was almost difficult to watch because I'm constantly reshaping and constantly measuring against and, and, and not in a qualitative way, but in just a trying to figure out what animal I'm dealing with. Yeah. 
Yeah, I definitely like see that too. I mean, I, I yeah, I love Noli Me Tanger. I mean, that is like yeah, one of the greatest films ever made, and this mm-hmm. is such a radical re like yeah restructuring redefinition of it that what it excludes what Rivet excludes from the full out one is sort of um, it take I mean doesn't doesn't necessarily take away from it but it really he's basically asking different things you know of the viewer mm-hmm. like right. you know Noli Metanger starts with 40 minutes or so of one of the improvisatory you know theatrical exercises which is literally just you know this group of actors screaming and moaning right and it's, like it's all prim- moving together and that is like just so like that pulls you in for the 13 hours basically like it gets you in there right and brief the, yeah inspector lacks that basically right and brief story about the first screening that was there at bam <laughs> so it's shown saturday starts at two and then goes through Sunday, ends at like 11, 10, 10.30, something like that. Um, and shown in, it's a, the No Limit Changers in eight episodes. Right. Um, it's shown as parts one and two, 15 minute break in between, mm-hmm. and then parts three and four, da 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 da. It was funny watching it because when there'd been a lot of press around it, it was obviously like cinematic Holy Grail in some ways. Uh, and for the first episode, the uh, the theater, which Theater 3 in BAM Cinematheque, not to get the most New York possible, <laughs> is the largest. It's the one with stadium seating. Um, it's the largest that BAM has, and that was what they were showing it in. And by the start of the second episode, which, by the way, anyone who bought a ticket for episode one automatically gets free admission to episode two, but a third of the theater had left, oh, which, wow. is, yeah. which is yeah. roughly about eighty to one hundred people. Um, yeah, just just in the sheer brute force of it's it's the the one of the theater companies, um, their stage they're going to stage Aeschylus's Prometheus, um, right. and so it is literally them forming language. It is them yeah. Mm, yeah. moving from inhuman status to humans. But, of course, it is a bunch of French actors <laughs> rolling around on the ground making guttural noises. Yeah. And then, like, one of them pours water, and so all the dirt right. that's on the yeah. ground starts getting on their faces. It's very, it's very hard to be a god of just... <laughs> sort of like muck in your face, very unsparing, um, and of course by the end of by the by the uh, beginning of episode eight on Sunday evening, uh, it was about twelve people left in the theater, wow. half of whom I knew personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was. <laughs> yeah, for me it was a very different viewing experience. For some harebrained reason, I decided to go for the option that. Sif offered to see all 13 hours in one day. Oh my and, god. Which was probably not the best for I mean, I did that too, different. just at home. Yeah, that, which is, your seats were, your seat was probably much more comfortable yeah, than, the, than the Sif Film Centers, which is the the smallest theater in, uh, in the Sif uh, lineup, I guess. And I guess because all, because we, all the people bought a ticket for the 13 hour one, so not necessarily knowing what we were getting into, but knowing that we would be there because 
why else would you buy a ticket for a 13 hour thing though it didn't I don't think it cost much more but it's it is really that that opening really is something and I think what really drew me to it and what draws me to a lot of Rivette's films especially out one because of its length and because of the extraordinary community it has to have with his actors to to even work let alone be such a transcendent work is the intimacy that it has with the actors the way that Rivette will hold on his shot and the handheld just moves over these people and like examines their faces I, I find is really key to what makes both versions of Out One work, though. Nolan Matandre to a much to a even greater extent. And I will say that's one of the most interesting things about um, Spectre is that I will say probably somewhere between seventy-five to eighty-five percent of the per- performance rehearsal footage. Um, which is so key to the movie is excised. Right. Um, much of the much of the what nine eight eight plus hours that are uh, removed are actually performance, and it's so funny because if you ever told me like, oh, there's a version of like out one, but it's like mostly just the plot, I'd be <laughs> yeah. so confused. I'd be so confused yeah. um, because I would be like, how does that exist there is no plot in that one da, 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 da. yeah um yeah. You, you know and so that's what's so interesting about specter is that it is such a radically reshaped movie i described it to a friend as there's that sort of obviously overly reductive but the, the way of talking about like renoir versus lang of open versus closed yeah. and out one mm-hmm. no limit is a very open movie it is about you know these very specific rhythms open to performance open to interpretation um its plot could not be any less digressive or uh, any more digressive i apologize couldn't be any more digressive um and yet specter is almost rosebaum refers to it as it it hypes up the langian sense of dread and i don't Mm -hmm. think that there's actually a better comparison for what Out One Spectre is doing um, outside of even having a title that would be a Lang movie um, <laughs> to compare it to Fritz Lang of, of obviously conspiracies and things like, and things like that. But it is a movie that he, that I'm sure he would make in, in the rise of just like Lang would make in the rise of Nazism or post Nazism it's the movie that Rivette makes post 68 and, and it is so lost. It is, it is the portrait of a, of a generation that is, that is lost, that can't process, that is searching, that has lost its bearings and is so deeply disillusioned that even basic concepts of, of reality are scarce and fleeting um and and specter is such an interesting comparison to no no limit because it is so that it is absolutely that and 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 while we are gone on about how it's so different and it's so you know reshaped and everything and it's saying something so different at the same time what is at the heart of it 
is still there. Just the way you process it is instead of feeling more lost, you're feeling a little bit more scared. That would be the best yeah. way I could well, I could easily describe it. Is that is that Spectre is the dread. Spectre is the Spectre is what's left, um, rather than an immediate experience of of being in that moment and what it felt like in that moment. I think it's a little bit more doomed. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, that like yeah by sort of taking everything but the plot out from you know Noli Maitong is that yeah you really because what is there what propels the action in Noli Maitong is like yeah the sort of impending doom or impending dread of you know like discovering the 13 and then discovering that the 13 is probably nothing and that it's all just a, and this is just speaking of you know Leod's character Colon like that it's all just in his mind and the one the things that he takes up the cards the um is it the little trinket that he um swings at the yeah, end this, and he counts the, like it's a, a, it's tower. A Eiffel Tower yeah. yeah yeah the Eiffel Tower Trinka and you know the things that he is like just trying to um hold you know like get a grip on reality with are just like all falling apart basically like yeah you get you get that in here I I struggle with Spectre a bit just because um just because it feels so condensed that I'm so used to, you know, or I just maybe have these memories of out one scenes going on forever. You know, yeah. Eric Romero's, you know, amazing uh, fake beard <laughs> appearance <laughs> in here is probably reduced to a couple of minutes. You know, it's like 30 seconds. Yeah, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really cut down to the very <laughs> basics of it. Whereas, you know, it's this probably 15 minute scene almost, or it feels right. like it at least of right. just him berating. <laughs> And not even berating necessarily, just very calmly going through and saying this makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> uh, you know, so I guess maybe even some of the comedy about one is cut out a oh, bit a lot too. Of it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's it's something to certainly readjust to. So I I had I was I you know felt a bit lost at sea watching it over the four hours, but you know I mean it's it's out one still. Yeah, I, I mean I I will say part of the reason I describe what I did watching it at home was precisely because for much of the movie, it felt like I was fighting it. Yeah. It felt like yeah. someone had taken something I'd loved away. Uh, and I, I literally remember being at near the end of the movie and I was like, it's, it's just not going to have this scene. You know, there's a, there's yeah, a the yeah. closing oh. to episode seven, oh, which what? is one of the most incredible things you will ever see in your yes, life. Yes. As one of well the great as scenes. a complete forerunner for the entire of David Lynch's filmography. Um, yeah. and, yep. and it's just does not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, out one, Nola Metanger, which after 13 hours, um, ends in a scene that, does not appear uh, in Spectre, which is yeah. both disheartening, as I think that is one of the great endings of anything ever. The, um, the Lonsdale freakout? Right, the, yeah. the scene on the beach, I'll say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but at the same time, I, I recognize that I don't know... I don't know that that the ending works for Spectre. That Spectre is is such a different movie about you. Do, you don't. 
at the end of Out One, No Limit Tangier, you start to realize that what they've been through probably wasn't worth it. Uh, yeah. Which is, there's some tremendous layer of irony for putting that at the end of a 13-hour movie. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but but that is the case. And, and Spectre ends more unresolved, which I think is even more disturbing. Um, Nolima Tanger closes the loop of the 13, in at least a strict sense, with Jean-Pierre Liaud's character. It, mm-hmm. There's an explanation uh, and and while it's you know you can choose to not entirely believe it, it is seemingly resolute. Um, that is mostly doesn't exist, Inspector. Um, that it scene is have him going back to his normal existence. It's him just trying cor- to resolve it. Correct, and it it ends on an image of him taking something that isn't working. And trying to make the strands connect, yeah. and I and I think if you're talking about the difference in tone and the difference in conception between Spectre and Nolimit Tanger, I think that is an exceedingly appropriate ending, uh, rather than a well, fuck it, what was this all for? Ending mm-hmm. one of of a, a statement of. I don't know that I don't know that we're done with this mm-hmm. is which is even more horrifying you know there's there's something there's something you know deeply disturbing about Nolamentenchere's ending but it is also such a release it is such a it is such a moment of exuberance even if it isn't necessarily positive right. exuberance you know but there's something horrifying about the ending of Spectre and and deeply deeply haunting and and the focus in Jean-Pierre Leod's eyes as he s- just keeps counting and keeps doing it until it ends, right. you know. And 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 speaking in a movie as a as, that's clearly trying to on some level speak for a generation or a group of mm. people, a nation. That's really. that correct, right? That mm. that that's the most horrifying ending I could think of. Yeah. Of trying to make it work, trying to make it make sense, and then he keeps trying until it ends. Yeah, and this was this version was the more widely available version mm-hmm. in France at the time. I yes. think because yes. it was yeah sort of cut for because, theaters. Yeah, because because it L1 wasn't thirteen li- hours long. Yeah, yeah exactly. because Alan literally after its Lavra showing, I don't think it resurfaced until Rotterdam. Rotterdam, nineteen eighty nine or something. Yeah, so. And yeah, mm-hmm. and it wasn't except like the thirteen hours were not accepted for French TV yeah. either. Even though I think they got the money to make it from there, <laughs> but yeah, I mean like the fact that yeah this that ending as opposed to the other uh, is put you know into French cinemas at the time is like a yeah very sort of speaks very much to maybe what Rivette is you know thinking the country or at least the generation of cinephiles who will see his film which he may have some mm-hmm. awareness that that's probably his target audience um, <laughs> is you know pretty revealing right. I think yeah and yet the great paradox of both versions but especially this one for me is that I the the horror is totally there and that's that dread is totally there and yet I find it's such a pleasurable experience mm-hmm. I I've just, just seen Jean-Pierre Leo 
blowing into his harmonica, seeing him pointing at the screen, seeing Blit Ogier just being her wonderful, just just being Blit Ogier, or Bernadette Lafont being the most, uh, being simultaneously both very gregarious, very very welcoming, and yet utterly impenetrable. Or I, I just find so much to latch onto in every single moment. And yet we, we have, we've gone so far into this discussion, I feel like we have a lot to go. It, but and we haven't even mentioned the exact stylistic difference, which is that the film is much more, it's much, it's, it's actually intercut and it's frequently and jarringly intercut in so many, uh, at so many junctures, the film opens with inter, um, intercutting or presenting four different scenes, which aren't really scenes, more, more table setting uh, for each of the four different groups. And you have, and frequent, and so you have many, many a time, the revet will cut between two scenes, not necessarily in a way that's that is in a more traditional continuity editing, but it's more he just in the most inexplicable point he will cut to a different scene that will uh, to to the different scene and then he'll cut back uh, and it keeps this very off kilter very different rhythm that is and uh, and of course he also inserts the black and white uh, production stills which open the each episode in Noli Mentandre uh, inspector he uses them as punctuation or as a brief stop or a gap that that bridges two parts of the scene in a wholly unexpected way and he keeps this um, going for the entirety and it's a much more bracing experience in some ways it's to tell this to someone who's seen say the first episode about one it, it's it would seem almost impossible it, it but it is much more bracing just in a pure moment's moment level if you have seen out one the first uh, no limit right and and out one no limit tension but by its conception feels like something almost made to wear you down <laughs> yeah, um yeah. which is what makes it such a glorious experience in some ways yeah. um but that's precisely why specter works in a different register is because it's not quite trying to do that it's trying to it's trying to displace you it's trying to knock you off your center of balance um it is so and and i'll say those those black and white production stills are frequently of scenes that just don't end up appearing yes exactly Um, and so it's it's extremely jarring for us for people who've seen both versions to be watching this and then to be seeing a scene that you know exists in some capacity that just will not appear in this movie. Right. Um, it's very strange. Yeah, yeah um, the entire thread where they're trying to find a, find the, the, the actor who stole all of their money is right. told entirely through production stills. Right, right. or, or oh, even the, the sort of um, extremely long scene near the back end of No Lament and Jair, which is the sort of them laying down their alms to the dying god um right. which right mm. which do you remember that's of michael lonsdale him lying down oh, and yeah. each of them coming up and having their moment with him oh okay gotcha which yeah. entirely doesn't exist mm-hmm. and and this yeah. is a, a, a 40 minute segment it feels almost like 30 or 40 minutes <laughs> in no limit and it is reduced to I don't know, 12 frames? 
you know, it's intercutting in between a a scene of something else completely different happening. And the stills are always accompanied by like this very quick drone almost, which Mm -hmm. always, you know, always is like punctuating like the rest of the, yeah, I think the pervading sense of dread too. One one of the, one of the greatest musical tracks in all of film, the, the drum track is, Yes. Only, only it's it's only barely heard. Yeah, yeah. like the it's, very yeah. end, right? Yeah, the yeah. Rivette he said on the hum. Uh, this is a direct quote. What we have is just the meanest frequency, as if produced by a machine, which interrupts the fiction. Sometimes sending messages to it, sometimes in relation to what we've already seen or going to see, and sometimes with no relation at all, which sums up that one Spectre pretty well. Yeah. And it's just so. I mean, it just going back to what we know from Nola Matandre is some of our favorite parts which I haven't of course I haven't seen sadly haven't seen the full thing again but I've seen scenes from it certain scenes from it so many times I just put them on just for pleasure like the Romero scene which is reduced to 30 seconds the the um, and of, of course one perhaps one of the greatest moments of screen acting for me Jean-Pierre Leo in the street declaiming just reciting the same line over and over the same passage uh, message that he's been given over and over again equipage equipage and and it's cut it's cut down to a minute and and you don't even get the the children running by him and it's the i guess maybe a ton of my love for this film is just marveling at rivette's audacity at his total willingness to just totally reconfigure of your sense of what this mammoth work can be and should be and yet I find it totally compelling I've like just seen just from the first moment when it cut from from uh, a rehearsal which in the in Nola Matandre doesn't occur until three hours in which acts as the opening uh, to to Jean-Pierre Leo blowing a harmonica it's just so different the first shot doesn't occur until of Nola Matandre doesn't occur until an hour into Spectre and even that's actually I think it's different the the scene is the same but it's a difference right and so, the very last shot of Spectre happens what with an hour and a half two hours right. to go in right. Nola Matandre right. so I, I mean again watching it outside of fighting it and sort of having to rewire my brain again thank you Jacques Rivet um, having to rewire my brain again on how to watch this and how to how to contend with it I did end up leaving with such a tremendous level of respect for someone who looks at this object and can see it in both ways and right. he can see and he can choose to emphasize and change and tweak in a way that is wholly himself and wholly original because again he could he could put out, he could have never put out No Limit Tangier and just have put out Spectre and we would be like this is the most Jacques Raffet thing of all time <laughs> not knowing what's waiting behind door number two and so it's and so it is it, it, watching this my ultimate feeling outside of the immediate emotional feelings it gives me was just one of complete respect for Rivet because and, and for, for, for what he is capable of doing. Because not only did he make this completely unique, strange, unforgettable beast, but he made it twice. And yeah, and, yeah. and and he and there's not a moment where it really feels like it's the same, despite how much my brain keeps telling me, No, well where's this? What's this? What's happening here? I know I'm not watching the same movie. Yeah. yeah. 
we might as well say that it also begins with a different with just like different texts and mm-hmm. hypotheses location of the story Paris and its double and its time double. April or May 1970 meaning and then it cuts to the first scene right. I mean right. it, it, that sense of irresolution and even the time is I think they actually give the date in the first episode or of when that takes place and that sense of not knowing of, of unknowing of the impossibility of knowing is at the heart of this and what makes it so compelling and just the sort of Paris and its double yeah. title is like so just indicative of sort of Rivette's entire project. I mean, I think <laughs> we'll go into it a little later, but like just the very, the fact of the sort of fantastical or paranoid or, you know, sort of like enhanced life almost is just sort of right next to the very quotidian, very almost, you know, boring, um, very like very tangible and material Paris that he's filming but what he's putting in front of the camera is just you know so far into another realm uh, you know that I think that's like essential revet is the you know it's the world and it's double and it's usually Paris and I love that he creates the world not through the long take as he does in Nolan Tendry, but he creates it through editing it mm-hmm. even though these scenes are might be two episodes apart in Nolan Tendry, but by intercutting them he forces you to think of them possibly they might be taking place at the same time they might be simultaneous following the traditional rules of intercutting they might have some relation and they could they they might oftentimes it might be just through purely graphic means through the actual movements that are that might match up and might be related story-wise but that you don't know you can't know and i find that so utterly transfixing it's It's a it's a rare work of art that is is the kind of thing you know you will have a relationship with the rest of your life um and and did it twice yeah, or, I mean, or, or I, twice with just this footage. I mean, there's right, exactly. Much no, more. no, no, no. They, yeah. they are different objects in the wall again. I mean, again, I, I'm sure Rivette would be laughing at us for being like, <laughs> "Oh, get it? Like, it's two, but it's the same." Yeah. Uh, it, it is. It, it can't really be overstated that it is like. It is so different, and yet such a mirror image. Um, you, you have it, to it, consider it, them together. Yeah. If, if, if you've seen both, of course, you can consider Right, I was going to say, yeah. I still, if I had to say someone should only watch Bond, I'm, I'm obviously going to say you should watch Nola Metanger. Oh, yeah, but, absolutely. But, yeah. You know, because that is truly the experience of a lifetime. But um, having the opportunity to see both and having access to see both, which any reasonable cinephile basically does at this point um it it feels imperative and i know it sounds like such a dumb asshole cinephile thing to see like no you haven't really seen that one until you've seen both versions you need to watch 16 hours of that one you know it is it is its own work and and equally worthy of consideration um even 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 in its there are so many decisions that are happening that it feels 
just as grand and and full of tableau as uh, no limit and chair just in, in it's using different muscles and that's what's yeah. that's what's so incredible about it that's why i said it's he didn't just make you know the craziest strangest most unwieldy film of all time he did it twice you know <laughs> yeah yeah that oh my god yeah this we could we could talk about this i think for the rest of long. our lives for the rest yeah. of our lives we should talk about it for the rest of our lives but we will. who knows maybe, maybe we should make a out one minute podcast <laughs> or something like that <laughs> <laughs> but for <sighs> now that will have to be it, unless we have any more thoughts well we have many more thoughts but well we yeah yeah we have another event to get to as well yeah I mean, so so you gotta allocate time yeah <laughs> but yeah out one it's it's exactly as great as you've heard and probably more. Two thumbs up. <laughs> Two yeah. thumbs up. Three, Four thumbs up. Three thumbs up. Yeah. yeah. Four thumbs up for all, all these uh, <laughs> all these versions. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening, that hopefully means that you stayed for the entirety of our extensive discussion that nevertheless barely scratched the surface. And we'll presumably have another one at the end of this section, so you have that to look forward to. But the first film in this section is The Middle of the World, directed by Alain Tanner, a Swiss director, and the film is in French. And this is a really interesting film for me. I think... I found I really liked it and I was really surprised at how much I was taking with it because it's the kind of film which it for me it's basically remarkable and fascinating in its unremarkableness and it's not necessarily blandness but certainly the blandness of the main character but just the the matter of fact way in which it deals with its central uh, its central premise and the various things that emanate off of it and the film is basically about this the effects of this affair that the main character paul who's this factory owner who is selected by the one of the parties the adp democratic party of some sort to to run for parliament because he's the kind of regular person a self-made man and a family man no political stigma that that they feel would be a very, a very palatable person for them for the party to select for the for the parliament, and he at at the railway cafe he during a political speech he sees a waitress and a waitress from Italy, 
Adriana. Uh, Paul's played by Philippe Leotard, and Adriana's played by Olympia Carlisi. And they quickly form this relationship, which it seems almost, even though frequently Paul tries to tries to make it an even more emotional thing or a thing that he is willing to give up his wife and children and ultimately his his political campaign his political prospects for for Adriana whereas Adriana seems she doesn't seem very interested in him and partly because he is not very good at actually trying to get to know her in a really tangible sense in a re- in a sense that is truly personal and the film basically proceeds over the course of this relationship it is demarcated by date cards that it cuts to very frequently almost in a green ray-esque fashion each tile card is accompanied by this sudden burst of music that almost feels like a a renee sort of intervention of, of music into it and it's the film actually for some reason it begins with almost a taste of cherry-esque filming of the actual filming and there's a voiceover that comes in talks about about the place and the time and the context of the narrative and it, it takes place during this 1974 switzerland normalization where this exchange between different classes different people is allowed as long as nothing actually changes and it's only the words states and the seasons that change and this is represented throughout the film by the frequent shots of basically landscapes in switzerland in various seasons and even though it's of course not actually corresponding to the seasons depicted during the course of the film because it takes place december 6th to march 28th so only two seasons but it's more representative of the things that change versus the, the things that that fundamentally don't change they do break up she she leaves him and she goes to the german speaking part of switzerland and the film emphasizes the voiceover returns to the end and it emphasizes sort of the the normalization of of just hope of just prospects and in that i think there's something really i find a lot that's really interesting just in how detailed and how lived in it is and correspondingly how normal it all feels it's Lynn Tanner has other films in the festival I'm really curious based off of this film yeah I, this was one of the ones that I actually didn't get to finish unfortunately and not to be like I like this movie because it reminded me of other movie makers I like <laughs> but there there is a tremendous understated quality to yes, the, the drama and the shape of the drama that does remind one of Romare um yeah. It's interesting and it's fascinating and it does and it does start with that very very strange voiceover that sort of immediately lets you know what the shape of the film is going to be um and 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 it tells you it's going to happen over the course of 112 days and you know it, it even the title comes from this sort of reflection on the shape of the film it's going to be it's what the middle of the world is so it is it is trying this um, I, I can't speak too definitively about anything because I you know, it's in the end of the movie but it is interesting and poking around in interesting corners while still treading similar territory of what you would expect of a French film about a relationship that is <laughs> that is breaking marriage bonds of the time 
you said that uh, he has a, a later film in the festival, I believe later in the festival called In the White City. That is the right. only... Starring Alain Bruno Gantz. Starring Bruno Gantz. Uh, that is the only Elaine Tanner film I've seen start to finish, although this will be the second. And uh, <laughs> that's, it's, it's very good. It's very smart. People have very strange mixed tastes about Elaine Tanner and who he was as a filmmaker and, and whether he really had an authorial style. But again, most people I know who've seen more than a couple of his films really do enjoy him. And Jake Perlin, of, who, uh, who runs Metrograph, intentionally programmed a series precisely because he felt he was not getting his due. And I, I did see in The White City uh, with the aforementioned Bruno Gantz uh, in Portugal, and it is a, a lovely film. Very interested to see the remaining 30, 40 minutes I have of this. Right. It's, yeah. And just based off of the, off of this film, he does have a very strong penchant for shooting, shooting scenes in only one or two shots. And he has a very controlled sense of the camera that very not, not ostentatious, very, very simple push-ins. And yet they managed to allow a lot of the performance to go through, which definitely should also mention uh, Juliette Berteau is also in this film in a in a smaller role with a strange wig, yeah, 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 different hairstyle. Weird. Yeah, it's Juliette. This well, you another. couldn't expect any less from her. <laughs> <laughs> another uh, one of the other waitresses at this cafe, and I do think that there is just a lot of detail to. I I love how much of it is emphasizing the lack of difference that the affair actually makes to say the other people in the, that are running his campaign the party politics go on pretty much as usual, even even though they realize, oh, this is going to be really bad for for him. They, they still have him going to give speeches and there's no scene where a reporter confronts him with, oh, what do you have to say for yourself? That sort of thing. None of that is in it. It's very much concerned with things, with just things going on as usual until he loses. And the title itself is also very much emphasizing a sort of, even though you would expect something different. The voiceover says specifically that the mid- there are as many middle of the worlds as there are people in the world, and thus descenders the protagonist even before he has a chance to really flourish. And there is a, there's a restaurant in the film called The Middle of the World, which I think it is at the midpoint between, I think, maybe the Baltic Sea and the Mediterranean, something like that, like so, somewhere in between the, um, in, certainly in the middle of, of Switzerland. And it's just this very bland, very normal restaurant, slightly more ornate than most, but not by much. And it's only shown once. And there's a hotel that they, a very t- expensive hotel that they go to that's just very unremarkable. And so you have a lot of just moments like that. You have a lot of unreadability, but used in a way that's, I think, very productive to the film. And it really, it's some. It's it somehow it manages to evoke these politics without necessarily seeming about them at all. Uh, I find it, it it's very interesting, and I'm very curious to see more Alan Tanner. Also, it's interesting that there's a copious use of nudity, and that and you using it so frequently just makes it that much more make also normalizes it to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. It does not feel. It, it feels like it actually it has a purpose, which is mm. which is very nice. Yeah, a very interesting film. Yeah. Well, well, I'm sold now. <laughs> <laughs> the next film is uh, another 
returning director, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender's um, Ali Fieritz the Soul, um, just as sort of masterful. Probably his best-known film. Yeah, probably his best-known film. uh, Sort of a distillation and a reworking of the Douglas Sirk melodramas, which he discovered... Kind of in the period... Two um, years before. Yeah, sort of gestating period, although he was obviously making films in the meantime. um, This is sort of... It's not like a thesis on his interpretation of the melodrama. It's how he translates it back to Germany from Cirque, who originated in Germany in, you know, uh, under Brecht, and then went on to direct, you know, lush, colorful melodrama starring Rock Hudson. And so what... Uh, Fear Eats the Soul is sort of borrowing from is um, All That Heaven Allows in yes. which you know Jane Wyman is uh, an older housewife or sort of a middle-aged uh, widow and Rock Hudson is her handsome uh, groundskeeper and they begin an affair and so in this case um, you're gonna have to refresh okay, sure. me on the well, it, particulars it surrounds, but it's a, it's a similar yes definitely similar but setup. with a heightened focus on on race and how yeah. that intersects with the with society and societal expectations yeah. and and the age difference as well it centers on emmy Krosky, played by brigitte mira and ali the his his name that's the name that everyone calls him even though um that's not part of his actual name, uh, played by Elodie Ben Salam, who was all in a very complicated relationship with Fassbender um, at this time, and uh, I think it, they broke up almost immediately after. It basically surrounds them. In the first scene, they meet when when she go ducks into a cafe populated by Moroccans, and the film proceeds just based on as they fall in love after the the extended first 15 minutes or so i think is is just of this first night of them getting to know each other as they talk as they Mm -hmm. actually as they empathize and then they they go to bed together and then this relationship develops and then they get married out of partly out of convenience so that that ali can can live and and doesn't violate the rules of the of the tenant agreements but also out of this genuine love and the film pivots on this turn where after experiencing much resistance and much hostility uh, racially motivated hostility it pivots after they return from a vacation all the people that they that had previously been very hostile to them uh, become almost exclusively out of financial reasons decide to be much more accepting as ali and especially emmy portray some of the tendencies uh, that that the people had been acting towards them in the fir- in uh, before, and it, it was the first Fassbender I've seen, and I still find it just utterly devastating, and just the pure distillation of what melodrama can really do. It's still as as remarkable as it was when I first saw it, and in many ways very formative to me. Yeah, this is my first time revisiting it since probably seven odd years. And it was really fascinating coming back to it. A, because I, I think I saw it, and I might have seen a Cirque movie, but uh, definitely was not in love with Douglas Cirque the way I am, and obviously have not seen a lot of Fassbinder, which I now have. It's so funny because we, we as cinephiles, very naturally get caught up in talking about the like layers of irony and the layers of references and things like that. And it's so funny to watch this and think that that's the discussion around this movie because it is so direct. 
and so yeah. earnest. Um, obviously, yeah. obviously, there are those conversations to be had. Obviously, those are worthwhile. But it is worth stating that this is a movie that is so direct and so earnest and so about people accepting and trusting what is happening in front of them as and taking it at face value and the ways in which being trusting to people can lead to heartbreak. Um, It's a really spare film, but it's incredibly intricate in its design and its camera movements. It's, it's very Serkian in that sense of, uh, again, seeming like it was not intensely directed. And then you realize really the complicated nature of its setups of the way that it's yeah. moving through the, the narrative of all of these little decisions that are being made along. Uh, and again, it, it feels very simple, like a, like a episode of some anthology TV show, you know, of, of yeah. two cute couple, like two couples who you wouldn't think get together falling in love. It's so, it's so on its face, earnest and honest about that, that it's, it takes you by surprise and, and watching it again for the first time in a long time. It was it was interesting uh, how it was. All that heaven allows, deeply, deeply, deeply important and favorite movie to me. And so it's interesting. I, I do just want to talk about the way in which it sort of shapes and inverts certain dynamics. Because obviously, again, it's a little bit simpler. Like for the most part, in all that heaven allows, class divide is really the main thing. Right, age right. age a little bit, but again, more has to do with mm-hmm. class and expectations of a middle class widower and, and whatever. In all that heaven allows, in all you fear, it's the soul. It's it's obviously mostly about race, also a little bit about age, but mostly about race. Um, yeah, yeah. Fastbinder is smarter than a lot of people who would approach this material and, and, and it's not a movie about how race doesn't matter in a relationship. If I, if anything, it's better how race absolutely matters in a relationship. Mm-hmm. The, the entire heartbreaking back half of the film happens precisely because one has expectations of, of a certain race or does not take certain things into consideration. Again, when Emmy has her friends over and they're finally accepting uh, of Ali, she immediately turns it on him and starts showing off his muscles oh, without, yeah, wow. without requesting, without... And again, I mean, again, for so much of the movie, they're on such a same, the same page that I understand why they communicate with each other the way they do and, and, and why they have the relationship they do. But it is this fundamental disrespect of like, oh, I thought you got me and you didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and he doesn't need to say it out loud. He just leaves, you know, and, yeah. and it's, it's so smart and precise about, about race in, in those ways. Um, without ever having to come out and say it, that it is such an interesting and strange, intricate little movie because it is so simple, and yet there's a thousand tiny little things fidgeting in each corner of the screen that tend to change everything, little things in his performance, which the the actor himself not giving a, a particularly overstated performance. He's, he's pretty mellow throughout the film. He's would not be at a place in a Brisson movie. But again, little little minute changes in his tone and things like that are given such care. And there's never condescension towards him. Um, there's never... In fact, there are moments intentionally not to build him up. The 
the title comes from a beautiful thing he says and and mm-hmm. and uh he's not speaking his native language so everything he says comes out pretty simple the way in which someone who is speaking a second language often does but he still finds the grace in that and the and the beauty in that and that there's so many ways in which that's turned into an ugly thing rather than a true evocation of how smart and beautiful someone can be yeah i mean as like as far as i've seen a fassbender which is actually not as much as i think um this is my favorite film of his i mean this is i think it was probably the first one i saw too but i think yeah you're absolutely right that it's just so razor sharp precise in how not only it's like achieving the melodrama the melodramatic aspects but also it's not doing what he you know he would he would do in later films with with the aesthetics but it's getting to those emotional undercurrents just so precisely through very subtle moments and performances. I mean, I wasn't able to watch it again, so it's been a number of years since I've seen it, but one thing that always sticks out to me is the sort of these two shots, I think. Um, Emmy's a cleaning woman, and so the women always discuss, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. at the stairwells, um, on their lunch breaks, they're always just gossiping me i believe is left out at the beginning she's you know ostracized and eventually she's brought in after she's sort of found more confidence and happiness with ali uh and i think this is when people have accepted well it's yeah it's the it's towards the right towards the end and so then they you know as she moves in you know just as fassbender's camera moved to show her at the end it shows you know the new woman who they've excluded and it it just shows who's like, also an immigrant yeah from right poland, i think right who's and a, she herself was uh or her husband was from poland as well right right yeah. so you know it shows like just how these cycles or how these societal sort of norms that we see sort of you know eating the soul in many ways right. just uh, sort of subtly repeat themselves and like how the desire to be sort of accepted um and yeah you know brought into a broader society will always you know kind of be this vicious circle in a lot of ways i think that's just one of the one of the most like simplest and not even simplest but just like elemental expressions of that right and there's and there's something so wonderful also about the famous last scene of all that heaven allows is after Rock Hudson has fallen because he sees Jane Wyman again and he falls, injures himself, and he hopefully will get better, but the movie ends on a sort of ambiguous note with a deer appearing in the end mm. um, as almost a sign of sign of hope uh, if you want to read it that way. And with Jane Wyman by his side and, and in, in Ali Fierce's soul, it's, it's, which by the way, that scene in of itself reverberated from Magnificent Session, the movie they made previously, but that's another thing with the roles reversed. That's another thing. Yes. In in Ellie Fury's The Soul, it's it's this weird, beautiful reverberation of that where, after Ali has has left and she has abused him, she's mistreated him and she's not not respected him in the way that she should have, and she has become in every way pretty much exactly the person that she was so importantly standing up against. Right. Including um, Fassbender himself as her yeah. son-in-law. Right. Even that's a really fascinating character. Yeah. Yeah. Because of his non-reaction. Right. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's a real POS. Um, <laughs> but, but 
what's so interesting about that last scene is actually what the doctor says. Yeah. Um, oh, there's it's, it's this so very important. quiet underlining of, of what's going on in the movie where he says, oh, he has a, a busted ulcer, um, which if you know anything about ulcers are generally caused by inter- intense amounts of internal stress. So you have this character who is, who is peaceful and earnest and sweet and speaks simply, but again at the last moment of the movie you get this dash thrown in of like no this is the reality he has to live in and he has to live with these anxieties he has to live with these things going through him and the doctor even explicitly says oh yeah it's pretty common with with workers like them speaking about immigrants and and it's just this moment where fassbender turns this moment from all the heaven allows which is one of sort of love enduring and, and love blossoming even in, in harsh times into one of attempted reconciliation, but almost honestly guilt more than anything. Um, and, and, and despair having, which, by the way, the most Fassbinder thing ever, of course, of instead of it being about love blooming, it is about uh, <laughs> disappointment and guilt and shame um, and wishing you could have been better for that person. And, and, and it is interesting because the dynamics of it are so simple and yet so perfectly executed. And, and this is not my favorite Fastbinder, but I would be crazy to in any way try to take it down a peg because it is so acutely realized and fits so perfectly in his oeuvre of people feeling rejected and inevitably starting cycles of self-hatred it's a wonderful movie and and i'm happy that it has the reputation that it does and it's so interesting that well i think for for many reasons partly because it is so achingly sincere um throughout and uh, also that I, i still find it fascinating it's shot under in under two weeks and planned as an exercise in filmmaking for Fassbender in, in between his making of, of Martha and Effie Briest. And you just have this film which has emerged so in such a gleaming fashion. And I think part of it, part of the reason why I gravitate so strongly to it is that it feels a lot more expansive than other Fassbenders because, simply because he explores so much of this society and so much of this society. Sure, maybe there is the... That the people act in ways that are prescribed, but they're prescribed by society. They're not prescribed solely by the whims of Fassbender. They're very clearly designed for, for this purpose, and this pers- purpose is so indicative of the ways in which people act. And you have so many details, like you have the fact that Emmy was a former member of the Nazi Party, and you have this moments right after she wakes up after their their first night together, and she has this visible resistance and almost disgusts before she embraces him in uh, in the bathroom. And so you have, and and of course her th- that their first dinner as a married couple is literally in the restaurant where Hitler used to dine. Uh, so so you have Vassbender all is always complicating your relationship to these characters, and yet because their love is so tender, because it's so achingly realized, it emerges as this very beautiful thing and just um, in terms of the direction like the first two shots alone these very carefully thought through shots in the bar as first emmy enters through the door and then this immaculately ordered or 
blocked set of, of of bodies in the frame looking at all looking in the direction of the door I and mean, you it's just immediate and you and you just have such a stillness throughout it, it in that way i think that that might be or, or among many things but that's one of the things that feels like fassbender brought most to the fundamental material that that all the heaven laws acts on is this sense of lingering on these moments so heavily while still conveying much of the sweep that gives it, it's it's particular charge i mean i think it's probably up there with um chunking express as one of like the masterpieces that its production seemed to be tossed off <laughs> almost yeah that's that's definitely true i mean i feel like probably a, a lot of fassbenders had a if, if maybe not quite so abbreviated still very uh yeah it's just so careful it's so there are so many scenes where it shifts from one mode to the next. I think one, the most emblematic one for me is the one scene that there is in the auto shop that, that Ali works at, where it's a, it feels very theatrical in its staging. You have the, all the characters, the auto shop workers arrayed in a, in a line. What one of them is up, is up on a ladder or, or staircase or something like that. And the way that they talk is very theatrical. And yet when Emmy arrives, there is this intense, silent interplay of of their close-ups on faces as ali he first laughs at her at the joke that about at the a joke directed towards emmy and then without saying anything it very subtly changes it's just absolutely beautiful i feel like there's a definitely a great possibility that fassbender that that this might not end up being my my favorite fassbender whenever i get around to most of the films if not all of them but it's a piercing work in every single way. Yeah, absolutely. The next film is another retrospective title. It's uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Enfants Terribles, based on the novel by Jean Cocteau and narrated uh, by Jean Cocteau, <laughs> pro- Very- presumably from the novel. Um, Probably. Yeah. yeah, and it basically follows a brother and sister... Um, the brother Paul, who is <laughs> injured in a snow a snowball fight at his boarding school, and uh, yeah, becomes infirm and lies in bed, um, while his sister Elizabeth uh, looks after him and their mother, and it it sort of follows um, the two of them as they kind of move up and up in society while the dynamic stays basically the same for the most part, or Paul is sort of always whiny and, uh, you know, uh, injured somehow, always in some sort of position where Elizabeth is uh, really like the one taking care of the family. Eventually she marries uh, fairly wealthy and they move into a mansion. So And the and the husband dies right after Yeah, the husband dies immediately accident. after. Yeah. <laughs> and so they kind of create this almost entourage sort of right. of uh, those who work around them and for them. And then yeah, Elizabeth sort of pushes two of two of them, Gerard and Agathe, the two I don't remember if they work for them or not. Well, no, uh, none of them work for them, I think. Okay. But, uh, right. Okay. It's kind of sure. sort of yeah, it seems like though. Yeah, Gerard but... is a school friend, I think, of, right, of right. Paul and I, don't I think remember, the guy who threw yeah, who threw the fatal snowball at him. No, it was uh, a different one. Oh yeah, that's right. Dargelos. Yeah. Right. Who and also so... plays a geth. And this <laughs> resemblance is noted. I actually didn't know that they were played by the same actress. Uh, right. Mm. And so basically Elizabeth 
pushes Gerard and Agath to marry each other so that she and Paul can stay in the same home right. all to themselves. Um, yeah. And it ends with both of them dying or both of them killing right. themselves. Yeah. This is a, it's, it's ba- very, very <laughs> it's, odd movie. Yeah. It's, it's very much in, or I guess it's difficult to call it very much in, but it's some, it's operating in the same vein as say, uh, a uh, fist in the pocket or a uh, Sandra to a certain extent, that yeah. sort of insane family. And this one is yeah. perhaps possibly the most insane of them all. And I was not feeling it for most, for a large portion of it, but somehow the particular strange, the particular strangeness, the ver- the deliberately overheated style that Melville deploys. This is his second film. Yeah. And the, and especially Cocteau's narration, I think is very important because of how wry and dry it is it is very much uh and yet it has certain elegance to it as well it's it's very much in the sort of summative way frequently talking about the emotions and the mindset that the characters are experiencing at that time yeah and a lot of it is just your mileage will definitely vary definitely vary for me but on the how much fun you find out of these two people being just absolutely terrible to each other yeah they are truly terrible and and they frequently talk about this sort of game that they're playing and it's never quite clear exactly when they're playing it or not at certain points they say oh we haven't played it for a while but right i mean it feels like they ought to because of how (laughs) awful and deliberately disruptive they are being to each other but i do like the shadowy nature of the shots and there is Perhaps the first instance of the Spike Lee double dolly shot in it, right. which is an unexpected uh, occurrence. It's far more a cocktail film than a Melville film, <laughs> um, you know, in a number of ways. You know, Melville being a sort of newer director and cocktail sort of, I think he chose Melville um, for this film, I believe. So it yeah. kind of has that sort of dreamy logic and, uh, you know, what... I definitely took to most was sort of towards the end is how Paul, after they've acquired the mansion, Paul sort of recreates his childhood room in there. And, you know, Elizabeth comes in, she says it's the only room that feels alive in this house. Yeah. And so huge, utterly ridiculous mansion. Yeah. That's described as ridiculous and done by someone who doesn't know what they're doing or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen this movie in a number of years, but uh, I actually have—I've seen it a couple times, and also I, I've read the book um, that it's based off of by Cocteau, and I, I like the book mm-hmm. a lot. I'm not as hot on the movie precisely because Melville's approach seems—I'm not gonna say antithetical, but it does not seem quite geared in the same in the same or an interesting enough direction to cause sort of an an interesting tension it just seems as though he is turning this into a genre movie um and 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 i'm not i'm not the biggest melville fan but i also hardly dislike him but i do wish that someone who feels more suited to the material maybe could have had a crack at it say if jean vigo had still been alive uh i i think uh, uh, him approaching this material would have been extraordinary or even, you know, I, I mean, obviously like Cocteau directing it uh, would be great. 
but there's just something there's something about it that is never quite worked for me um not saying i I dislike it uh but it's always been a little bit uh it's always been a little bit wonky that i I kind of wish him or marcel carnet or or had vigo lived you know someone like him working through that meter i think that that makes a lot more sense than melville with his push-ins and, and his very intense, his very intense framing, which again does give a particular level of psychology and 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 presence to the movie, but I don't think the movie really needs that. At least from from what I remember, uh, it's been it's yeah. been some time, so I should probably revisit it. But it, it's always been a a weird object. As as I really like Cocteau and I like plenty of later Belleville films, but. So it doesn't quite do it for me. Yeah, it's it's yeah. This definitely like a tradition of sort of this lightly surreal, sort of dreamy French mm-hmm. cinema, and Melville just like isn't a part of it at all. And yet somehow he was enlisted to make this. And yeah, like it, it sort of yeah lends this basically noir sensibility to something that you know like one scene in a noir film could feel like, but to extend. Yeah, to like extend that out to an entire movie that has a you know entirely different set of circumstances and you know just an entirely different milieu than what I think Melville maybe wants to be filming is yeah it kind of it creates this very strange tension. Although you know I do enjoy the stylistic tricks. I just yeah definitely wish they were a little more thought thought out. Yeah, yeah. it's not even that it's you know, unwatchable or, 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 no, or not, rough, not by any stretch. Rough, um, yeah. Rough at all. It's just that, I don't know. Melville's approach to the material seems, it seems again, it's like, it's a Cocteau screenplay with Cocteau sort of guiding his hand around it. Yeah. And then it feels like Melville is trying to be Clouseau making Diabolique. Um, and yeah. it's, and, and it's sort of just like, at least that register over that text has never quite worked for me. Um, but I'd be exci- I'd be interested in seeing it again because it it has been some time. I just do like how he stacks faces in the frames, and just the overness, the extraness of it. I guess you could say, <laughs> uh, of just a lot of it. It's a great bathrobe movie. Oh, <laughs> lots of great bath bathrobes in it, or just lounging around bathrobes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that time again. <laughs> we have arrived at yet another <laughs> Jacques Rivette film. This is perhaps arguably his best-known film, Celine and Julie Go Boating. And I know that we were going on about the overpowering greatness of, of Outline, and, and, and I was th- thinking that it would be a few more years before we got to one of those times when we discussed a film that's top 10 for me, but we have arrived at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Celine and Julie Go Boating is first time for me uh, and it is just one of those films where it pushes every single one of my buttons and around 20 that I didn't know I had it's that level of delightful and also terrifying and strange and beautiful and all of those different descriptors I it is just incredible on every single level for me yeah it was it was my first time watching it to, and uh, I, I watched it a little bit less than 24 hours ago and it's funny because as I was watching it it was like it was something that had been around my whole life um, yes, something yeah. that had oh, been man. omnipresent 
in the periphery of both my cinephilia and and in the in, in the constructions and understandings I have of of cinema, and it's so funny to watch it and watch it be realized and watch it be realized so effortlessly and so mm. fleetly and s- with such care and joy and mirth. Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen six or seven Rivette features. I can't I can't really remember at this point. And so it was sort of, you know, inevitable that I was going to make it to Celine and Julie. It was just a, a circumstance of it's the most popular one. I'll be able to see it sometime. Yada, yada, yada. And I kept putting it off and kept putting it off and kept putting it off. And it's so funny that, that I that I did because it feels in so many ways like such a clear evocation of exactly who he is as an artist. And it's, it's hilarious to me that this is his most popular, which I get it. It's a fun movie. Mm-hmm. But it, the second half is quite literally a treatise on the construction of art and the understanding yes. of the human mind through creative endeavors. So it is kind of like insane to me that it's like, wait, this is the popular one? Like, okay, yeah, I'm not expecting it to be the 13-hour one, but this is pretty, this is pretty out there. It's it's miraculous, and and I'm still frankly mm-hmm. just reeling, and I, I don't even know how much I have to say on it, frankly, because it's it is one of those changing experiences where you you start to realize things, and and not even just mm-hmm. echoes of things I've I've seen in other films, which are clearly working in a similar register. Uh, anyone who knows me pretty well knows that I'm a large, I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge uh, fan of a Peach Pongress ethical. And, and the entire back part of Cemetery's Splendor, which largely, you know, uh, involves a, a building of an imaginary space to resolve this particular issue is, and to explore it is, is so clearly an evocation and a, and a continuation of everything that Rivetta is doing here and it's just funny because watching it it felt like I had known it my whole life when I'd never seen I don't think a single scene from it ever yeah I mean it's it's just an incredible experience I mean it's like you it elevate it's like elevating but at the same time you know yeah I, it, I, I it's one of like the perfect representations of like Rivette's genius for yeah deconstructing like expectations of cinema and storytelling and yeah art making but at the same time in the most fun and fleet and joyous manner I mean like the the dynamic between um Juliette Berto and um Dominique Laborier yeah Dominique Laborier as um Celine and Julie is just like one of the greatest like cinematic you know pairings of actresses you could possibly ask for Mm. uh they meet in like a library well so the the film begins with this chased through the streets of Paris. Right. <laughs> so, so, you, yeah. first, you first watch a cat ready to pounce. <laughs> Which if, is like the perfect Rivette image. Right, yeah. exactly. And then suddenly, Juliet Berto comes running out, drops something with a scarf. Uh, and, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so... Right. Right, right yeah. she runs after her, and, and it starts this chase of a chase... With with no beginning and no end, it's so it's just so funny of, of like, it's like why why have I not 
seen this movie already um, because it is so many things about both Rivette and film that are so incredible and so life affirming and you know within a span of 10 minutes it says uh, someone says line boa cockstrictor and then uh, <laughs> someone else says go jack off in the bushes yeah. <laughs> so you know yeah we're working on very high levels here of, of <laughs> yeah. giving the people what they want. Yeah. But no, I mean, it, it reminds me of almost in the way that like Lubitsch was, was yeah, one of the best um, at, at communicating through codes and games. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, and that his cinema was one of, and I mean, partly because it necessitated, it needed to, but his, his was one of codes and the way in which you can, in both like the, immediate sense and like the very bored well sense of being able to conceal and and enrich the meaning of something by hiding it in motion in gesture in an edit Just nobody is better than that in Jacques Rivette nobody's better at linking two people to each other yeah. through an edit through just a glance through the right. smallest sliver of a look and, and an edit, no one is quite as capable of, of, of linking people in the way that he does. And he, he, his establishment of rhythms, his establishment of, of place and time and the way they shape the way we interact with each other on a very, 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 very basic level is, is incredible. And, and as you're watching it, he's teaching you how to watch the movie. He's teaching mm-hmm. you what you need to be doing, what you need to be watching, what you need to be working with and working through and working against. And it's, it's just revelatory. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. We should probably, I mean, the plot yeah yeah i mean not even the plot but just the very basic like construction which is that they eventually through their various sort of misadventures which includes a lot of digressions as rivet always Mm -hmm. does they eventually find this house that they enter where they encounter this sort of henry james-esque soap opera basically (laughs) melodrama Uh, sort of yeah very rote melodrama that um they kind of go in and and leave and then they they return and well they they, well the the key thing is that they after they're forcefully ejected out of it they can't remember anything so they right eat this can this this candy right to re-experience it and in and Absolutely, there's so many holes, so they have to keep going back and and right. And, they and try to figure holes, out like yeah. every detail Which, of it. I mean, yeah. they're essentially. I mean, it's essentially a movie about tripping. Like, yeah. it's essentially they take acid <laughs> it's a, every it's time. It's a drug. It's a it's a great drug. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie about tripping with your friends <laughs> <Yeah>. repeatedly. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then Boulle Ogier uh, yeah. appears in in the house, uh, you know, the house of fiction, so to speak. Maybe um, eventually they they take it so many times that they they kind of becomes this freeing, like right. the story itself that they have starts to break down, yeah. and you know, and they Ogier, can affect it, they, right? They they have become yeah. parts of it. They enact yeah. this mad quest in order to rescue the the young girl who's right. who's murdered at the end of each day right right they, yeah, yeah a little girl yeah yeah and dies. seemingly they they succeed and right. then the film restarts again but with the roles switched right i mean this this is one of this is with the exception of Mulholland drive this is 
the greatest persona swap film <laughs> because it is so hard to pin down exactly what is being exchanged because you have all these like the the second day that is depicted in the film it's a or i guess the third day it's this it seems like they're almost completely different people and that they're inhabiting each other and yet there's there's still the fundamental level of performance that's involved in it and you have and sometimes they adopt different personas within that and right. so you have such a slippery interplay between them and they are they give two of the best performances that I've that I've seen I think mm-hmm. and especially Berto partly because I'm more, much more familiar with Julie Berto but just every single glance she gives all every, all of the costumes are absolutely incredible <laughs> it's yeah yeah, I mean, I mean, the movie, the back half of the movie, largely consists of them watching a movie together yes. in some sense, yeah. and and constructing the narratives and changing the things in in the ways that they can control and change the story as it is happening. Uh, and, and I was just looking up things about it, and so excuse. Uh, if this is a excuse me if this is a fact that everybody who's ever watched this movie knows <laughs> I'm a little late to the party but uh, Ayaren Boutot which is like to go boating it also yes. is a French euphemism for getting caught up in a story that somebody's telling you right, right. Like right. right. So, so while obviously near the end of the film there is a literalization of that <laughs> it in of itself is a moment of them existing in a narrative that they've created for themselves, but not in a, in not in a way that is delusional, in a way that is empowering, in a way that is, right. in a way that it is, creating the world they should have, rather than feeling victim to, the one imposed on them. Um, right. It's the most fourth wall breaking movie of all time because it never does. Um, yes. And it, and it's just. It's this wonderful, strange. You know, it could be it could be a thesis paper, and it and it's a joy every minute to watch. Um, all, you know, a hundred and ninety-five minutes. You know, uh, God knows he knows how to make a fleet long-ass movie. Um, I mean, there's there's even a point where she literally yells, "We're not in a mellow anymore." You know. Um, <laughs> it's a perpetually self-aware film that is never winking that is never too cute despite how joyous it is it's Mm. it it is so many platonic ideals about cinema of 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 what's capable and and what you can give and i'm i'm just so happy to have learned about the films of jacques rafet because he has so severely changed my definition and my understanding of cinema and of certain aspects of life as well uh and and i'm just now in this moment beginning my relationship with this movie and i know it'll be something that i will foster for a very long time absolutely yeah i'm it's it is the the central conceit is the perfect metaphor for cinema because there is no camera because it's much more about arts in general and and it intersects with the inherently theatrical the inherently theatrical nature of this this very staid melodrama because you each 
new setup, each new shot offers a different insight. And because frequently, or depending on who's viewing it, it all, the the maid that is the player avatar, I guess you could say, <laughs> alternates between Celine and Julie, depending on who's watching it. And so you have this sort of expansiveness that is inherently constrained by what you're actually seeing. And within those constraints, Rivette is able to suggest so much more. And he he is able to make these metaphors seem totally applicable to all manifestations of art while making it about cinema because that is what you're watching and that's what both the viewer presumably is most familiar with and especially Rivet himself because he was even even after up to this point uh, he was the most dedicated of the of the of the Kaya crew um, in, in terms of actual cinephilia you have this sense of someone who has thoroughly metabolized all these influences. You have cinema, you have theater, you have magic, both stage because that's what what Celine practices. There's a extended scene where where um, of of her performing magic, and also a more supernatural witchcraft, which is what Julie is is interested in. There's a tarot card reading. She's reading the she's reading a book of spells and seemingly casts one that that arguably sets the plot in motion to a certain extent and also at the end when she's the one running past she that's what the book that's the thing that she drops and you have literature as well and especially Alice in Wonderland and I mean you even have a reference to explicit evocation of Les Vampires with them breaking into a, a library and stealing books while dressed up like Musidora in, in a in in a black suit. I mean, you have like this film somehow, even though it focuses resolutely on Celine and Julie, it feels damn near as expansive as Out One. And your your point about the jubilant triumph uh, triumph of it, the um, in his piece about Mother and the Horror, uh, Jonathan Rosebaum pointed to that and Out One as as two of the concrete. Uh, concrete post 68 despairing films and he says for a more feminist and a more more uplifting and joyous uh end to the 268 and to the new wave he pointed to Celine and Julie and I think that's absolutely correct you have it is in many ways the end of an era and yet it feels like everything is just beginning right and that's such a beautiful yeah. thing to, to to really see it is and and the only rivette i've ever had trouble with uh duel uh well i've had trouble with every rivette but the, the only <laughs> one i've actually love. the the only one i've actually left disliking uh duel a movie you'll discuss on a future podcast is working in a similar register and working along similar lines but never has the through line that Celine and Julie can give you. Um, that this is something that you're experiencing with them. It's not something. It's not something happening in a vacuum. It's something happening to someone right now. Um, and and it is a, a movie about the idea of the present and the ability to enact upon it. Uh, and it's so wonderful <laughs> yeah i mean the 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 sort of 
subtitle is almost more delightful and Phantom Ladies over Paris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, it's just the, the film, I guess maybe, maybe it's, it's interesting to see this as a comparison without one because in a sense it is more controlled and it's, I guess, more developed, like the less handheld, for instance, and the, we should say the, the scripts, it was de- developed in collaboration between Rivette, Le Bourrier, Berthaud, uh, Bleu Auger, and Marie-France Pizier, uh, for the four main actresses, Auger and Pizier, in the, in the fantasy. The fiction house. Uh. The fiction, yeah, yeah the fiction, fiction house. House of fiction, yes. And also uh, Eduardo de Gregorio, uh, as the, who collaborated with the dialogue, I think. And you have that sense of all these characters, both so fully etched and yet slightly and yet purposefully out of grasp because they are always changing because they are always reassessing their position within the within the film and it's just i I love the digressions almost almost more than the actual central story like the like the um this courtship that that julie has with her with her cousin which is taken over by celine and there's this amazing dance in the middle of a park that ends with the line that you that you mentioned the go jack off in the in the rose bushes <laughs> and you have this strange reunion i guess that that julie has with her grandmother i think just in the house right next door that never gets brought up again mm-hmm. and those digressions are as formed and this amazing scene where where celine talks about this this uh this female American lover that, that like rich lover or something that she, that she has um, right after she's met Julie. And it's not necessarily clear whether she's referring to her or not, but it's either way, just a total lie in every sense. But because Berto is one of the most magnetic for me act actors in film or in anything really, but in, especially in film and she has such a presence and such a liveliness it, it's just, it's just amazing. I was also really taken with the editing, just because it's, it is, it definitely cuts more than like a out one. It a lot, a lot of the way that it that it gets its rhythm is by these these very quick cut-ins to a, a close-up or or a, certainly a closer shot of an action that's in progress. And so you have that sense of the off-kilter nature of the characters established through this, through this editing. Right. The editing is such a key part of it because it's not it's not Ravettian in the way that it's going to let a scene play out and play out and play out and play out and play out uh, as, as actors are improvising. Not saying that there isn't an element of improvisation to this, but it is a lot more of a specific realization rather than creating a space where something can happen. Um, it is it is a, a forceful object of specificity, you know. Yeah, yeah, and yet it is, and it's specific. It's specific about something that is inherently total and expansive, and in that way, it it acts as a maybe a slightly more focused, and yet focused in its unfocused nature and it's just the i will forever cherish many many things from this film but especially just the image of silly and julie just sitting next to each other staring slack jawed at the camera as they're watching it's occasionally like 
giggling or 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 gasping at one point Celine almost chokes on the candy that she <laughs> swallowed and she has to <laughs> cough it out and they take a quick break before going back and the magic or the two stage performances Celine gives one where she's doing magic and Julie gives another one where it's initially sort of a song and dance sort of thing that quickly becomes this very emotional thing that culminates in her uttering the immortal phrase cosmic twilight pimps <laughs> <laughs> If that's not cinema, what is cinema? That's right. It's miraculous. As I said, for top ten, but I mean that almost that almost seems inadequate for expressing how much this film. Like, I was cackling it many times during this film, just like from the sheer joy of it all, from the sheer inventiveness of it all. It's just and this like just vaulted Jacques Rivette forward for me. It's just in every way, just utterly astonishing. stretch yeah. of films we have no more rivets to discuss yeah, so. no more no one no one nearly as interesting <laughs> no, <laughs> no. that's not true but you know no one nearly as uh leading us to digressions anyway yeah we have uh alice in the cities this is vim vendor's uh first probably notable film yeah. uh, def- not his first film but his first that kind of gained any recognition um outside of germany so this is from 1974 and the black and white film um, 16 millimeter yeah 16 millimeter shot by robbie mueller so mm-hmm. uh, we got rip some... pour one out yeah, yeah pour one still he made it to the oscar montage um but he <laughs> follows um the reporter uh vinter philip vinter. philip vinter um as he writes a report on america or something like that yeah. Uh, driving through sort of North Carolina beach towns, eventually making it to New York, where he uh, meets Alice and her mother. Um, her mother sort of uh, kind of leaves them after he befriends them a little bit, and he's left to take care of Alice. And they fly back to Germany, um, going through different German cities, uh, looking for Alice's grandparents, uh, who will take them there. So it's a bit of a yeah, of course, it's a Vin Vendors movie, so it's a road movie yeah. in some some way or another. Uh, a bit of a a bit of a buddy movie too, but mostly, I mean, my favorite part of this film is the first thirty minutes, where it's just yeah. a solitary I expression do. of, you know, a sort of West German view of America through filtered through these sort of black and white images. Once Alice kind of 
gets in the film, it, <laughs> the film sort of loses momentum. But, um, you know, this is, it's, it's got a lot of Vim Vendors-isms um, already. <laughs> but it does, you know, I think it, it, it shows some of his stronger points as well, especially that sort of outsider's view of um, an American landscapes and, you know, in Germany as well. But yeah. really watching Vendors in America through a German perspective rather than, you know, Paris, Texas, which is much better known, where he's filming American characters for the most part. Um, that That's really, I think, the strong point of this film. Yeah, I, I do. I, I did actually really take to this film. I was, I was surprised partly because it is so simple in the way it goes about it feel it is and it feels even looser somehow than some of his other road movies because of it's just a, really about the search but then the the journey very quickly supersedes the search because of how vague alice's memories of where her grandmother lives are and i i think just the various digressions or various details that includes are very they add a lot, a, a lot to it. I think the defining image for me is this shot from from the passenger seat of the car where Alice is sitting. You don't see Alice in the frame; it's just the the cam- camera looking out, and it's the this boy riding on a on a bicycle, pat like keeping up with the car. It's not. I, I can't say for sure if that's actually a document. Uh, uh, if that's a, the boy was an actor or not, or if he was just doing it just because he was curious about the camera. And I think that sense of freeness is very important to vendors films in general, but it's especially this one because of how peripatetic it is. And I, I find the buddy aspect of it. They're so mismatched and they changed and they changed relatively little that. And I, I liked that a lot about it. Would you uh, like to go, go Jason? <laughs> I am less of a Vim Vendors fan than either of you guys, certainly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like one Vim Vendors movie, and that is the one with Dennis Hopper, uh, American yeah. Friend, coming up for you in a later podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, great movie. It made me think of a career Vim Vendors had where he actually made interesting movies. <laughs> he just made like genre movies with good character actors instead of movies starring pretty nondescript white dudes roaming around <laughs> with essentially no actual thoughts to themselves. Don't, don't, don't call Hayden Stanton nondescript. <sighs> he isn't. And Paris, Texas will evade my wrath for now. Okay. okay. Uh, All right. <laughs> but it still remains the same. And I, I, I always have this distance of vendor movies because, again, he, he'll he'll intentionally cite such specific things, but there never seems to be uh, an acute, uh, anything precise about his movies. And and mm-hmm. sure, obviously they're meant to be a little bit more open. They're meant to be a little bit more relaxed, but I, I fundamentally feel like I'm watching a wet noodle of just, <laughs> just something with, something with no actual structure that just hopes it'll stumble upon something interesting enough because the people involved are, are talented enough to film something that looks good. And, and you know, this is in no way a denigration of Robbie Mueller, who is one of cinema's great image makers, um, who's fantastic and, and frequently some of his best work was with Vim Benders. It literally feels like tripping over himself for hours 
just trying to find something that they can film. And I, and I understand it's a road movie, it's shambling, it's supposed to be like that, but there's something so deeply uninteresting about almost every Vim Vender's main character. Um, you know, I'll say Paris, Texas does not, that's not quite true. And, but even, even, you know, even Wings of Desire, as great as Bruno Gantz is, it's, it's largely empty-headed characters um, just roaming. And, and, and I understand that is his M.O. Um, but it's frustrating to me, and I, I've never been able to quite reconcile that um, with, his, with what is his supposed appeal, you know? Um, it's, it's shambly and disconnected in a way that doesn't make me yearn and does not make me have nostalgia or does not make me think uh it just exists in front of me and i move on with my life (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i definitely agree that like his main characters are mainly ciphers to sort of roam and like be an excuse for the image making i feel like vendors could almost be I mean, like, he could be, I, I, having not seen The American Friend, I could see him maybe doing, like, a great genre movie career. He could also have, a, have an alternate career as, like, a James Benning landscape <laughs> film-style filmmaker. Right. It's I just mean, all I, shot I, from cars. Yeah. I'm not against him being Ansel Adams. The issue yeah. is he, he, he feels like he needs to make narrative art. Yeah. Um, except for when he hasn't recently particularly, but... But generally speaking, (laughs) generally speaking, he he, he does feel the need to make narrative art. And and again, he'll cite something that does have like a sense of nostalgia or a sense of wistfulness, like raise lusty men. But no movie he has ever made could ever possibly have the grounding and the the actual human on human relationships that a movie like that has that any Nick Ray movie has. And so it seems laughable for me to, for him to try and evoke these sort of, these sort of longings, um, because I don't understand what there is to long for. Uh, I, I, I can't, you can't make me feel nostalgic for something that hasn't happened and, and something has to happen in your movie for me to, for, for me to care about a character, you know, I just, yeah. He, he creates largely gray, uninteresting blobs of movies to me, for the most part. And and sometimes they have a little bit more shading around the edges, or sometimes they have an actor I like. But it doesn't shock me that, again, like, oh, the guy who made the canonical masterpiece, Wings of Desire, also makes, like, shitty movies with James Franco in yeah. 3D. You know, like, it, it doesn't... It, to me, that makes complete sense, because mm. his movies are such amorphous blobs and and i have at least yet to find the joy in those well photographed amorphous blobs i think it just fundamentally depends on whether he finds the rhythm or not i think a frequent i i haven't seen most of his or any of his later narrative films but i think there is when he's able to find something and stick with it in a really def- um, a way that I, at least I find definable like like here certainly with Paris Texas I think that there is a very a very strong liveliness that I find at least because I don't think he's necessarily about nostalgia 
more so just the actual act of looking at the actual act of perceiving as you go along this journey. And I think that he is able to establish that foundation very well. Um, but it definitely, I can, I can definitely see cer- certainly there is a great deal of, of variance in how much I was feeling it for certain scenes in Alice in the Cities. But I think that I did think that there, I, I did find a lot to really latch onto. Yeah. I will, I will say God also punished me for disliking Vim Vendor's movies by cursing him with fantastic taste in music. The score yeah. for Alice in the, the score for Alice in the Cities is by Can. Yeah, who, right. Who they recorded it in one day, so it's not necessarily yeah. the most Can thing of right. all time, but certainly that's so, a consistent yeah. through line in his work yeah, of right. like really. I don't know if you've ever seen the. Uh, the soundtrack to um, what is it? Until the end of the world. Yeah, I've seen until then. Oh, it's I have film. not, and I don't think I will. Yeah. but uh, the soundtrack is fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, I will say that as someone who finally discovered Ken for the first time this uh, this year, and uh, if you have to choose between uh, between Tagomago and Alice in Cities, one hundred percent go for Tagomago. One of the great works of art of the twentieth century. Uh, but yeah, it's a, and also I, I do like the strange Chuck Berry digression in House in the Cities. Yes. <laughs> where, actually, uh, yeah, that's very good. It was apparently different footage yeah, than from, what they'd actually shot yeah. because Chuck Berry just wouldn't allow yeah. them to. Yeah. <laughs> Concert footage taken in Toronto by D.A. Pennebaker. Yeah. So. <laughs> Some strange work Yeah, around. decolorized apparently. So that's why it yeah. looks kind of strange, but. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, like yeah, the sort of detours and digressions mm-hmm. that the film makes don't always make sense. I would much prefer to see a film of Philip Vinter ending up at the beach in North Carolina <laughs> than where the yeah. film starts. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that I think starts in the completely wrong place, but it does mm-hmm. have you know those hypnotic first thirty minutes yeah. where he like is kind of super tired and watches. Um, young Mr. Lincoln on the TV <laughs> and you it's have Moro's Polaroid taking. Yeah. And you have that strange, um, finger heart or mouth. Oh, yeah. Harp. Juice, juice harp. Yeah. yeah that, um, that, that Henry Fonda is playing mm-hmm. and that sound sort of reverberates. Right. But you know, otherwise I, I could, I could take or leave a lot of, a lot of Alice in the cities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The next film in this festival is, La Paloma, another Swiss film, this time from the German-speaking side, directed by Daniel Schmidt, who had a film in last year's New Director's New Films. Uh, I can't quite remember the name. But it's a, it's this is a, another discovery for me. I, I was oddly... I found it very strange, and if not necessarily totally, um, totally successful, I think there's a lot to latch onto. And... I guess if there is a sort of bingo card for Catalyst and Witness, it would, for me, it would definitely be Renazian. <laughs> but this is certainly, it, it reminded me a lot of Rene in the way it operates. It, the film is, it's roughly, it, it's kind of hard to describe because it operates, it, like there's certain sections where it's doing different things, but it's, it basically surrounds this relationship between. Viola, played by Fassbinder regular Ingrid Kevin, and Isidore, played by Peter Kern, and this this relationship that's founded entirely on his 
undying love for her and her sort of acceptance of this at the the film opens with this almost near abstract sort of casino setting and the film transitions into this central story after the after this performance by i think a i think a stage performer played by kevin who's performing to presumably isidore's character so you can infer that's a dream sequence or a fantasy or something of that sort or even a premonition and the um, as the fantasy begin, or as this section begins, Viola is this actress who's starring in the in the play or opera La Paloma, um, and and she is she's given only a few weeks to live, and so the and so she decides to accept Isidore's love, and somehow over the next three years she recovers, and they they eventually marry after at the behest of of the mother who, uh, of Isidore's mother who is played by Blue O'Shea who's somehow even more even more uh even more um simply there as a presence than in Celine and Julie go boating and you and after after this visit from a friend Raul one year later uh one year later Viola dies and then three three years after that Isidore writes to Raul telling him to come and as per her will and her last wishes. And the film proceeds then in flashback, just showing her progression, how she has essentially sort of planned her death, planned she's preserving her face. She, she's she's making plans for that. And the and the film climaxes with this very strange sort of twisting of his obsession with her by her having him uh demanding of him in her will to to place her in her urn which necessitates uh chopping up her body which is which is done like so, so that the body is just out of frame but it's this very strange the one of the descriptions i saw compares it to like a grand guignol sort of uh ploy which i sort of get but and then it goes back into the casino and it's a what really distinguishes this film for me is its very strong stillness. It's very, it's very quiet. It's the very little movement in the actual frame, and I can't really say how much of this is totally. It's it's trying to be totally abstract, and how much of it is purely just the just the way it actually it turns out. But there is it is operating on a certain level of abstraction of emotion and of of character that i find uh i find very attractive and i there's a lot of very strange things that happen in it but it's it throughout it maintains this veneer of of elegance and and um just gracefulness that that is that helps establish a more uh coherent aesthetic I'm excited to check it out. It yeah. seems unique and, and yes. not necessarily the type of film that would always show up in a New York film festival, which precisely makes me excited to see it. Right, yeah. And the central se- sequence where the flashbacks take place is at a fireplace and reminded me of Phantom Thread <laughs> in more ways than one. Huh. So it, it's, it's just the way that he deploys certain... certain um, certain techniques like the like this use of the iris in 
right in the middle of the film or the overlaying the song over a series of conversations that are all sight are all silent on the on the sound mix or this scene where they they're singing where both both Kern and Kevin are singing this song on after their marriage on a mountaintop I mean it's very <laughs> and I and the and the score changes between this very conventional score and this very operatic sort of song and this electronic drone sort of thing that <laughs> it has a lot of different things that that go well go on in it um and the and frequently the faces almost seem entirely surrounded by shadow maybe it was the file quality or maybe it was just the particular quality that that um that schmidt wanted but it's a it's a strange film i think well worth it definitely a discovery for me even if it's not fully successful yeah, it's yeah. one of the few films in this lineup that doesn't have a name director, so right. it's sort of worth checking out on yeah. that front alone. The next film is another one that we weren't able to see, but another sort of familiar name to us, uh, Hermano Olmi, uh, his film The Circumstance, and this is the description. Like one fine day, Olmi's new film is set in an upper-class Milanese milieu but this time without sacrificing any of his humanity or his realistic approach, he has moved on to a different plane of filmmaking. It is richer, more complex, and the editing is more aggressive, the narrative more elliptical. The film takes place during one summer, and by September, a lot of illusions have been smashed. Each member of the family has been changed by the invasion of their ordained lives by an external event. I love smashing illusions. I love... Love smashing illusions. I love aggressive editing and elliptical narrative. I mean, based on One Fine Day, which I didn't like very much, this doesn't sound like something I like, but yeah. it sounds like something Ryan would love. <laughs> maybe. We we didn't get to see his last film in oh, the summertime, so maybe my maybe he took a dive in quality or something. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I liked One Fine Day a lot. One Fine Day a lot. But yeah, the next program is possibly the most insane program that I've seen from NIF. Uh, it is called Homage to Bunuel, and it is a retrospective program with four films, uh, four features, though one of them is slightly shorter, or is shorter than the others. And it is three films that we've cover, covered before and one that we have not. It is um, and shown in order, Lage d'Or, Exterminating Angel, The Milky Way, and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. And the copy specifies that the films are all in his most surrealistic and non-linear vein and may prove a useful refresher course and introduction to his most recent and freewheeling work, The Phantom of Liberty, which is the closing night, which we will discuss in a short while. And uh, because, Jason, I know you're a very strong fan of Boonwell, and I would we'd love to hear your thoughts on first the three films that that we've discussed before and then also on um yours and dan's thoughts on the milky way because we haven't discussed that yeah i i mean um Buñuel also uh, obviously one of the most towering figures in canonical cinema i mean uh, but one of the few that that as time has gone on has sort of sustained the same level of popularity which I find interesting usually there's some wavering going up and down but his 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 movies are so 
rooted in particular societal norms and societal structures that I feel like as time changes they move interestingly and not always better there are the new L movies who've probably gotten worse as time has gone on uh, but they move in interesting ways and as we as societies change and as we reshape our understanding of these things his movies always poke and prod and move in interesting ways um well, well, again, it's hard to say, but he's like never quite gotten the credit that he deserves because it's like, I mean, I mean, he's one of the most important canonical figures in the history of cinema. And he is retrospective everywhere, every couple of years. Um, but, but, but he's certainly a more interesting figure than I think people sometimes immediately have the impression of, um, of, of, of just a provocateur. Um, she certainly is, but, but always within a particular interesting specific realm he's working in um and, and i actually do really like the program they arranged um lodge door being his first real feature which was created in conception by him and Salvador Dali by the time production started Dali had dropped out they had already fallen out of friendship they had already fallen out out of friendship Um, from what is reported the next time they would see each other Buñuel would break Dali's nose Um, (laughs) so they clearly left things on a good note Um, Large Doors, a, a wonderful movie. You guys covered it very early on in the podcast. Second episode. Uh, all right, um, and uh, and and while I understand you guys' reservations about it, I do feel the need to step up a little bit and say it is it is definitely a, a strange beast. It's a shaggy dog. It is. Um, Buñuel was not ever trained really formally in camera equipment and 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 the basics of filming he was a conceptualist first and so uh, large door famously um contains almost all the footage shot for the movie there is almost no editing it was shot in sequence and what you see is almost entirely what was shot um which is fascinating um, and, and, and in some ways really I think works towards branding what is going on in the back of Buñuel's mind onto an image without, without ever letting too much get in the way now that obviously does make it a little bit sloppier in some respects um, but that's sort of it's sort of unevenness is part of its appeal I think um, and obviously it's a very early sound film its score is not great um, but again you could watch it on mute and it, I think it's a, a miraculous movie with um, a couple of sequences which rank very high on my favorite things I've ever seen um, and, and it does give a really good introduction to the way he often conceives of narrative um, in these very specific vignetted um episodic bursts um even even his most straight narrative works um still tend to be heavily episodic your Viridianas, your Belle de Jours um even that obscure object of desire Uh, most of his even a movie like Tristiana the ones which feel like they have a plot 
that mostly is going straight forward are still by their nature wildly digressive, wildly vignetted, and pretty, pretty choppy and episodic. Um, so Lobs Door is in that way a perfect um, a perfect example of that. Um, and then moving forward, jumping over to uh, was it opening night at the first New York Film Festival? Yes. Yeah, yeah the opening night of the first mm-hmm. New York Film Festival. Maybe Luis Buñuel's best movie in my eyes. Um, the Exterminating Angel, which is extraordinary and, and precise. Uh, and my only complaint is that he probably should have kept his original ending, which is they all eat each other at the end. Oh. Um, <laughs> which, you know, tight. Um yeah, I mean, I think you guys covered that well and, and have talked about it extensively. I highly recommend people go back to the first episode, uh, the first actual episode, um, and, and listen to that because I think you guys had a really nice and informative discussion on it. Uh, and then the, the the then comes Milky Way, um, which Milky Way, in the conception of his own films, he can, he saw as the first part of a trilogy the Milky Way, the second being the discrete charm of the bourgeoisie, and then the third, which is the closing night film, which we'll talk about later, Phantom of Liberty. Um, Milky Way is really interesting in that it is a movie that could have only ever been made by a Catholic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is, it is a movie that almost entirely exists of rhetorical conversations about theology and and specifically Christianity Um, and then very occasionally are intercut with scenes of roving homeless men and or Jesus and his apostles. Um, It it is in his own way delightful. Um, it, It is very funny. Um, Buñuel always gets the, gets tacked on as like the guy who hates religion, which, I mean, considering who he what he did and, and some of the images in his movies, sure. Um, but there's something really interesting about Buñuel in that he he actually is deeply, deeply, deeply respectful of people's ability to worship, of the right of people to have that. And you have to remember that he came out of you know, Franco's Spain. That that's that's where that's where he grew up under, that's where his art started. And and that's where the first his first movies were pointed at. Um he sees churches as an extension of the state, which they largely were at the time, and as a peep as as a way to control people, as a way to manipulate people. It, in the Milky Way the basic story is that two homeless men, travelers, whatever you want to say, are taking the pilgrimage from Paris to Spain, which is the route that St. James took. Um, they have many, many little weird, strange encounters. Um, the narrative is very loose and very freewheeling. Um, the one consistent is that each turn there's another contradiction in what they've been told about God, what they've been told about Jesus. And 
and each and every turn, there's another person trying to take advantage of them. And it, and it is... Buñuel is like, he's like this beautiful, wonderful chronicle, a chronicler of <laughs> the ramifications of religion here on Earth. Mm-hmm. He, he clearly is, to some degree, a spiritual person, and, and later in life he's... He found God, quote unquote, and and for the last years of his life were incredibly religious. Um, but it's it's something because he always gets flagged as as attacking religion, and I think it's it's always a little bit more complicated than that. And his relationship in is in this movie in particular is is really fascinating because he he can't help but take the piss out of the church at every possible moment he can. Um, you know, uh, a a priest who uh, a priest who fervently is yelling at people that they have the wrong interpretation to God, and then immediately changes his mind, and then gets sent, and then gets and then gets institutionalized. Um, you know, people people arguing over dinner, people arguing making dinner, every single possible version of theological arguments, whether it's with the actual devil or whether it's with an angel, um, are happening here. And yet, interestingly, from what I can remember, and I've seen almost all of Buñuel's um, features, there's never a conception of the afterlife in any of his movies, which I think is, is something really interesting because I think that points precisely to his desire to attack religion's place here on earth, not people's own relationship to religion, people's own connection with that. Um, because he's never seeming to attack the belief system. He's seeming to attack the way people use it and the way people have always used it going back to the crusades. Um, and it's, I will say the Milky Way is not, I think, one of his most successful works. I find it in the sort of middle range of it is consistently pleasing and there's something really wonderfully conceptually that is happening. Um, but it's but it can never quite pull together into something that I, I constantly can really get behind. Um, not... It's not entirely true because I do I do like a lot of it, but it, you kind of get these two Buñuels, and this is this is this important part in his career where things really change, um, and the Milky Way represents that divide, um, which is interesting why they chose it as part of the retrospective. The Milky Way is this really important divide because it's when he stops making anything that resembles a normal narrative feature. His movies are always digressive. His movies are always episodic. His movies are always vignetted. This is when they go to another level. And this is when his movies only consist of vignettes. And and while, and that's true of literally every movie he made after. Um, Tristiana is the least that's true of, but even that is so consistently plagued by scenes that have so little to do with the one before them. Um, but obviously Discreet Trevor Bourgeoisie, obviously Fan of Liberty, which we'll get to, and his final film, That Obscure of Desire, which you guys will see soon, um, even that has a through line. It is the story of one person's relationship. Mm-hmm. 
but even that is is it, the framing device of that movie is Fernando Rey telling people in a train car about his relationship, mm-hmm. and so it is literally episodes from a relationship spread across time. So it's this really interesting point in his career where things just sort of break down in terms of his desire to construct an actual narrative. Um, things start getting more complicated. His relationship to basic understandings of through lines in terms of narrative structure um, become even more tenuous than they were in the first place. Um, it's an interesting film, and I totally recommend if people like Buñuel, absolutely seek it out. It's very funny. There's a guy who plays Jesus who speaks French and is very funny. Um, it's 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 a it's a good movie, but. And it leads it leads very well into discrete terms of the bourgeoisie, which is obviously everything everyone said it is. I still am of the belief that I like Fan of Liberty and that Obscure Obscure Desire a little bit more. I think they're working in uh, in a little bit higher of a register, um, but I completely understand why people gravitate to discrete charm, and it is a wonderful movie. And obviously, if you have not seen it, you should check it out because it is as delightful and surprising still as it was when I first saw it when I was 15, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's great summation of uh, Bunuel's, you know, sort of, uh, you know, various preoccupations and sort of the point he's at in this career with this retrospective uh yeah just offering my own thoughts on the milky way i mean being jewish you know like half of world cinema half of cinema doesn't really make a ton of sense because it's all either catholicism or you know other sort of forms of critiques of christianity and that's even you know mostly just european cinema but this is you know one of those cases where yeah i don't you know i i I've only gotten to know parts of the New Testament very well at all is through <laughs> these sorts of movies. Um, and so this is another one where that was sort of the case. Um, but, you know, it is, um, it, it definitely has, um, I, think, I think your point to the form of Boonwell's critique of uh, Catholicism or just Christianity in general is that it is how it's structured through the world, how it, how it oppresses people, how it, um, you know, how it's shaped basically, you know, the world that we live in and not necessarily people's personal relations to it because, you know, clearly he had his own and he, and at the, very very end of the film is a title card that says everything in this film came from scripture you know like nothing yeah there's nothing that uh was made up this is all like directly from and so obviously it takes like a lot of deep familiarity and a lot of studying to be able to pull that out and then turn it into what Boonwell does with the milky way which is you know a very amusing set of these different um you know different vignettes and, you know, like a very amusing sort of uh, interrogations into different aspects of uh, Christianity. It's funny because he always had some levels of critiques of Christianity across his films for many, many years. And then there's really not anything too significant. I mean, there's priests in Phantom of Liberty, there's priests in, in Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, but 
it is an interesting film because it's something he had always been working towards and it mm-hmm. felt like he got it all out, all out at once. Yeah. And, and for that, it is a fascinating and interesting movie if not 100% successful, but right. still, you know, delightful in its own way and, and, and smart and exacting. I, I think sometimes he gets, and I, the way I've talked about him has helped reaffirm that, I'm sure, to some people, but he sometimes does not always seen as a, he's seen as more of a writer than a director mm-hmm. and certainly while well, certain amount of his films are, are deep conceptual um, and are happening on a screenplay level uh, he always finds these interesting little ways to push people a little bit further than the screenplay could go and 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 he he has such a great rapport with actors he he there's very rarely a performance in a Buñuel movie that seems like it doesn't fit. Um, everyone understands what they're doing and how they're supposed to come across mm-hmm. without it being considered like a house style in the way that a Bresson would or an Antonioni would or whomever. You know, he's such a fascinating figure in, in world cinema and uh, I'm happy he is revered as he is. I just... Uh, Sometimes think he sometimes need a little bit more. He needs a little bit more close analysis than people sometimes yeah, tend right. to give him. Yeah. And I do think that his films, while somewhat represented in, say, home video or things like that, definitely still underrepresented. I think the availability of certain films, like these later films, for instance, is not as much as one would expect. I think right, or his or his deeply important films he made in and around Mexico, right, which yeah, are, are interesting and fascinating and, and of and show his ability to be more than just a one trick pony, um, while still being extremely him. Um, and, and they're mostly all wonderful. I don't I, there are very few Buñuel features I've ever watched that I was like, eh, that wasn't <laughs> worth my time. You know, it, he's he's always sharp, he always is prepared and he even even very late in his life, while he might not necessarily be, let's say, the most in touch with like the youth, he still is so hyper aware of the way societies change, of the way communication changes, social social <clears throat> social structures, um, the way in which governments affect daily lives. That it, that it does feel as though he was always with it to some degree, even until the last moment he was making movies. Yeah. Milky Way is the one that I wasn't able to get to, but we'll definitely get to it sometime before the obscure object of desire. Uh, we'll put our discussion of Boonwell on brief pause. The next film, the last one, the, the last one before the closing night, is the world premiere of John Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence, and this is definitely one of those films which rightfully earned its reputation as an emotional gauntlet uh, that is run by both the actors and the viewers, but especially the actors. The starring, of course, Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk as a as a married couple with three children living in Los Angeles, and it is centered around this the mental break and attempted rehabilitation of Mabel um, 
Rollins' character and her and the attempts to do so by Nick, played by Falk. And the film was originally originated as this as a stage play written by Cassavetes and Rollins knew that she said that due to the emotional intensity of it, there was no way she'd be able to perform it eight times a week. So it was reconfigured for, for film form. And you can sort of, and you can definitely see that. And it's, it's very much in the Cassavetes of uh, faces mode where you see just these intensely extended scenes or sequences really of just so much emotional intensity. And so you can sort of see that in the structure of the, of a stage plays acts and yet it, right. feel, it feels so richly realized. And I, this is, I, this is the first Cassavetes that this was the first Cassavetes I saw in, back in 2015. And it really worked a lot better for me this time because of how, because I think I've just, I can recognize more how much Cassavetes fundamentally cares about these characters, how much, even though it is this very wrenching, very, uh, brutal, brutal, um, brutal gauntlet and crucible. He manages to keep it so centered on the characters and so faithful to their actual psychologies. And that goes a long way in making this a much more varied and rich experience than you, than, than it could have possibly been. Right. And, and, Real quick, circling back to your point about how it was initially written as a stage play, I actually think her saying that it was too demanding to perform that regularly actually deeply informs the next movie they would make together, Opening Night, Mm -hmm. which is of a woman who is driven to some issues um, (laughs) precisely because of the affect you, you have to put on when you perform something exhausting something harsh something intense and uh yeah i mean woman of the influence is one of the deeply important films to me um definitely was the first john cassavetes film i saw um that and faces i saw very close together um when i was a teenager and still have left a tremendous effect on me Obviously, must be said, General and the goat. Um, she's she's so perfectly gestural. Oh, she's yeah. so precise. Her eyes are never in a in in a place that doesn't tell you something about her. Um, there's never a moment where her her volatility is not both something that you almost fear, but also something that is so magnetic and so deeply deeply beautiful of mm-hmm. of her as a character as mabel um it, it, it's a, a very 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 intense movie obviously but it's but it's one that tries to find this really 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 tough to find ground behind a woman who needs help and is is doing too much as is and a husband who genuinely does love his wife Mm -hmm. but does not know how to help her and his need to have a family under a certain unit causes him to behave in ways he shouldn't Mm -hmm. um and it's it's a it's a brutal film with two 
you know, fundamentally extraordinary actors yeah. um, giving some of the best work that they've ever mm-hmm. that they've ever done, and it's it's. Feel free to jump in at yeah. any point. I'm, I mean, I, it's, I think that Falk is it's sort of the Judy Garland James Mason situation in *A Star Is Born*, where you have a, a performance so utterly, so obviously transcendent that you that you almost forget an almost equally brilliant performance um, right next to it. And Falk, I think he has that exact opposite end of the spectrum where he is just simmering so much and you get these explosions of anger that, that resonate um, at, at certain points throughout the film. And uh, both of them, they embody their characters so well when it'd be, um, it seem, uh, it's a very difficult role to play because you have to maintain this, this groundedness while going through these extraordinary extraordinary roiling emotions mm-hmm. and they both managed to pull it off so successfully throughout this 155 minute film which is important <laughs> like you have to have the length of these scenes like the, yeah. Yeah. the spaghetti the spaghetti scene where she's eating a dinner but it's really like breakfast time because they've been working all night for, with a bunch of Nick's coworkers and it lasts for t- something like 25 minutes and you need that. Yeah. It practically opens the film, right? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I I haven't seen this since I was a teenager either and I didn't get a chance to watch it again, but it, you know, I remember it sort of, yeah, it's sort of hitting like a lightning bolt of just like the way that it starts with that, that sort of morning dinner scene and Roland's kind of making sure like, She's sort of, she's very on in that mo- her character mm-hmm. is very sort of on in that uh, moment, like making sure everyone's you know having a good time and being you know a very like sort of welcoming host. And then um, you basically see you see like the sort of fissures in there, um, and then the film sort of breaking. But I do also, I mean, this is all just for vague memories at this point. Um, remember folks were taking his kids out too yeah. and like spending time alone at <laughs> the beach. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, giving them beer when they're like four years old. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is really about this sort of the, the need for connection and the mm-hmm. so desperate lack of connection that is on display both between Falk and his kids and Falk between and Rollins and Rollins with everyone else to some degree because she is so trapped in her in her mind that she can't really express she can't find that sense of I guess common ground for lack of a better term with other people and the scenes where, where she's outside of the home only somehow only heightened this emotional state where she's asking people the time and she, she can't get it or she's in the bar and it's this very, very strange, very depressed sort of a scene. And you get, you feel it in her, you feel it in your bones that all of that emanating from the screen from her. No, and, and it's something I love so much about her performance. There's so many things. Um, it's a performance you can genuinely talk about forever, but it is part of what makes it so wonderful also is that she completely defies any immediate desire to classify or to diagnose. Right. Um, she is this extremely living portrait of someone with mental illness that is unique and their own and complicated and and 
difficult to navigate and then especially in the climate that they lived in uh it 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 it, it only gets worse and then that's amplified by the fact that nick peter Falk's character is deeply italian and and the movie doesn't the movie, the movie doesn't the movie doesn't really honestly really stress it but Falk right. has been very clear that that's a huge part that his mother is the one that is constantly pushing down in fact Rollins once mm-hmm. described Nick Longetti as a character caught between two women mm-hmm. which is very yeah. much not immediately how the film approaches it but if you're reading and sussing out things about who they are their name where they're from, what time they're living in. I think it starts to explain a lot of things about their character that I think maybe some people just assumed because of shorthand, um, but maybe isn't so immediately obvious right now. And, and it's just the thing of everyone has their own reality that they're living in, and some people can fit into that, and some people can't. And she's just this woman whose reality can fit into so few people's world comfortably Mm -hmm. and it's and it's unbearable because she's just trying to exist Mm -hmm. she is just trying to be present and exist and and do what she can um and even her sheer presence is bothering some people at that dinner table Mm -hmm. and that that dinner table scene is also so fantastic precisely because there's the point where it ends the guys all leave and then you have the other side of their relationship where he tries not to make a scene, tries, obviously fails to some degree because he yells at her, and they're alone. And he both he both wants to help her and then can't help but yell wacko at her mm-hmm. and, yeah. and make noises in an attention to stoke her. Um, it, it's, it's, it's such a strange film because basically trying to figure out the dynamic between Nick... Peter Fogg's character and and Mabel, Gina Rowland's character, and then how Cassavetes is approaching each of them and how he's approaching their dynamic is so endlessly fascinating. Cassavetes is never scared to let her seem like bad or ugly, and, and in the same way, he's never scared to let Nick seem abusive and harsh, because in ways, obviously he is. He hits her twice in the movie, you know, but he's aware that a performance can exist within itself and he's able to trust mm-hmm. his actors well enough that they're able to develop their characters in a way that can actually, they can defend themselves where they need to and they can be guilty where they need to as well. Um, and they can own up to that. And, and, and Casavetta is such a rare filmmaker who's both so precise, but also can create that space for these type of characters to come out and these type of performances to come out without ever overstepping his bounds, without ever pushing too hard in any particular direction. Everyone always assumes that Casavetta's movies are heavily improvised, and it's actually frequently people who've worked with him have explicitly said that almost every line in any one of his movies was written. Um, There's almost no improvisation going on in most of his movies. Um, And it's just, it's, 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 fascinating um, as a portrait and then obviously you get to the back half of the movie where she's been gone for six months and she returns and things blow up Um, there's not much I think we can say to really do justice to it (laughs) Um, it is 
an all-time scene of two people at their wits end who both need help and both need help from each other and probably and definitely can't help each other um despite them loving each other and and you know there's very few things as heartbreaking as the kids trying to keep peter falk away from jenna as she's as she's on the couch you know it's a film of it's such a big film and it's a film of so many dramatic incidents and things like that but there's so many small little decisions made and small little role things that actors will start to implement that really build out his entire movies and and he has a, a career of movies full of these actors being able to show up and do these things and and be and be incredible in these ways and it's not only a testament to Casavetes but obviously all of the actors he worked with across his career yeah I, it's it's kind of hard to uh sum up because even though it is such an intimate film it does cover so much emotional grounds and the just the final the sort of non-finality of the of the ending where it is Mm -hmm. this deliberately at odds ending where right after her suicide attempt they just immediately go go back to a more normal thing uh way way of uh paving towards each other and you have this very tender very um pretty funny sort of mending literal mending with the band-aid also emotional mending and them going uh getting ready for bed and it is and you have that deliberate juxtaposition it, it is really something that it just is you can't really uh yeah right and then and it ends with them getting ready for bed and a phone ringing who <laughs> it could be it could be his mother it could be anything and they would rather in that moment choose to be with each other and try and figure it out rather than be interrupted again. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, it, it's a movie that also gives you the space to feel the way you do about the character. And, and talking about that, I actually do have a story of uh, Peter Falk told of what happened at the New York Film Festival. So it was obviously its world premiere, which, by the way, I was referencing earlier, uh, only happened because purportedly Martin Scorsese pulled some strings riding high off of Mean Streets right. that he loved Joss, John Cassavetes movies and he was like, he supposedly pulled some strings and was able to get it in the festival. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Peter Falk was on set somewhere else shooting uh, when it when the world premiere happened, but Jenna and John went and he called John that night from his hotel and he was like, hey, John, how'd it go? And he was like, they booed you. I was like, what? And he was like, when, when your name came up at the end of the movie, everyone booed you. And it is, it is funny and indicative of, of how willing he is to let a character do something that is gross, that mm-hmm. is bad, of, of, of hitting her in the way that she does mid-panic attack, multiple, like twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you're not like, oh, Mabel's an idiot for being with him. You know, like, it, it, it is, he, he, it's giving characters space to make decisions for themselves, and you can feel whatever kind of way you feel about it. Um, but it's never a decision that it doesn't, it never feels dishonest. 
it's one that is always in keeping with who they are. And also, on a very sweet, positive note, uh, Jenna Rollins did say the night it premiered at New York F- Film Festival was one of the most fulfilling nights of her life artistically. Just sweet. Because it was received with tremendously rapturous right. yeah. applause. Yeah. As it should be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The closing night was, as we definitely said before, Luz Manuel's The Phantom of Liberty, also at every Fisher Hall, as with the opening night. And it's this is a very an even more vignette structure than a description of the bourgeoisie. And following, there there is no central character. It is simply a procession of various vignettes, some longer than others, some, uh, but all taking place. It was surprising given the opening, but all taking place aside from the actual opening in the present day, but each with its own little twists or various surreal devices deployed and it is quite delightful it, i've it, always uh real quick i've always referred to it as uh, narratively a baton race because yes. what happens is <laughs> absolutely a character a goes meets into a social setting meets up with a group of people and runs into a talks to character b and then now character b is the protagonist goes runs into a and meets character c but etc 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 so it's just constantly circular revolving baton of whom's the protagonist where are they going what's happening right. and it, and it some people really genuinely dislike this era right. of of his um it's funny because dave kerr is very critical of it, mm-hmm. it many many wonderful critics have gone on a length that but some people myself included do really find that there is some interesting power in his ability to elide conventional narrative narrative structures in a moment rather than approaching so he can approach a more moment by moment working through of of what's happening right crucially it's not a network narrative we are all connected sort of film it is yeah it is it's (laughs) it arrives at its points and at its ideas at a much more you you have to suss it out and you have to suss out the connections yourself not a not speaking about the narrative connections because there are, with the exception of the actual linking moments, there are very little narrative connections. It's more about the, like you have to see the potential thematic connection, connections, whatever they may be. And it is a general, uh, a general fairly incisive look at various valences of, of society in, in the modern day, some much more satirical than others, some more, pointed than others and he does allow for some moments that are deliberately almost jarring like the like this sequence with a sniper uh, a random sniper who if i'm not mistaken he seems to be sniping from the same building that was bombed in Nocturama. it looks exactly the same oh really yeah it, i didn't even I, notice that yeah the the one where the um where one of the the um one of the terrorists gets shot uh, okay. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Something about the vents or something. But either way, <laughs> yeah. But he he's he he is thoroughly willing to throw something as as inexplicable and as graphic in the same breath as this as this child who goes missing, even though she's right next to her parents. And <laughs> it, there's a lot that there's a a lot of different connections that. Boonwell is very willing to to make. Um, it's 
a collection of of quite a lot of vignettes that form their own power um, in connection with each other. Right, and and it's this narrative structure that naturally leads you to have to do a little bit more work than I think most people are are used to doing, and not suggesting that people who dislike it are failing at actually doing work for a movie, but it, it is it is a jarring way to approach a film, and I remember the first time seeing it, I was both deeply confused and very excited because I'd never seen anything like it, um, but it, its structure is is delightful, and I think yields these wonderful wonderful little scenarios that all are are even more connected in very specific ways and rhythmic ways um, in 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 the way that certain scenes proceed and develop they're connected in a lot more ways than just oh like that's like society, you know, <laughs> other than just sort of base, base thematic ways. It's, it's been far too long since I've seen this movie for me to have <laughs> much of an opinion on it, but um, I definitely, I'll try to try to catch it again so that I can see uh, if Boonwell is kind of, because I kind of remember it being more that he was working on a thematic basis, but I, 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 I'd like to see, yeah. yeah. He's probably it's probably a lot more complex than that, right? It yeah, I, I it's I do prefer the sort of gra- the sort of more pointedness of like a discrete charm of the bourgeoisie, but this is really I do find just a lot of the moment to moments really skillful in the way that he manages to weave these together, almost like it, it's it's batting practice for him essentially. <laughs> yeah, and of course the great bench of cast michael lonsdale michelle piccoli and surprisingly monica Vitti in a french speaking role and very early on in the film as well yeah and, and yeah and like some of the some of the jokes almost because boonwell is so well known uh they all they seem like they shouldn't work or that they're too commonly used like the one where the um where VT and her husband are looking at these pictures, which they are saying are obscene, and they're just of buildings. <laughs> but because he he's able he you, he puts on the idea that they're obscene pictures three times before he actually shows the pictures, it actually works. And the excess to which they they have this 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 um this response is what creates it. And he he's able to make these things still really funny, <laughs> and. An entirely characteristic of uh, both of of his sensibility. Yeah, really nice way to end the festival, certainly.
this is almost certainly our longest episode yet and i hope you have been enjoying it or at least been tolerating it in 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 to some manner or not for the record we are recording at should we say the actual time that it is currently very very late it's late yeah okay. it's late okay it's we're late. not going to say the actual time no. um, you can suss it out if you uh if you <laughs> just piece together exactly how much i've cut out pause wise or not but I think we can all agree that this has been a very rewarding and very varied um, and a festival filled with quite a lot to really unpack in largely very, and for the most part, extremely delightful and wonderful ways. Yeah, yeah. there's much to think about. Yeah, much to think about. <laughs> much to think about. Yeah, yeah. I, I, for, and for some of the Double films that... Double Rivette gives you yeah. much to think about. Yeah, like for the Rivettes, I feel like even though we talked for so long we there's we still barely scratched the surface uh, in many ways we could if you're really clamoring we could maybe see about talking some, about some of them down the line or something yeah we thankfully have the rest of our lives oh yes, yes. absolutely as long as that is as yes. long as that is absolutely <laughs> yeah well yeah thank, well, thank you. you for having me on yeah, thank yes. you so much uh, for, for coming on being so eloquent a pleasure yes thank you this for being was, so generous uh, with your time yeah <laughs> <laughs> of course i i uh, a big fan of the podcast this is a particularly wonderful festival and i'm, I'm happy that i got to work through it as as uh, intense and laborious as as cinema watching and and discussing can be to this level it is uh it is it has been a joy uh i appreciate it and thank you very much thank you very much for for thank you and we we're we'll be more than happy to have you on again at some future absolutely whether that be soon or 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 um further down the line thank you and thank you to the listener for as always bearing with us and uh hopefully this I can get all this together in, in time. <laughs> we'll see about that. But uh, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Yes. Thank you, and good night. Good night. <laughs> good night.